Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Pop crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and standing with me today are my dear friends Sarah B. Hello. And Neil Kulkarnet. Hello there. Colleagues, the pop things, the interesting things, what of them? <laughs> Tell me now. Well, the pop and interesting things are us somewhat reduced these days as I've uh, kind of joined the secret club of people who've fallen through the floorboards of society Um, but I do have a new podcast Ooh, Ooh. shill baby, shill Yes (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for this opportunity Um, What's it it called? It's called Teledrome which is a name I was astonished no one else had had Mm. So it's always good when that happens, when it just comes to you. It's like, let's call it that. And it's like, and you get, do you remember you used to do Google whacking where you'd you'd Google a thing and there'd be no results. It's like, (laughs) ooh, look at this desert of opportunity. So the first two episodes are out now, a skinny little 90 minutes each. I mean, barely there, really. We have got nerdy and ranty about the two massive fantasy shows of recent months, which were House of the Dragon, a Game of Thrones thing, and The Rings of Power, which is is a Lord of the Rings thing. One of these we loved to distraction, one of which we thought was absolute bollocks from hell. So uh, have a listen. But and f- which one, listeners? Mm. Find out. out. And, and who's, the, who's the other bloke? Sorry, it's me and my brilliant friend, John Tatlock. Good old John. Hey up, John. <laughs> hey up, John. Um, we did uh, a podcast together uh, based on a joke idea that I had and he kind of called my bluff on it. In the before times, uh, we did a, a Game of Thrones podcast called The Night's Hate Watch, which is still, I, I fell off the internet for a bit. I think it's back up now. Ooh. Which is an exhaustive account of how bad the final season of Game of Thrones is um, you uh, can you can actually track as as the will to live leaks <laughs> from our very souls along the way presumably finally extinguished by Ed Sheeran I'm guessing <laughs> oh god he really haunts the the whole thing you know <laughs> this is all modern stuff isn't it no we're doing all sorts of stuff oh yeah just anything literally if you can see it on a screen in your house uh, you know, so it's quite a broad dream, it really. The next one we're doing, um, uh, I, I can exclusively reveal, is um, we are going to talk about Hellraiser, um, which Ooh. and horror remakes. 
Hicks Hell, Hellraiser from uh, 1987. You remember that one, you know the really, oh god, yeah, Jesus wept. <laughs> Jesus wept. Spoilers. Um, and they've remade it, and we have opinions about that. So um, yeah, we're doing that. By the way, that's um, that's our own epically late Christmas episode, which is itself an even <laughs> well, even later than ours, even though. epically later <laughs> Halloween episode. So basically, don't feel bad. Time now means nothing. No. And, mm-hmm. and we don't have a schedule. We do it when we are healthy and not too busy. Ooh. And the name of it again, Sarah? The name of the podcast is Teledrome. And um, where can you get it? Anywhere you find your podcast. Yes, <laughs> that's the correct answer. <laughs> Neil, come on in. Step into the cyber. Oh, well, I mean, I think the last time we spoke, Al, it was back in November. In the old times. Our salad days, if you will. But, um, yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> a very strange end to 2022 and a sort of odd start to 2023. It's been a weird couple of months for me. Ooh. I mean, you know me. I essentially just want to be left alone in my bubble and write reviews of records that no one listens to. Mm. Um, but a couple of things in recent months has sort of problematised that a little bit since i was last on with simon obviously terry hall passed on yeah and the the quietus asked me about eight in the morning that day to write something and by eight thirty in the morning i had and by the afternoon i was getting calls off like radio five and channel four news Ooh. to appear and, and say a Fucking few words hell. yeah i mean i suppose i should feel that as kind of vindication you know this is what a journalist should do put themselves about a bit mm. um and there's no point in me bearing that grudge that it's always enemy fuckers or that incestuous band of mutual mates that passes for London's music media who gets all these gigs Um, you know if when I get given this opportunity I don't take them so I did them both Radio 5 was good Mm. Um, Channel 4 a little bit more revealing I was shunted after 10 seconds in preference for Tim Burgess or something Mm. but but truth be told, it all felt a bit distinctly uncomfortable, Al. Yeah. I was much happier a couple of days later, by which time people on Twitter had got around to calling my piece a moronic, you know, take. <laughs> and, and that returned me to my comfort zone. Excellent, really, yes. Response. Oh, man, you can always rely on cunts, can't you, to recenter <laughs> your world again. Indeed, they keep you grounded. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, conversely, I had a lovely moment the other day. Right. That reminded me, really, that not all response to stuff has to make me feel like some kind of talking head cunt on a BBC4 documentary. Mm. I was in Stratford-upon-Avon Morrison's right. uh, opposite the college there where my daughter goes and I went up to the fag kiosk right. um, to buy some stamps and I asked the bloke behind the counter like do you sell stamps mate and he just stares at me in like this dumbfounded silence right so i sort of added you know a book of first class please just to nudge him into action (laughs) but he's still kind of staring at me and then he says are you a sort of big pause on chart music podcast oh yes (laughs) fucking hell i know it was mental and i'm like yes i am are you a pop crazed youngster and he's like Neil Kulkarni, oh my God. He, he, it was so sweet. He was so flustered. I had to kind of let him serve the, the, the kind of building angry queue of smokers behind me. <laughs> and and then, we, then we sort of stopped for chat. It was, it was really touching to hear how much Chart Music Podcast meant to him. Oh. So that was absolutely lovely. And, you know, hello to Alan from Stratford Morrison's. Oh. Hi, Alan. I will pop in for a longer chat. I mean, the way journalism's going, I might pop in for a job as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know maybe a pot of tea in future but that was that was a really touching thing oh my respect to you alan yeah you gotta watch out though neil it is a double-edged sword being recognized in the mm-hmm. street 
I used to get it a lot about 20 years ago. I moved back to Nottingham 20 years ago this month right. after being in London and doing a lot of late-night telly rammel. Mm-hmm. And so, consequently, I was recognised all the fucking time yeah, yeah. when I went out in Nottingham. And to the point where I'd go out with a mate who I hadn't seen for years and I'd go into a pub and just before I went in, I'd say to her, look, before we go in, I've got to let you know there's a really good chance that someone neither of us know is going to come up to us and start talking to us because <laughs> they recognise me off the telly. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't know anything about this. And she just looked at me and went, fucking hell, you, you've become a right arrogant bastard, haven't you? And I said, no, 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 seriously. Opened the front door of the pub. Mm. I'd only got about three foot in when someone who I didn't know, never met again, mm. just turned around, pointed at me and just shouted, fucking hell, it's you, <laughs> the legend. <laughs> And I just looked at my mate and her jaw just hung wide open. Mm. She said, yeah, welcome to my world, baby. <laughs> but the other edge of that sword, always sharp and cutting. A couple of months after, in the same pub, mm-hmm. this girl comes up to me and I can see her coming across to me from the pub, immediately knowing what's going to happen. Right. Where she comes up to me and said, excuse me, I'm really sorry to bother you, but uh, have you been on the telly? And I said, yeah, I have, yeah. And she looked at me again and said, are you Pete Doherty's stalker on that documentary? <laughs> <laughs> the fucking death ray glare I fired at her mm. made her scuckle all the way back to the pub. And I just thought, thank God you were a woman. If you'd have been a bloke, I would have, oh, the fists would have been brandished. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's tough when you've got a doppelganger on telly because, I mean, obviously, I, I had years of it with Dev Allahan from Coronation Street. So yes. I, I know the feeling. Oh, but anyway, fuck the randoms and the hoi polloi. Let's talk about the special people of this world. The latest batch of pop craze Patreon subscribers. And this time in the $5 section, we have Pete Hibberdeen, Judy Finnegan's Wake, Ewan Wallace, <laughs> Circuit 3... Gary McPherson, Joe Keating, Mike Daly, Adam Harrison, John Rafferty, Ian Hamilton, Mike Atkinson, Wayne Codd, James Purdy, Kit Lynch, DS, Dave Caffrey, Joe O'Donnell, Ian Ron Saunders, Graham McPherson, Mark Corcoran Lettuce, and introducing the ghost face Silla! <laughs> Never could get ill. And in the $3 section, we have Phil Prothero, Kevin Cope, Will Collinson, Russell Parsons, Dan Metcalf, Michelle Lyons, Marie, and Pete. Gibson, thank you, you lovely, lovely people. Thank you. We thank are you. the rain, you are the sun, <laughs> and now we've made a rainbow. <laughs> I think it's beautiful, don't you, Neil? Indeed, indeed. What a beautiful rainbow. I mean, you know, that, that's a whole flotilla of new pop crazy youngsters. That's fantastic. A lot of people have left, but a, mm. a lot of people have come on, man. It's a nice, steady churn. Indeed. Which is nice. I wish them all, you know, regular bowel movements and a lovely love life this year. And Pete Gibson. Ooh, you jacked it right up, didn't you, mate? Right up to the armpit, in fact. And we're sore, but we're grateful. So thank you, Pete.
And as well as keeping chart music alive and getting new episodes in full days before everyone else, we know advert ramble. The pop craze Patreons get to slip into the back room of the record shop and fiddle about with the chart return book for the brand new chart music top ten. Are we ready, babies? Oh God, yes. Hit the fucking music. We've said goodbye to the Airbnb 52s, Dag Vag, the Nagasaki Hellblaster, and rock expert David Stubbs! Which means one up, three down, two non-movers, three new entries, and one re-entry. It's a re-entry at number ten for Jeff Sex. <laughs> First new entry, straight in at number nine, the two Ronnies clash. <laughs> Down one place from number seven to number eight, here comes Chisholm. A new entry, straight in at number seven, Sex under Artex. <laughs> Down one place to number six, Bummerdog. Into the top five, and it's a one-place jump for the bent cunt who aren't fucking real. <laughs> Last week's number three, this week's number four, Eric Smallshore of Eccles. <laughs> the highest new entry smashes into the chart at number three, Noel Edmonds' as wank fantasy. <laughs> no change at number two, the provisional URURA, which means... Britain's number one. Oh, yes. He's still there as the chart music top ten number one. The Birmingham Pistrol. Oh, oh my God. God. What a chart. I suspected that would be the case, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, mm. much as I suspected Bummer Dog would still be there. The dark side of the moon of, of the, the chart music chart. Those new entries, Sex Under Artex, what are they saying to the youth? I don't know, but yeah, that's a bit close to home, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Problem with Artex is it fucking funks for ages after mm-hmm. you put it up. But once it's up, there's no shift in it. That's it. That's that thing for life, then. Yes. Um, yeah. I can see Sex Under Artex... Um, Sort of early 80s concern, sort of popping up on Riverside with some performative dance troupe. Mm, indeed. It's the X's, isn't it? It's, the, it's always yes. X's. That's a, that's a definitively, yeah, 80s thing. It is, yeah. It doesn't matter what year it is, there's something futuristic mm. about, about an X. It just speaks to a, a, a sexy future that you'll never get to. <laughs> the two Ronnies <laughs> clash, well, that's either some heavy-duty discipline dub or Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett doing some thigh-slapping impersonations of Mick Jones and Joe Strummer. Or it could well be two Ronnies, one cup doing a war or a fetus, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I will see what you mean. Changing their name to adapt to, to the new styles. <laughs> I just see lots of blacking up there. It's deeply problematic. Oh, yes. <laughs> And Noel Edmonds wank fantasy. Well, that's clearly a dance troupe in the style of um, Sarah Brightman and Hot Gossip. Mm. And they're all dressed up as helicopters and rally cars with legs. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it'd be easy to say that his wank fantasy would be Mr. Blobby or something. Mm. But clearly, Noel Edmonds is one of those people who wanks in front of a mirror. <laughs> but yeah, Birmingham Fist Troll. 
sticks. <laughs> he really does. I, I have got a small update. Oh, the, yes. Ooh. Come on, oh, yes. give it. On the phenomenon that, I mean, all the kids are talking about. The Indeed. Piss troll. It, it, it's true that, you know, when I first suggested the phenomena of the Birmingham piss troll, I was at first sort of confounded by Pricey's quite legitimate and forensically scientific interrogation of the narrative. No. You know, he was right to observe that my indeterminacy over whether the Birmingham Pistrol's um, sort of locomotive aspect was one of scuttling or waving. And I, I was <laughs> floundering, to be honest with you, at times under his questioning. Oh, man. Yeah, floundering in a pool of, of Birmingham piss. <laughs> Proper journalism ruins everything, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, it's a Snopes thing, isn't Print it? the legend, Simon! But, I mean, therefore, it was, I mean, it's both revelatory and sort of really gratifying to read a frankly terrifying testimony from a young Brummie um, on the internet. Um, who are, so it must be true, um, who are, who are one fifteen in the morning on a cold October Saturday outside the aforementioned Subway Club in Brum had a BPT experience. <gasps> oh yeah, this guy had descended the spiral staircase down the canal bridge outside the Subway Club to have a piss in the canal, as so many previous mm. victims have. And after a few <laughs> seconds, um, this guy, um, he sees underneath his tinkle of piss and this was what blew my mind. A mask. <gasps> Fuck. Yeah. I mean, terrifying. Seemingly floating in midair. And not some cheap Halloween mask, but a kind of expensive Dio de las Muertos style skull mask. You know, I mean, serious business. Like a luchador. Yeah. yeah. And the guy thinks, you know, clearly, as, as anyone would, oh, fuck, I'm pissing on someone. Mm. Shouts, oh, fuck, sorry, man. And immediately diverts his stream <laughs> of piss away from the man with the mask who's on the receiving end of it. Now, I think what happens next is what's truly terrifying in this testimony. The masked uh, figure moves <gasps> to follow the stream of piss. And the guy starts screaming even more, you know, what the fuck are you doing? But, mm. you know, as I've heard before, actually, the BPT doesn't answer. He just, <laughs> he just silently stands there, gleefully, I mean, presumably, showering himself in this sort of stream of alco piss. And, of course, the, the guy is just traumatised. He comes <laughs> away tells his disbelieving mate and swears down that this must never happen again. Obviously, you know, the next week, the guy, like a fool, goes back to Subway City and it happens again. But this time, you know, he's... Fuck! Yeah, he seeks, like like any scientist, in search of the, the, the nion cryptozoological, which is, I mean, I think we can put BPT <laughs> in that category. I mean, who knows what an unknown branch... Of the hominid family tree, BPT <laughs> might be the last living exemplar of. But, I mean, he gets verification by getting another mate, you know, to have a piss as well and do the same. And in subsequent weeks, according to this chap's testimony, several of this guy's colleagues verify this this experience. And, and they start trying to confront the BPT with questions. Mm. And, and, you know, perhaps the most eerie bit of the testimony, in fact, is that the, the Birmingham Pistrol never answers, but he does. And this is just shudderingly awful. He emits this small groan, you know. <laughs> I've never heard that groan, but even the imagined sound of it, you know, makes me twist and shudder in my sheets at night. This is like a, a groan of satisfaction, I'm, I'm assuming. I guess is, so. He, he lives for the piss. He does live for the piss, but um, <laughs> finally, anyway, the guy and his mates, they kind of pile down en masse to confront, you know, this micturant masked menace. <laughs> 
but he gets um, apparently the BPT gets spooked and they kind of never see him again. No. But but once again, and as ever with the Birmingham piss troll, you know this leaves more questions than answers. I Indeed. Think. Yeah. I mean, number one, could the Birmingham piss troll be a woman? That's a possibility. Mm. No. <laughs> Possibly not. I mean, Possibly not. But you know, let's be fair. I mean, number two. Is the mask indeed a mask? Ooh. Or is it, yes, the grotesquely deformed features of some as yet undiscovered adjunct to mammalian primate development? Birmingham's a, you know, that kind of place. And, you know, is the Birmingham Pistron no more? Can the Birmingham Pistrol communicate? Is the mask perhaps part of some strange initiation ceremony to an actual whole community of piss trolls mm. who have to obscure their faces as they might be recognised as famous members of Birmingham by society? This is my <laughs> oh God, suspicion. like David Hunter. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but, you know, these could be among the primary top-ranking members of Birmingham's powerful line-dancing community, and I Indeed. think the public have a right to know. Oh, Definitely. These are the questions that actually handily form the titles of each episode of my forthcoming History Channel series, Cracking the BPT Code. It's been <laughs> greenlit by National Geographic. Should be on your screens come autumn. Fantastic. Um, ITV spent all this money on a fucking thing about Noel Gordon. <laughs> Jesus. Have you considered um, the theory that it could be a curse? Oh. The Birmingham Pistol might not want to be the Birmingham Pistol, but he has to serve the Birmingham Piss gods. Oh, my God. Yeah. And perhaps if you get too close, you know, the mask slips in a sense and you find yourself in the mask and then you have to take on that role. <laughs> it's like ring, you know, uh, you mm. piss on the Birmingham piss troll and seven days later you become the Birmingham piss troll. The series is coming out. I mean, my people are currently in talks with Greg Wallace's people. So let's just see what happens. <laughs> But yeah, terrifying. Verification, though, I feel. Vindication. Yeah, fuck you, Simon. <laughs> I'm worried now that there's going to be, like, hordes of people going down there, like, you know, cock in hand, ready to lure it out. <laughs> that, which, mean, Sarah, know. there was a guy on Twitter, I think, who, in response to that episode, yeah, he did go check it out. Yeah. I think the BPT's long gone. But, um, yeah. you know, let's see. Well, can't it's we have be, a new It's going to be all over TikTok, on, Birmingham. <laughs> Piss talk. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen to the, the you know, the, the, the canal is going to be a delicate ecosystem. If there's more people pissing in there than ever Sarah, before. Sarah, it's a canal in Birmingham. It's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. It can only help. <laughs> so if you want in on the never-ending thrill ride that is being a pop craze Patreon, you know what to do. You take them sexy fingers of yours, you hide them over to the keyboard, you mash, mash, mash patreon.com slash chart music, and you step up to that pay window, daddy, and lay your money down right now, please. <laughs> this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to April the 17th, 1986. Reason for this me dears is twofold uh, first let a pop crazed youngster stop me in a supermarket a while back and ask me to sort out a mid 80s one so right. you know it's been a while and mm -hmm. fair enough secondly you know I think it's fair to say that we've had some absolute pop trifle of late with the episodes that we've covered and I think it's now time for a bit of bran 
don't you? But <laughs> me stir a bit of cat shit back into the mix. Mm. Because, you know, we've done 1986 only twice before, and oh, mm. God, we've witnessed the bright stars of new pop burning out, the dinosaurs of pop roaring back in the wake of Live Aid, and very little new stuff in the charts to get excited about. Yeah. Ooh. Well, I mean, you know, this is obviously an age thing for us, Al, I think. I mean, by 1986, I was a little wanker, basically, um, about pop. Mm. So it kind of confirms all those old horrible opinions but you know it is also a reminder that you know there's a bit more nuance to it but you're yeah. right the dinosaurs are well they still walk don't they yes and n- nothing kind of completely bracingly new has come along in terms of like a scene it's more like individual figures uh, are kind of still giving us a bit of excitement but mm. it's a thin episode i think this reflecting a bit of a thin time sarah of course you're a bit younger than us so this is kind of more your top of the pops than mine. Yeah. You know, like when you've got um, some manky toys and you just want to hand them on to your uh, little sister or something. They say, <laughs> are, that's yours now. I've got a better one. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is obviously before I learned cynicism and disdain. for. <laughs> so <laughs> everything's great for me at this point. The pre-Beakle 60s, 1975-76. The tail end of the 90s. Most of this unwiped out of a century. Why do fallow periods of chart music happen, me dears? Because, you know, after all, there's new bands and artists popping up all the time. So surely there shouldn't ever be a downturn in pop. There always should be something pop and interesting and new happening. There's ebb and flow always, though, like in nature and in music. and in. So why would Top of the Pops be any different? You know, I mean, also, it's like the mids. Whenever you get... I mean, the kids say mid now, don't they, to mean meh. Right. It's, it's one of the mids. I know Taylor said before that he considers 1986 a, a late 80s, like the first of the late. Mm. I think if you run at the sort of hectic pace that this decade has, you are going to experience a greater degree of wear and or tear by the 60s. Mark. Mm. I mean, I don't know. And maybe it's a British thing. Maybe British pop kind of it exhausts itself more often than, than uh, I, I don't know, pulling this idea out of my ass. But there is a certain flaggingness about it. Uh, so what you're saying is that the, the 80s has spunked its load all over its jumper <laughs> and there's no tissues under. <laughs> That's precisely <laughs> the <laughs> mental image that I now have. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can roughly kind of coincide those periods where it feels like there's a bit of a dip with fundamentally a, a period when the biz feels most in control. Yes. So, you know, mid-70s, mid-80s, the, it's the biz exerting their muscle mm. and, and, you know, yeah, artists yeah. kind of feeling you know, needy. Um, they've got the begging bowl out. They want to get signed, obviously. I mean, this is a thing that happens all the time, but there doesn't seem to be anything happening palpably in the background or in the underground, if you like, mm. um, that might feed into an interesting pot chart. So, you know, when you look at the chart, it is mainly in 86. It is it is sort of industry sanctioned, if you like. Yeah. We've had, like you say, Al, that big sort of, era-defining live-aid moment of, you know, we're in control yeah, and, you know, we're always going to be in control. And these old dinosaurs who just refuse to go away. In fact, the resurrection of a lot of those dinosaurs thanks to live-aid. And we're kind of basking in, in 1986 in that period where the business just got complete and utter control over things. Yeah. I mean, the only new band or artist to get to number one in the LP charts in 1986 Five Star with Silk and Steel for one week. For one week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you 
you can point towards the bitter aftertaste of Live Aid and combine that with a transition of CD output from classical music to more, quote, modern stuff, mm. meaning that there's a load of yuppie twats out there who want their copies of Brothers in Arms and Diamond Life to sound as crisp as possible and hoovering up CD copies of LPs have already got. But I feel you also have to blame... The pop craze youngsters, not the pop oh, craze yeah, youngsters yeah. listening, but the the pop craze youngsters in general, because things have got so fucking conservative with a small C in 1986. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just down to old people buying old dinosaur bands. Young people are buying the shit as well. Yes. Young people are seeing, you know, Dire Straits as the zenith, mm. as this is as good as music gets. Yeah. Um, in 86. So, yeah, you're entirely right. It's not just a load of old farts who suddenly start buying pop records. It is the pop audience just happen to be buying shite. Yeah. I guess it's significant that, you know, there's this new way to listen to music at this time called the compact disc. Um, mm. And it is as beautiful as an oil spill in the sun and as futuristic <laughs> as a robot that sings whatever song you like as long as it's Lady in Red by Christa Berg. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird to be looking back on this now, isn't it? But it is it was um you know, it did provide a much needed supplementary income for struggling music journalists who, you yes. know, ended up selling them by the plantain box load to one guy from Guildford called Bill. <laughs> and it will it was never cool, was it? I suppose it was cool to the very few prosperous wankers of 1986 mm. who were you know high on deregulation and what have you but it started out as something because it was so expensive it started out as something for only for middle-aged parents and a couple of mm. generations later ended up as something only for middle-aged parents you know completely yes <laughs> thing about cds yes you would hear about them all the time but you know me owning a cd player in 1986 is, is like me owning a pair of hover boots in 1986 <laughs> just wasn't gonna fucking happen yeah, yeah. if you had a cd player in your house it would be on the unit in the living room because it had belonged to dad yeah mm. dad had the control again mm. and when dads have control of pop things go bad yeah <laughs> too right <laughs> and crucially you know you walk in a record shop the cd section i mean yeah. not only is it limited in, in 1986 but the prices you just look at the prices and you just mm. think fuck that the players are prohibitively expensive as well yeah. the price of walkman's has just kind of come down in 86 oh yes point where a lot of us can afford them so yeah it's tapes and records all the way yeah if you're any and it's sort of below the age of 40 basically to my mind the big story of the year in pop was zig zig sputnik and the general reaction <laughs> and rejection of them because mm. you know not only did the enemy take against them with their four million pound for this crap cover but even smash hits who up until then were the champions of the pop and interesting thought they were going around thinking there was some yeah. so you've got an environment where anything even slightly flamboyant and different needs to be taken down a peg or two because it's not really proper music yeah completely i blame noel Edmonds sneering at prince in the previous year's brit awards for all this but i mean you know for an awful lot of us Zig Zig Sputnik, who we heard about before we heard, you know, the the initial flare of excitement about them was reminiscent for me as a pop fan of kind of, oh, I remember them going mental like this about Frankie. Now, Frankie Mm. were exciting and thrilling. When you finally heard the records, they were amazing. Now, much as I dig Love Missile, um, you know, Zig Zig 
weren't in the same league, to be honest with you, in terms of that mm. satisfaction. And consequently, an awful lot of people will have just taken one look at that. And the wedge is in then. Pop's going to be silly yeah. and daft. You stick with Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer, and proper music made by proper people, you know. So. They really were not proper people in the best way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have often said, like, you, you want your pop stars to seem like they've beamed in from elsewhere or come down in a spaceship. And they really... Like, who who is more spaceship, really, than Six Six Sputnik? I saw them, actually, once um, at the Borderline, all of these things that are now one of the many defunct clubs of London. And, you know, they were great. And obviously this is many years after, you know, but it was fucking great. Yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, I think the kids' rejection of Zig Zig Sputnik wasn't the fact that, you know, oh, they were too weird or too underground. It was precisely because it felt like a biz game in itself. Yeah. That when I'm not going to get played by that, you know. But you were already told that it was an enormous hype. Yeah, that's it. Not only by the band themselves, but, you know, this is around the time that all the tabloid newspapers had actual proper pop columnists every day Mm. we were being told how the game was played yeah exactly light was being shone upon magic and fuck that yeah we were being shown the workings basically yes exactly i mean let me stress right now as far as 1986 episodes top of the pops go this ain't that bad Mm. if it's a shit sandwich then at the very least it's an open-faced shit sandwich isn't it (laughs) there is little in the way of cat shit there's some fucking awful Mm. stuff but Mm. you know a lot of it's not that bad is it no but but in general the treatment of pop by this episode is it's a bit like what we were just talking about sort of pop sort of not joked about but but pop denigrated ultimately Mm. in the way this episode is presented and as we'll see as we go through, this, this, this points towards a general kind of denigration of Top of the Pops that lasts for quite a long time. Mm. Brace yourself, pop craze youngsters. We're going in hard. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In the news this week... America drops loads of bombs on Tripoli from British air bases in retaliation for Libya being behind the bombing of a disco in West Berlin, which causes Islamic Jihad to kill three British hostages and kidnap the journalist John McCarthy in Beirut and keep him there for over five years. It also forces Brian Adams to pull out of donating the track Only the Strong Survive to the soundtrack of an upcoming film called Top Gun in disgust. 
The shop spill 1986, an attempt by the government to end the ban on Sunday shopping, is defeated in the House of Parliament and would have to wait until 1994 to come into effect. The government has been coated down by its own MPs for not making the wedding of Nonce Andrew and Fergie a public holiday, describing the move as killjoy and spoil sport. (laughs) In other royal news, it's been announced that Prince Charles is letting a very special competitor in next Sunday's London Marathon nip into Buckingham Palace to have a shower and a nice cup of tea. It's Sir James Vincent Savile OBE. KGSC but then Lucky Jim deserves it writes the Sunday people it was he after all who persuaded the royals to allow the marathon to run along the mall course organiser John Disley said this man Savile has the key to so many doors I just don't know how he does it Ross Davidson Hunky male nurse Andy O'Brien in EastEnders is to be axed from the soap following revelations that he and his on-screen wife Shirley Chilton have been having it off in real life and she's about to walk out on her real-life husband. Rumours of a split hang over the Rolling Stones after Mick Jagger sends telegrams to the other members informing them that he will not be able to tour this year as he'll be working on his second shit solo album. (laughs) But it's definitely Splitsville for Boy George and Alice Temple, the 18-year-old former British BMX champion who were expected to be getting married a month ago, according to the tabloids. But the big news is that Mike Reed will be broadcasting his final Radio 1 breakfast show tomorrow, with Adrian John filling in for a fortnight starting on Monday before Mike Smith takes over for two years. But don't panic, Blue Tulip. He's set to score (laughs) a massive hit in the West End with his musical about John Betjeman. According to John Blake in the Daily Mirror, Andrew Lloyd Webber is thinking about backing it and the likes of Midjor and Steve Harley are fighting to Bagsy a role. I'm really excited, says Mike. Lady Betjeman told me that she thought my music breathed new life into his poems. Sadly, the musical ends up only being performed at assorted charity events, but a CD called Sound of Poetry is released, featuring Harley, Cliff Richard, John Anderson, Gene Pitney, Donovan, David Essex, Captain Sensible, David Grant, Alvin Stardust, and Mike Reed is released. Christ almighty. <laughs> he had so much clout, Mike Reed, simply by being the fucking Radio 1 breakfast DJ. Mm. I've read articles about Top of the Pops where um, there's been guitar playing coming from a dressing room and someone's gone in, mm. and it's virtually half the acts that are appearing in that nice Top of the Pops sitting around listening to Mike Reed playing the guitar and singing at them. Fucking <laughs> I know. On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Suze. On the cover of Smash Hits, The Bangles. On the cover of Record Mirror, The Blow Monkeys. On the cover of Number One, Simon Le Bon on his yacht, which is just pulled into Uruguay and at this moment is still upright. (laughs) The number one LP in the country is Hits 4 by various artists. Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits is at number two because of fucking course it is. 
in America, the number one single is Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. And the number one LP is Whitney Houston by Whitney Houston. So, me dears, what were we doing in April of 1986? Oh, God, I wasn't doing a lot. I mean, I was, I now a teenager, um, still at school horrible little sod really i know i always say that about myself but I, you know i do want to retroactively reach an arm back and just slap me because <laughs> um, i was yeah precocious little sod i mean i a was slap getting on... and then a hug neil surely <laughs> perhaps so did you have specs by then or not i did yeah, oh, yeah. God, yeah. I, i'd been wearing specs since 1979 oh, wow. <laughs> so i was well into it by then obviously um, because you like morrissey yeah of course <laughs> fucking hell. but yeah i mean you know my sister remembers being being an annoying critic at the age of five so golden <laughs> oh, was what I was like then you know when i started discovering my body thanks to things like falcon crest Ooh. so i was quite literally in all senses a little wanker <laughs> um, in 1986 that's all i remember to be honest <laughs> i was just about to turn eight the very day after this episode in fact early birthday treat for you then sarah mm. early birthday treat for me yeah on the massive well I, th- there's different types of massive tellies we had the you know that that type of massive telly um but i I was just glad to be still alive at this point because if i think about it i lived in an extremely dangerous house in that classic 80s style (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't quite a terrace house there was sort of two in the front and uh, and two behind and incredibly steep stairs which i learned to shin up and down like a little monkey because it was my house but whenever any of my little friends came around they would sort of teeter down i would like hold their (laughs) hand because it's like ah you know sort of Mm. vertiginous steps i i definitely nearly set myself on fire once by getting too close to the gas fire in the kitchen in my very flammable pink robe made of fibers unknown to man (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Mm. Uh, my mum made me a swing because there was like for some reason there was a set of outdoor stairs to the first floor for no reason at all mm. and she hung a swing off it it was made out of wood a bit of wood and clothesline and i used to just swing on that so that was oh. it was lucky that i didn't just fly off into infinity from that mm. um, oh man if ever a girl needed a ginger <laughs> tom that spoke like kenny everett <laughs> it was you sarah <laughs> charlie says don't sit on the swing your mum made <laughs> it's not been checked by health and safety but steep staircases i mean when you're a kid you appreciate them mm. but the older you get and the more likely you are to get drunk um they yes. just become a real problem don't they <laughs> steep staircases are fucking brilliant for getting in a sleeping bag and tobogganing down <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I ever did that because it was actually too because they were sort of turn around at the bottom and and no. uh, you know plus so. party drama is good with a steep staircase I've seen people fly down a staircase to pin <laughs> somebody against the wall by their lapels um, <laughs> and jab their finger in their face it was it was fantastic and it wouldn't have happened without the steep staircase. <laughs> Well, I was 17 and uh, still at sixth form, finally getting me arse in gear and re-redoing my O-levels mm-hmm. after six months of walking out of the house, turning round when it was safe and then going back and bunkering in my bedroom for the day. <laughs> I was playing truant mm-hmm. at, at a college that I didn't have to play truant from. I could have just left it. Yeah, yeah. But there was fuck all else to do. I couldn't see myself getting a job. Mm. I look back now and I just think, what the fuck were you doing, man? (laughs) Was I depressed? I don't know. I think I probably was. I became a proper Mm. hermit in any case. Mm. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I had a typewriter and I was doing little bits of writing and stuff Mm. like that. I'd done an American football fanzine, but I think I'd finished that by now. Right. I just had the extended childhood that a lot of people of my age did and still 
people do. Yeah, yeah. You know, being an adult didn't seem like any fun whatsoever. So fuck it. And I feel really guilty about that now because I was still living at my mum and dad's and I was just poncing off them. But I blame Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult if things suggest themselves to you, but you go, well, I'm never going to make a living at that. Yeah. If I'd thought more about it, you know, when I first got into writing and if I hadn't immediately got scooped up by uh, the benevolent melody maker, then, you know, I would have been in a similar sort of position just going... What the fuck? Yeah. Writing when you don't live in London, it just feels like a pie in the sky thing, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. The weird thing is now, of course, 17-year-old kids are kind of being forced, in a sense, to, yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? Yeah. And honestly, if I mean, like you, Al, probably, you know, if I'd have been asked at that point, I would have said fucking astronaut or something. I really did not know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think we benefited from that. And you might have benefited from these uh, six months of basically doing fuck all. Mm. Basically, as a way of making sure that you'd stop doing fuck all, maybe. Yes. Because yeah. I hated my sixth form. It was just like being at school again, but without football mm. or any of the other things that make going to school tolerable. <laughs> Music-wise, due to a combination of being skint and the charts being shit, I'm seriously burrowing into the second-hand record shops now mm-hmm. and i'm still picking up gold from the 60s and 70s because you know why should i spend what was it 10 pound on a cd when i yeah. can pick up sly and the family stone's second album for two pound yeah i'm a couple yeah. of months away from hearing raising hell by run dmc and everything changing but i do remember having my first of many walkmans round about this time so yeah just a, just a period of ice Mm -hmm. Should have been a Smiths fan, really, but I couldn't fucking stand (laughs) Morrissey. (laughs) I just can't see it, man. I just cannot see that at all. So, Pop Craze Youngsters, you know how we go about at this point of the episode. We retreat to the crap room and rip open a box or two and pull out an example of the music press from this very week. And this time, we've gone for the NME, 19th of April, 1986. Would you care to riffle along with me, my dears? Go on, then. Yes, please. On the cover, Test Department. In the news... The big story this week is that Jerry Dammers and Dale Tambo, the son of ANC leader Oliver Tambo, are poised to launch Artists Against Apartheid with, quote, one of the most impressive lineups seen since Band-Aid. Dammers tells the enemy that various big concerts and a benefit record are being planned, and in light of the government's failure to do so, we hope to encourage individuals to impose their own sanctions. For example, stop trading with fascists. Tambo adds that members of Artists Against Apartheid will not play Sunset Air, but they will go and play in a free, non-racial South Africa and be welcomed not only as artists but also as fellow freedom fighters. Among those fellow freedom fighters who have expressed an interest are Simon Le Bon, The Fall, Hugh Masekela, Billy Ocean, The Pogues, Junior Giscombe and Harry Belafonte. Ooh. Ooh. A big shift this year, I think, politically, in terms of people getting into the um, anti-apartheid movement. Mm. Um, you know, because obviously in 1985, Bob Geldof had sorted out world hunger 
Yeah. And, you mm. know, Frankie goes to Hollywood and sorted out nuclear war. So, so mm. yeah, this, this was definitely the, the, the thing of this year. Nob Smeldoff isn't completely <laughs> edged out of this week's do-gooding news, however. He's made an appearance for a slap-up lunch at the Hard Rock Cafe in Covent Garden to give his blessing to the launch of Stars by Hair and Aid. 39 of Metal's heaviest mothers have taken time <laughs> off from their normal pursuit of dipping their dorks into the steaming entrails of freshly slaughtered goats in order to make their contribution to the USA for Africa Foundation, reports Matt Snow. As paparazzi flashed and French fries flew, St. Bob pronounced benediction upon the project while disclaiming any credit for it. Most of that goes to Mistopheles lookalike Ronnie James Dio, who initiated the enterprise and penned the song. Many of the project's contributors are there, including Ted Nugent, Yingui Molstein, and members of Dio, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Queensryche, Wasp, and of course, Spinal Tap. Also in attendance is, quote, Radio on Firebrand Simon Bates. Commendable <laughs> Rock's continued fundraising efforts on the grounds that the Scrooge regimes of the West would be squealing with renewed embarrassment, having hoped the fad would die down. Oh, you see, they are caring, considerate persons, not just thrash metal fans. <laughs> I've never heard that. Is it any good, Neil? Oh, it's crap. It, no, Is it's it? rubbish. It's rubbish. Don't bother. I mean, even Sophia, who loves all of those names that you just mentioned, uh, yeah, don't go for it. It's no good. The thing is, every one of the people involved in that could legitimately do the tonight, thank God it's them instead of you line. <laughs> oh, they must have been fighting over it. <laughs> in gig news, the Beastie Boys have had to drop out of their support act on the big Audio Dynamite tour because they've all caught colds. Pete Shelley is back on the road after a long post-Buzzcox absence. Doctor and the Medics kick off their new Messiahs tour to coincide with the release of their new single, a cover of Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. And there's new national tours from AHA, America's Rudest Rock Act, The Butthole Surfers, Ray Charles, Patti LaBelle, Pauline Murray, in excess, Sonic Youth, The Go-Betweens, The Mission, and Queen. It's a mere week before the Smiths release their new LP, The Queen Is Dead, but the big Smiths news this week is that bassist Andy Rourke has fucked off out of it. His replacement is Craig Gannon, one-time member of Aztec Camera and well-known session musician, says the NME, promising that on the 20th of May, the Smiths will play the whistle test live, featuring their new lineup and songs from the new LP. Shame they couldn't have got rid of the frontman, really, but never mind. Finally, under the headline, wash these scum off the streets, we're informed that a new police training manual issued by California Union City Police Department has punk rock and heavy metal firmly in its sights. The manual, entitled Punk Rock and Heavy Metal, The Problem, One Solution, lists Van Halen, Rush, Husker Du, Ozzy Osbourne and Wasp as deserving of censorship, claiming that such bands are likely to be used as a form of rebellion against the government. The manual 
which those friendly neighbourhood Union City cops recommend should be given to any parent having problems with their rock and rolling offspring, also cites publications as Cream and Hit Parader as the mind camp of the new generation, <laughs> likening rock activity to that of Adolf Hitler's brown shirts. No wonder Debbie Harry had those Union City blues, quips Fred Della. <laughs> Imagine being in an American heavy metal band and not being listed in that manual. You'd be oh, yeah, well you'd be fucked up. <laughs> oh, man, the kids only want to rock. Wasp. Fucking hell. So has been trying to play me Wasp of late. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not gone well. <laughs> in the interview section, well, Billy Bragg has just returned from a tour of East Germany organised by the youth section of the local Communist Party and he's keen to tell Danny Kelly all about it. It turns out the tour was instigated after Bragg was approached in the toilets at a folk club in Edinburgh and asked to play East Berlin's 16th Political Songs Festival. Oh, that old fucking chestnut. <laughs> I followed a very Western-looking gent accompanying five or six singers on the piano, he reveals. They did this real bouncy-flouncy number, like Bugs Fizz or Brotherhood of Man, and I was thinking, aye, aye, the commie vision song contest but later i heard their song translated and the verses were entirely composed of the text of mikhail gorbachev's speech promising to rid the world of nuclear weapons by the year 2000 fantastic yeah less embarrassing probably than sexuality by billy bragg which yes. is a song i still can't listen to meanwhile paisley park acolyte sheila Ree is in town to promote a love bazaar which results in a sit down with gavin martin she immediately gets all giggly when asked if the song about having it off in a limo and on a bed of flowers is autobiographical and stresses that she's never had it off with Prince and they've only been friends. The rest of the interview shuts down quickly, especially when Martin asks her, what do you dislike most about America? Sheila gives me an incredulous, quavering look. Dislike about America? That's why I said, nothing. Oh, come on. No, I like America. There must be something. No, I like everything. People, some of them must annoy you, says Martin. No, I like everyone. <laughs> Blissfully bland in the all-American state of grace is celebrity. Sheila's E may be for excitement, electric and effervescent, but look a little further and you'll find E is for empty-headed too, writes Martin. Oh, a bit harsh. Yeah, a bit harsh. I mean, that really sounds like she's kind of like, there's a lot of things there and she feels like she can't say any of them. Not even, like, if if she starts talking about how uh, the hot dogs are bad, then she'll just end up on a full-on rant about how extraordinarily racist it is. And she just, (laughs) she's not going to do that to Gavin Martin of the Enemy at this time. So, you know, and her brain just shorts out. I don't know, I'm just speculating. Maybe Maybe she did just like everything about America and you know it's like who the fuck are you you limey bastard yeah yeah David Quantic has an equally confrontational chat with Susie Sue and Steve Severin in a West End tea room about the new Banshees album Tinderbox Susie is looking at me very 
politely. Severin is looking at a teapot. I've just told them that I think Tinderbox is an album whose only distinguishing mock is that it sounds like Susie and the Banshees and it has no thrill or excitement to it. That kind of argument doesn't really penetrate because it's been said of every album since The Scream, says Susie, before Quantic accuses the band of being afraid to take risks. Severin raises his eyes above teapot level. It's just basically an album of really strong songs, and that's all we wanted to do, as opposed to being the banshees zooming off in one direction or another. It was all done to be one complete overall album. Okay, so you've made a nice complete album, a nice complete staid, unadventurous album that's incredibly same says Quantum. <laughs> People say you're all dried up. Severin gives me one of the most extraordinary looks I will ever see. Suze just smiles at me pityingly. Mm. There's a lot of spikiness, isn't there? That's very spiky. Have you ever done an interview where you, you basically started it by saying, well, you're shit, aren't you? What the fuck? Your latest album's fucking cat shit, mate. As an opening interview, Gambit, I mean, I don't have the bravery to do that kind of thing. No. It's kind of revealing, in a sense, that the story with these bands has gone. Yeah. They've come up, and now they're just other bands, you know, just bringing albums out, just like every other mm. band. And it's kind of, there's, there's nothing to snag. So, yeah, a lot of these interviews seem to be getting a bit spiky. Mm. Uh, I mean, I would just have, have died I would have just yeah. like, like, well, yeah. Sarah, go in there. And I mean, no one, to, to be fair, no one ever told me to like go in there and, and you know, say, uh, yeah, what have you got to say for yourself? This album ain't all that, is it really? Are you, what, what do you think you're doing? Are you pop stars or what? <laughs> and I, I could not have done that. I would have just gone, I'm going to lie here on the floor quietly and die next to the bin. I just, no, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have done it. I think there's there's a way to do that and to, to get a response. But I don't know what response Dave Quantic would have expected here, really. I can't tell whether it's balls or just arrogance. I mean, I just would not be able to do that at all. And, mm. and I've been given advice by other journalists, you know, that if, if somebody, say, dries up during an interview or they're not really giving you much you know get spiky get confrontational start calling mm. them shit <laughs> but honestly if an interview's going badly for me that's it i'll just call it a day I'll, I'll lie and i'll say yeah i've got enough cheers would you even have been able to do that by the time you bowled along in the 90s oh i think i would have and i think there were people who did um when i when, when i started but i could never do that i mean because interviews just always terrified me anyway i always yeah. just wanted them to be a conversation that went okay mm. so so this idea of starting an interview you know sitting down with a band and the new album saying your album shit i mean i just don't have the cojones yeah. to do that i don't believe that you know you have to go in and kiss everyone's ass no. i ended up um one, one of the best features i ever did ended up being with the cardigans because they were just knackered and just like oh mm. you know and they've been going for for long enough that they were just kind of tired in that very particular way which i sort of encapsulate a bit just like the ennui of the um yeah. the long-term band i suppose which is an experience that is that is really common just like yeah what what are we they're tired of talking about themselves mm. that was the reason why I, I didn't like doing interviews a lot of the time is because i was like poking people to go go on get be enthusiastic like trying to get people to be enthusiastic when they're just really tired mm. and they've yeah. said all this stuff before and, you know, it's like, oh, so it, it can be so joyless. I mean, I don't want to be ungrateful. I met some great people, but not under the best circumstances. Mm. Mm. You know. And for fuck's sake, they've put a new album out. They haven't fucking shut down libraries or something. They're not politicians. <laughs> <laughs> the confrontational interview is, uh, I don't know, It kind of sometimes it works. 
if you're Stephen Wells, then it's fucking great. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. other people, it's just like, oh, don't go them, mate. Just, I don't know. Yeah. Take them to Legoland or something. Oh, fucking <laughs> Don't fucking say that out. Oh. But no, I mean, the thing is with confrontational interviews like this, I, I, I agree completely. Swells was amazing at them. But with things like this, bands are just going to go into that default mode of defending yeah. themselves. And they're going to say the same stuff, really. Yeah. Whereas perhaps suggesting in an interview in a kind of vaguely positive question... Mm. That oh you know you're running out of ideas. I mean, there's ways of doing it without you know pointing fingers if you like. Yeah, and I think you can let bands hang themselves a little bit more than you having to sort of swing the noose. When I used to advise people about giving interviews and stuff, I, I'd always say, well, yeah, it's all right to say, well, what's the point of this? Mm. Why would anyone be interested in this? And they'd say, you can't say that; it'll offend them. And say, no, 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 you're giving them a full toss that they can just whack out of the fucking cricket ground. Mm, mm. It's just a good way of getting people to say, this is what I believe in and this is what I've done. Yeah. But sometimes it doesn't work. I just, Susie's not no. going to respond to that, is she? No. I mean, ultimately, you're absolutely right. The most important question, really, to ask anyone that you're interviewing is, why are you doing this? Yeah. There's ways of getting to that. I mean, starting off an interview with your new album, Shite, yeah, that's not really going to go anywhere. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Witter links up with George Clinton about his new LP, R&B Skeletons in the Closet, and how committed he is to remaining a creative nuisance, while revealing that he's been working with Sly Stone, Prince and Vanessa Williams, and ensuring that the covers of new P-Funk releases will give you bathroom reading for the next month. But I may have to draw something new, what with all this Reagan Gaddafi bullshit. (laughs) In a tedious Bieber cop feature, cover stars test department tell Neil's current editor mm, that their new Ministry of Power show slash happening is an attack on the complete mediocrity we see around us. Maybe 50 years from now, people will look back on this time and all they'll see is an endless repetition of the same programme, the same bleach musicians playing the same instruments and following the same patterns. Oh, nearly 35 years he's kind of right isn't he yeah yeah it's odd that test department are on the cover to be honest with you this isn't the liar for the enemy Mm. this is the sort of thing that melody maker would absolutely start doing in about 87 just putting weird bands on the cover Mm. but it's odd for enemy to do this and in the thrill section there's a small interview with jackson brown who feels the need to tell the enemy about his current political inclinations brown tells john mccready that his appetite for endless introspection has diminished somewhat and snarls fuck it u.s policy in central america is fundamentally dishonorable reagan is making it all up the cia are tapping my phone and they're the richest terrorist organization in the world blimey Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Singles reviews. Well, in the chair this week is reggae correspondent Penny Real. So naturally, she commences by sifting through the slew of Jamaican releases that are cashing in on Supercat's pioneering boops cut, which uses the highly popular techniques. <sighs> Rhythm. <laughs> Not getting into it, Sarah. You win. What? The, hang on. Am I? I, I was. I, I thought about this the other day, and it's like because I know I'm going to pronounce it either. But like, am I any whiter than you, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who's if you're going to rank the the chart music crew in order of whiteness? Like. <laughs> 
These include Sugar Minots' John Boops, Michael Prophet's No Call Me John Boops, Anthony Red Rose's Me No Want No Boops, King Kong's <laughs> Don't Touch My Boops, and Junie Ranks's Cry For Me Boops. The term <laughs> boops apparently refers to the kind of man sweet on the ladies, she helpfully points out. Uh. Sadly, they missed out on boops upside your head. These <laughs> boops were made for walking. And boops, I did it again. <laughs> There's a cluster of singles released by women this week, so Real naturally lumps them all together under the heading Let's Talk It Over in the Ladies' Room. Another Day Comes by Kiki D is dismissed as an ugly, monotonous and cliche-ridden dirge with a nod in the direction of Eurythmics, performed with what Kiki D probably likes to think of as passion or a prolonged screech to you and me. Live to Tell by Madonna gets equally short shrift. The law of diminishing returns sets in as the singer's thin, sulky voice fails to rescue a ponderous ballad from ignominy. And Bangles commit the cardinal error when the song goes on too long with if she knew what she wants. I fucking hate Live to Tell. Do you? Yeah. You, mean you really hate Madonna, do. so like... When I was bunkered up in my bedroom, I used to listen to Laser 558, and Live to Tell was on all the fucking time, and it's... Ugh. It's very glum. Yes. It's a very glum song. Squeezer's still knocking about, and Real observes that their new single, King George Street, is like arriving in Greenwich on the number 54 bus on a rainy Saturday evening, having spent the previous couple of hours huddled along 3,000 other diehards inside Charlton Athletic's capacious stadium at the Valley. A somewhat specific reference that. Billy Graham's Going to Heaven, the debut single by Proto House Martins The Locks is Canterbury speed rap notable for the line Bring Your Money to QPR and the flip side Maggie 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 which borrows a Led Zeppelin chorus to preach the wholly admirable sentiment Maggie 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 at 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 <laughs> Your Wildest Dreams by the Moody Blues is vapid and silly. Tongue Tied by Kenny Charles similarly embraces vapidity sometime before it ends. It's Just a Matter of Time by Glen Campbell lets cornball strings and production intrude to turn the whole thing into a piece of indigestible smolts. Lost Some Blues by La Tentat is more of a whimper of distress than an actual song. An Apocalyptic by Twinks is sing along a metal that might find some adherence at a biker cafe on the A127, but real doubts even this. Yeah, Twinks is a, a heavy metal band name that's not aged well, has Ooh, it? Yeah, it has, has it. <laughs> But I mean, it's telling, isn't it? Think about all these singles that Penny's writing about. Mm. If you looked at that singles page and somebody asked you, you know, what's going on in 86 then? I mean, this page is kind of like, yeah, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. It's just a load of sort of stuff with no centre to it, really. Um, there doesn't feel like there's any sort of prevailing thing happening. Yeah, and there's a lot of avoiding of more chart-friendly releases this week, I'll be bound. Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, Penny, Penny had a, a, a real sort of reggae focus. Mm. I mean, I used to do the same when I did the singles. I just used to fill it full of hip-hop. Yay. It was your, your one chance to have an, a say in an editorial direction, in a sense. Spray your mouth. <laughs> indeed, indeed. In the LP review section, the main review this week is given over to Tinderbox by Susie and the Banshees, and Kath Carroll is distinctly underwhelmed. 
The band themselves, apart from judging it brilliant, see it as a coming together for the new look Banshees as they break in new guitarist John Valentine Carruthers. This explains the overall impression of a group suspended in aspic. The tone of the album would suggest a group forging on in search of an inspirational oasis while surviving on unsatisfactory resources. When they get to the bottom, will they go back to the top? Let's hope so. Mm. The Art of Noise have put out their second LP, Invisible Silence, and is rewarded with a zany conceptual slagging from Nick Coleman. Shorn of Paul Morley's wiggly words, the art of noise are a slightly different proposition, writes Coleman. You see, I have made this amazing discovery. The art of noise's new LP only answers to the name Kevin. Call him Geraldine or Leopold or Glenn Hoddle or Mr. Art of Noise LP and all you'll get is a sullen round silence. But call him Kevin and he is yours forever. He's pretty undemanding, Kevin. Take him to see absolute beginners and he sits there quite unmoved in his nice jacket. Ask him to show you his nipples and all you get is a round black stare. Kevin is the beast, the apocalypse, the collective unconsciousness. He is not a rock star. Although he would never admit it, his favourite TV programme is Tomorrow's World, and he delights in the notion that in the 21st century, scientists say, all music will be constructed in this way. Really, Kevin is a boring, pretentious little git, but, and I'll tell you this for nothing, he does make my stereo sound bloody expensive. Mm. Cool, how we've moved on since this is a toe-tapper that will get the brain working. (laughs) (laughs) There are no new Kevins being made, you know. There's no new Kevins. No. Lots of new Joshes, but no new Kevins. Are we post-Kevin? We're fully in the post-Kevin era. No, definitely, yeah. Talking of bland, non-pop star names, Danny Kelly has got hold of Slang Tang by Wayne Smith, which is finally out over here on Green Sleeves. Among his contemporaries and rivals, he must have been well to the rear of the queue for names. By comparison with Tenosaur, Nitty Gritty and Coco T, Wayne Smith sounds like a cattle-browed Division 3 centre-forward. Pleasant enough, but too familiar to shock you a shock, too homogenous to sting you a sting. Slang Tang is very much a case of too little, too late. What Danny Kelly didn't know then, but probably knows now because he's well into his reggae, that Wayne isn't even his real name. What's his real name? His real name is Ian Smith, which oh no God. reggae artist is going to use, even in 1986. No, no. He, he might as well call himself Eugene Terra Blanche. <laughs> Vic Goddard's debut solo LP, T-R-O-U-B-L-E, which he recorded two years ago with the jazz band Working Week, has finally been picked up and put out by Rough Trade, and the legend has trouble of his own in understanding why. It has about as much to do with the noisy guitars, immaculate out-of-tune vocals and harsh pop tones of Subway Sect as the new Style Council single has to do with In The City. 
<laughs> Matt Snow, while apparently singing the praises of Stop Pretending by LA girl band The Pandoras, still manages to call them these broads, says the record farts and chews gum at one and the same time and signs off with the line, suck on that, Ziggy Ziggy Freudnik. Circuses and bread by Durati Column might be potentially damaging to the mental stability of tearful O and A level students who listen to this sort of stuff during their stress-filled study breaks, according to Donald McRae. A new Liverpool band High Five have a debut LP called Down in the No-Go, but Mick Sinclair doesn't reckon it or them. I doubt that the High Five really lack a sense of purpose, but there is no evidence of it here. They seem to take half an hour to say very little and make recording an LP sound like a dull chore rather than an adventure or a challenge, veiling virtually everything in lukewarm rhythm guitar dabs and generally uninspired playing. Oh, straight to the record shop we go, pop craze youngsters. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Nice to see the legend in there, mm. my future editor yeah. and uh, teaching colleague, is it? Goes. Oh, really? Yeah, it's Jerry, isn't it? It's Jerry Fattery, Everett Tripp, ah. is the legend. That's where he started. Is this a self-declared sobriquet? Oh, yeah, I mean, he bought that single on Creation, didn't he, under that name, of The yeah, Legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He occasionally cycles back to it amongst his many personas. <laughs> yeah, he was just up the road from me uh, on Sunday playing the Songs of the Fall on the piano at the Walthamstow Trades Hall. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I hear it went well. Yeah, my friend went. In the gig guide, well, David could have seen fine young cannibals at the Town and Country Club, Depeche Mode at Wembley Arena, James Brown at Wembley Arena, The Godfathers at the Marquee, Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band at Brentford Red Lion, or then Jericho at the 100 Club. That ain't right. Then Jericho at the 100 Club. Fuck that. What do you mean? Fuck that because the 100 Club's too small? Well, no, because the <laughs> club, you just think, oh, punk and all mm, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Then Jericho, not allowed to go there. Just imagining David's face watching Gen- Then Jericho. Mm. Gen Jericho was Gen Jericho. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's the tribute band, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Taylor could have treated himself to Jennifer Rush at Birmingham Odeon, Spaceman 3 at the Birmingham Mermaid, Big Audio Dynamite at Birmingham Portland, or trekked out to the lair of the Wolfroonians to see her shirts at Wolverhampton Cleveland Arms. <laughs> Neil could have seen Salem Foundations at Coventry Red House, FM at the General Wolf, the go-betweens at Cov Pole, and fuck all else. Mm, city of culture. Sarah could have seen Big Country at Sheffield Town Hall or Pulp at Leeds Adelphi, but would probably be best off checking out Bingo Reg and the Screaming Genies, backed by Stuttering Jack and the Heart Attack, <laughs> down at Chesterfield Top Rank. My faves. Al could also have seen Big Country at Nottingham Concert Hall, the Redskins at Chivago's, Twisted Sister at Nottingham Concert Hall, the Blow Monkeys at Rock City, and wound up the week with Big Audio Dynamite also at Rock City. I can't remember seeing uh, the Redskins at Chivago's. Oh, right. Yes, Chivago's was a right fucking Gary and Sharon place. Was it? (laughs) <laughs> Certainly not the place that the Redskins would have been at. Mm. Used to be a venue. Little Richard played there in 1972. 
Blimey. Yeah, it's it's now a Taco Bell. <laughs> and Simon could have seen the temptations at Cardiff St. David's Hall. Attila the stockbroker at Kevin Coed Rugby Club in Merthyr Tidville and wound up a thrilling week of pop intensity watching Shirley Bass's two-night residency at Cardiff St. David's Hall. In the letters page, well, Stephen Wells has drawn the short straw this week and the main topic of conversation is the piece about the Redskins having a lovely time in Moscow in a recent issue. But Ernst Vestergaard of Exeter is not impressed. It's blasé and flippant for the Redskins to say that they are aware and conscious of their philosophical weakness, but they seem to ignore this and blunder on. Exactly what form of corrupted Marxism are they peddling? I use the term corrupted Marxism as I believe that this is what the Redskins represent. Surely the reason the Redskins have to play gigs in the middle of nowhere is because they have become another band to be manipulated and exploited by the music industry. They have become the cliches that they so obviously despise. Apparently the Redskins have been on the verge of packing it in, yet they haven't. Why not? Because they still enjoy preaching to the converted despite their awareness of their political confusion and negation. Is that why? Where were you in 1917, Christine? (laughs) Yeah, where was David Stubbs when the rainforests were burning as well? That still needs to be answered. DMP from Manchester joins the pylon when he writes, Can we take them seriously? I suspect not. From where this punter stands, behind the short hair and Diana Ross sing-song, lies nothing but regurgitated cliches and cast-off Weller and Bragg lyrics. Do music and politics mix? Yes, when done with a bit of imagination. Something the Redskins probably don't seem to think matters these days, but to your average punter, take it from me, it does. (laughs) Oh, poor Redskins, man. Mm, you can you can sort of hear the the immense rustling of a lot of black cardigans in this letters page. Mm, yes. <laughs> the other thing in the previous issue that got on readers' tits, a feature on the Federation of Conservative Students, is commented on by P. Ellis of Glasgow under the headline "Hooray Hitlers." <laughs> Pleasant reading the piece on young Tories. What a joy to read the absolute shite coming from these posers. Nice to know that while the NUS and Labour clubs are trying to fight racism, these wankers are fighting other students. Any attempt that's made to restrict the working class should be fought every inch of the way, beginning with organisations like the FCS, whose views and racist ideas should be stomped out. Fred Titmus would be appalled. <laughs> After reading Animal Halter's FCS article in the April 5th issue of NME, I pondered this question. Why are there not so many musicians who are outwardly right-wing and all racist? Says CJ Cunningham from Manchester. I can tell you why. Because the roots of 90% of pop music originated from foreign styles. Not only Boer, he's not racist, but Screwdriver's Oi music are derivative forms of R&B. Stuff the FCS and their pseudo-anarchist crap because this is useless and only keeps the money and power in the hands who have always had it. Just waiting for Noel Gallagher. Yes. 
Speaking of oi... In 1986, Tim from Red Action Under Five's Kilburn nips in to correct some prejudices about the genre. Every time I pick up a music paper, which isn't very often, I find little of interest to read. What I find more upsetting is the middle-class snobbery towards different types of music. I personally like and have been into Oi since the days of Sham, Menace and the Roots, before all the Oi, the bank balance stuff. Does that make me a Nazi? Fuck no. Sure, there are NF elements on the OI scene, but to pay them attention and ignore the rest of it is an insult to all the committed socialists on the scene. And by that, I mean raving commies and not national socialists. End air quotes. It's been left-wing punk skins and herberts who have stood up to the front at gigs. Where are all you trendy lefties then? So what if the so-called godfather of Oi is a scab bastard? That's no reason to slag off Oi as a whole. There was Oi before Bushel and there will be Oi after him. During the miners' strike, Red Action organised a victory to the miners' tour, and it was predominantly punk and skin bands that played. Also, me and my mates have been involved with things like anti-fascist action. You don't have to be a student to be a socialist. To smear all oysters as Nazis is an insult, and just shows you up for the narrow-minded bastards you are. (laughs) The way that starts, you know, that that every time I pick up some music paper, which isn't very often, that's such a, I mean, that's a Twitter thing almost, isn't it? You know, here's how unoffended I am by this thing that you've written. Yeah, (laughs) TLDR. One of the recent topics of conversation in Gasbag, King Kurt and their alleged onstage animal abuse raises its ugly head once again. I would like to reply to the two concerned King Kirk groupies from Essex. You state Kirk do not and have never thrown live or dead animals about on stage. Well, frankly, that's bollocks, writes one of the Cheam and Sutton ex-Kirk crew. I myself saw Kurt at least a dozen times at the 100 Club when they were still a support band and it was not uncommon for the odd rabbit corpse to suddenly appear in (laughs) mid-air. Ask the band about their early performances. Ask Rory about the dead cat he kept in his freezer. And where did the pig's head come from? (laughs) And finally, in more, you can't say that anymore news, John Crowley of South Arrow is furious with the enemy for printing something he doesn't agree with last week you printed a letter from an ulster unionist exclamation mark i know that you're trying to be anti-trender and printing a letter from an orange man is anti-trender because the ira have always been a very fashionable organization to support but printing correspondence from one of those reactionary swines is just ridiculous as well as boring publications such as yours should be pro ira yours with Margaret Thatcher and the Queen's death very much in mind. John Crowley of South Harrow. Blimey. 
52 pages, 45p. I never knew there was so little decent fucking music in it. God, what a time to be a music journo, 1986. Poor bastards. (laughs) Thin pickings, isn't it? The enemy are firmly into their ignore the charts at all times uh, policy, and it's... It's not working, is it's it? It's not working, because they're just going to end up with Susie on the cover every three months, The Cure on the mm. cover every three months, and it's just they're just going to be completely sort of beholden to the, the cycle of the music industry, um, yeah. you know? Um, but it, it says a lot about 86, in fact, that this issue is so thin. Although that letter about King Kurt did remind me of Hans Moretti, the freaky magician on the Paul Daniels show, used to chuck alligators right. about. So that was a nice memory. Live ones? Yeah, yeah. He got massive what, complaints. What, juggle about. them? Yeah, no, there was a, there, he hypnotised them. Right. And then he'd start sort of swinging them around. And there were massive complaints on points of view the following week. I can imagine. Um, because it was animal cruelty. He was a really disturbing magician, Hans Moretti. He used to do things that were just frankly not suitable for Paul Daniels's slot. <laughs> I remember he did a thing where he... Where he uh, me, me, me and my sister were watching it and um, he came on and he got a knife out and just started stabbing himself in his arm right. and all his blood came flying out. Me and my sister were like, what the fuck? Um, this was like <laughs> 7.30 on a Saturday, you know? And I think he got complaints about that, but he kept on getting invited back. Maybe he hypnotised them. Well, exactly. Yeah, And no. started swinging them around. Probably kept being invited back to Paul Daniels's sex dungeon as well. <laughs> yeah, he was part magician, kind of part at least a Crowley type figure. He was a bit disturbing. Lovely. But yeah, 52 pages, enemy. I mean, I it's thin as fuck, isn't it? And there's not much in it. So what was on telly today? Well, BBC One kicks off at six in the morning with a 50-minute CFAX data blast. And then Frank Boff nips out of his sex dungeon to join <laughs> Debbie Greenwood for breakfast time. At 20 past nine, it's another CFAX data blast. Then play school. Then a 40-minute CFAX data blast. The afternoon news and regional news in your area. Pebble Mill at One offers sewing advice, a musical tribute to Brighton, and celebrates the last ever episode of Pop Black. Then it's Hokey Cokey with Carol Chell and Don Spencer, then racing from Cheltenham, and they close down for 12 minutes before roaring back with regional news in your area. Then Floella Benjamin climbs out of her dustbin and travels back in time to the era of knights and damsels in distress in Leon 5, followed by Laurel and Hardy getting involved with the American Civil War with Southern Hospitality. Johnny Briggs attempts to win the school rabbit for the holidays, hopefully not give it to King Kurt. (laughs) Ulysses 31's annoying kids accidentally travel 5,000 years back in time. Then it's John Craven's news round and Simon Groove manages to get his 1965 Jaguar done up into a racing car at Silverstone on our licence fee in Blue Peter. Robbie Vincent and Angrad Mayer force some nans to do some aerobics in the Keep Fit show Go For It, followed by the news at six, and they've just finished regional news in your area. BBC Two commences at five to seven with some throbbing open university action and then closes down for an hour and 40 minutes before coming back with a five-hour CFAX mega blast. At 2pm, it's the British premiere of Le Fin du Jour, the 1939 French film about a retirement home for actors that's fallen into disrepair. 
Then it's show business, the 1944 Eddie Cantor musical about the Ziegfeld Follies, followed by a new summer air, then a repeat of the 40 Minutes documentary Johnny Oddball, the follow-up to the 1975 documentary Minna about an 11-year-old serial arsonist who was incarcerated in an assessment centre. Then it's Young Musician of the Year, and they're currently showing Discovering Birds with Tony Soper. ITV opens up at a quarter past six with Good Morning Britain, with Claire Rayner having a good snuffle around the subject of underage sex. Then it's regional news in your area, followed by The Abominable Snowman, the 1957 Peter Cushing film about the titular Yeti. Then some cartoons... After a repeat of Fireball XL5, it's about Britain, Raggy Dolls, Puddle Lane and the Sullivans, followed by News at One and regional news in your area. After the drama series Hotel, Shaking Crossroads, it's Home Cookery Club, Daytime, University Challenge, even more regional news in your area, and Sons and Daughters, the show where some Australians realise that love is very strange, as it can come and go. (laughs) It can also happen when you're young or old, don't you know? So I hear. After a repeat of this morning's Raggy Dolls, it's James the Cat, Basil's Joke Machine, starring the Vulpine BBC refugee with the felt teeth, then Bellamy's Bugle, a repeat of Super Gran, and Connections, the quiz show they used to bung on whenever Blockbusters was all there with Sue Robert. After the news at 5.45 and even more regional news in your area, Caff Fellows disgraces herself at the Hathaways in Crossroads and they've just started Emmerdale Farm, where Joe Sugden and Tubby Turner fight like rats in a bag for the top job at North Yorkshire Estates. Channel 4 has its usual doss in bed until 2.15 when they bring us the thrills and excitement from the House of Lords yesterday in their Lordship's house. Then it's two hours of racing from Newmarket, then Countdown, then it's This England, the 1941 propaganda film about an American tourist who visits the village of Cleveland and discovers how many times its residents told foreign invaders to fuck off. After that, it's the documentary's autobiography of a jeep and to the shores of Iwo Jima, and they've just started Channel 4 News. Anything jumping out there, me dears? Well, mostly I'm thinking of you stuck at home bunking off. Yeah. And this is what you've got, man. No wonder you were Um, fucking depressed. I know. Fucking ramble, isn't it? Nothing really jumping out, but I do now have the theme from Sons and Daughters in my head, probably for the rest of the day. So, uh, thanks for that. (laughs) All right, then, pop crazed youngsters. It is time to go way back to April of 1986. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget... They've been on top of the pops more than we have. on Thursday, April the 17th, 1986, and top of the pops, midway through its grim slog through the 80s, spelt A-Y-D-E-E-Z, is once again in crisis. 
This particular malaise began in September of 1984 when Michael Grade, the former director of programmes at London Weekend Television who went on to work in America, took over as controller of BBC One and immediately started to fuck about with it. He scrapped beauty contests on the BBC because they were outdated and sexist. He attempted to cancel Doctor Who because he thought it was too expensive, too violent, and he didn't reckon it, but later on caved into pressure and brought it back 18 months later. And he got into a huge row with Thames Television when they put in a bid for the ninth series of Dallas and threatened to spin out the remaining unscreened episodes the BBC owned all the way to 1989 to fuck up ITV's screenings. <laughs> but most importantly for the pop-crazed youngsters, he decided to piss about with the running time and scheduling of BBC One's primetime weekday programming, hammering everything down into 30 minutes in an attempt to spoiler ITV's output because that's what American TV did and shoehorn his new pet projects Wogan and EastEnders Although neither are being run on Thursday nights as yet, Top of the Pops put out its final regular 40-minute episode on Valentine's Day 1985, and although the show managed to claw back five minutes here and there in the spring of that year, and even ran a 40-minute show in July in order to pad out the schedule in between the last of the series of Little and Large and the new series of The Laughter Show with Les Dennis and Dustin G, it's been a 30-minute show ever since. And over a year later, Top of the Pops and Michael Hurl is still trying to come to terms with it. Panel, we've discussed this before, but we have to bring it up again. Top of the Pops should always be at least 40 minutes, don't you think? Oh, without a doubt, I think. And Mm. sadly, in this period, Top of the Pops just starts being seen as this movable kind of pop feast yeah that always has to be chivied around the kind of general mainstream primetime slots yeah so yeah eastenders is massively important the competition to eastenders from emmerdale is massively important in mm. in, in this kind of reschedule it, it reaches a nadir this kind of shuffling about at top of the pops years later i mean i think mm. that the low point is in june 1996 when it gets shunted to friday night because of euro 2016 yeah, yeah. never finds its way back after that a real fatal move euro 96 was so damaging in the long run for everything wasn't it ultimately yeah it was a real fatal move for top of the pops definitely you know shifting it to friday night my god it lost its importance as a show to sit down and take pop in with the family and it Mm. just became this more kind of this ghastly kind of lifestyle background choice to kind of accompany pre-drinking yeah grade's treatment of top of the pops is just another reminder that pops usually denigrated on telly looked down upon in comparison to other programming the bbc would never dare to move or interfere with the time slots of, I don't know, Grandstand or Question Time or, mm. or Come Dancing or Paul fucking Daniels or Songs of Bloody Praise. But, you know, Top of the Pops, who cares? It's for kids, right? Yeah. And yet, if I th- was thinking of telly from this era that actually had a formative changing influence on a huge amount of British culture and left an irrefutable document of that culture, it would be pop telly. And that movability, as I'm sure we'll come to discuss, is possibly a product of increased competition as well. Mm. If you've got competing shows, then it suggests that your pop show, which used to pretty much be the only pop show, is now this kind of just this counter that can be moved around the board to maximum advantage. Because after all, kids can deal with that. They're not going to be writing letters of complaint into to points of view no. or, or either controllers of the BBC schedule. So, they they yeah. might do some really good drawings, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
coloured in felt tip. But yeah, this is the first sort of sign that Top of the Pops that was for so long just an essential part of Thursday night and an essential part of the time slot it occupied. Um, mm. Both what followed it and also what came before it. It's just this movable little bean counter, if you like, that yeah. the schedulers can shift around. And it, and it was, I remember it being aggravating at the time, especially the shift down to the 30 minutes. Because yeah. what we'll see later on, in particular components of this show, is just what a bloody rush it feels mm. in, in a really, I think, damaging way. Yeah. But on the other hand, to someone of Sarah's age, which was seven going on eight, seven o'clock's better, isn't it? Yeah, it was Something probably... to watch before bed time <laughs> it was probably better for me um at the time you know but i think this whole thing is exemplary of a sort of greater malaise mm. that persists to this day which is the sort of british establishment disdain for popular culture mm. like there are people who get blue plaques and people who don't you know and i mean i was saying the other day about the rainbow theater in uh, finsbury park where Everyone played, and now it's an evangelical church yeah, where they'll yeah. cure your AIDS if you give them your car, mm, allegedly. Mm. A terrific venue in a brilliant spot that was just let go, and this sort of thing happens a lot. Yeah. I think it's all of a piece, you know, just the kind of, oh, it doesn't really matter, that's the sort of frivolous mm. stuff for kids that isn't prized at all that is really persistently undervalued mm. <laughs> i don't think that's ever going to change to be honest and so that's a twinkle of that unpleasant stuffy mm. you know I, it's, oh, it's such a cliche it's really depressing yeah yeah i mean it, there's a sense that almost the rest of the schedule is kind of rolling its eyes at top of the pop so is that still there let's just tuck it in and get it over with yeah which is a real shame and, and it you know the schedule change i could cope with but but like i say the loss of 10 minutes it's not so much that oh no that's two less great songs that were going to be on because they're probably going to be shite mm. anyway but it means that the presentation and the whole style of the episodes i think changes a little bit yeah. and it becomes yeah this half hour kind of headache mm. rather than a show for pop fans really yeah. furthermore the so-called mainstream media has once again caught the gamey tang of blood in its nostrils and the knives are out once again for our favourite Thursday evening pop treat. Here's a sample, chaps, of the coverage throughout this year, mainly from the Dublin Evening Herald for some reason. <laughs> Here's a piece from January of this year, written by Thomas Myler, entitled Top of the Pops, Hits Bottom Note. Is it all over for Top of the Pops? That's the question the music business was asking last week after the geriatric show plunged to an all-time low. A single play on the programme used to virtually guarantee a hit, but research shows that half the records featured on last week's show dropped down the charts afterwards. Well, we, we know that happens all the fucking yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. And viewing figures have fallen to a new low of eight and a half million. <gasps> Not fucking bad. I know. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> BBC bosses are so worried about the problem that they are thinking of introducing a new look twice weekly top of the pops that would allow them to cover new acts who have not yet made the top ten. It has definitely lost its grip, former presenter Tony Blackburn claims. It's out of date, too short at 30 minutes, the DJs are too old, and I think producer Michael Hurl might like to retire. Mm. <laughs> A month later, Patrick Murray piles in with the headline, Top of the Pops, Urgh! A bore. 
I have given up watching Top of the Pops. I admit that age could be responsible. So too could disco music, that dreadful sound that some people seem to like. It's 1986, mate. Fucking hell. (laughs) But I honestly believe that it has more to do with the fact that Top of the Pops has gone to the dogs. There was a time when you could tune in and be sure of seeing the acts performing their hits in full. Now, for some reason, the long-serving producer Michael Hurl has decided that one-third or a quarter of a song is ample. It is annoying, so much so that the programme is no longer enjoyable to watch. But then again, maybe I'm getting old. (laughs) Surely not. I'm fucking old. (laughs) He is getting old. I'm slightly with him, though, in terms Mm. of the... The, the cutting into and the talking over of songs um, yeah. in this new 30-minute format. It is a difficult watch yeah, yeah, at yeah. times. And a week later, presumably after watching this episode, Murray returned to the prone body of Top of the Pops and got some more kicks in when he wrote... <laughs> What has happened to Top of the Pops? Is it just age? Have I got it all wrong? Did I miss something along the way? My memories of Top of the Pops, and believe me, they go back all the way, are of a programme that gave us punters a chance to see our favourite acts performing their hit songs. The programme has simply lost its way. It is quite simply a waste of time. Kill (laughs) it! Stop it, mate. It's not worth it. I mean, the thing is, he seems to be clinging on to memories of Top of the Pops past, Mm. and I don't think that's a reason to mourn what's happening with Top of the Pops. Yeah, I mean, if Top of the Pops was going today and I had to review it, I'd be saying, oh, fuck it, what's all this shit? What's going on? Mm. But I'm supposed to. That's my fucking age. It's not for me. (laughs) I'm not the key demographic, as they say. Mm, It's really irritating when columnists do that kind of, um, you know, is it just me? What's going on? I don't know. (laughs) Who can say? Not me. Like, isn't this part of your job to kind of figure this out? You know, who knows? It's a mystery. Anyway, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) What? Not only that, but Channel 4, who have already run rolled out a swathe of music shows since it started nearly three and a half years ago, are finally coming at the king with the first episode of the chart show. A 45-minute data blast of multi-genre video bittiness, which came out last Friday in the tube slot. The first serious encroachment by the rival channels on top of the Pops' charty patch. Three days from this episode going out, the Observer will run a feature on the new programme and its elk, written by <sighs> Julie Burchill. <laughs> the real dilemma of pop TV is that young people, more than any other viewing group, want to get out. It is because of this call of the wild, or at least spudgy like and space invaders, or get down with the kids, Julie, in 1986, <laughs> that no music programme, not even Top of the Pops, widely believed to be as entrenched a British institution as marriage and Broadmoor, ever makes the top fifty. There was the old line about how the only people who ever saw Tomorrow's World were kids waiting for Top of the Pops, but now they have been separated. Tomorrow's World makes the ratings, while Top of the Pops doesn't. 
Aping the schedule of Ready Steady Go, many of Channel 4's pop programmes are screened on a Friday evening, and there has been an immense amount of C4 pop programmes. ECT and Paintbox, Heavy Metal, Airsay, Interviews, The Other Side of the Tracks, Ponderous Interviews, Max Headroom, Glory-seeking overgrown puppet introducing old videos, Soul Train and Solid Soul, Black Music Shows, effectively blowing two of the three best myths blacks ever had going for them, that they know how to dress and know how to dance, and of course, The Tube. With the tube away for six months, part of its Friday evening slot has been taken over by the chart show, which is basically top of the pops without the bits you found the most irritating. The smarmy DJ presenters and the mime in time saves nine units live acts. Just three quarters of an hour of video clips linked by computer looking graphics. What could go wrong? A lot. Hell is other people's taste in graphics. Between the rewinds and pauses and fast-forwards, you get the usual clips of Prince, Madonna, and the rest of the preening hordes. This is the first (laughs) TV pop show to take the top of the pops line on music, that the people's choice rather than the producer's preference is what matters. Nevertheless, due to the ridiculously dated modernity of the links, this is appalling. What? The weekend starts somewhere else. Oh, Her God. problem with the, um, the chart show is that it's a, a chart show and that it's a pop mm. show. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think she'd be into any pop show other than the tube at this point, probably. No. And that's precisely what was good about the chart show. She almost hinted at it. But for us, the good thing about the chart show is fundamentally that none of us had MTV or cable or anything. Exactly. And it was a little sort of 40-minute slice of what it'd be like to have MTV. To have MTV and not like anything and constantly flick over. Yeah. <laughs> Those bands that didn't have videos and they do some wacky graphic shit with, the, with just a photo of the band, that was always entertaining. And also, don't mm. forget, you know, the chart show. It had those indie charts and those dance charts, which frequently are a crock of shit. But it was, at least they seemed to display an awareness of things away from the charts as well as mm. just what was in the top 40. Yeah, I mean, whatever you were into, you were guaranteed to hear at least 10 seconds of something you liked on the chart yeah. show. So there is that. Yeah, and if you were into particular genres, I mean, I remember with metal, you kind of, mm. once the rock chart was on, you could calculate, like, this isn't going to be on for another three weeks on the chart show. So I won't bother watching it. Um, for another couple of weeks yeah. but then you know you come back so yeah I, I, I like the chart show God Birchall was such a sour old bore wasn't she mm. even when she was young what did she like yeah what do you <laughs> she's the fucking Morrissey of pop music journalism uh, basically <laughs> yeah. what she is if Morrissey would have got a job from all those letters he sent in he would have written exa- I mean him and Birchall they'd have ended up um, you know with their own show on GB News by now oh yeah, yeah and yeah. the thing is with Birchall that copy you read out Al I mean fucking hell she's not a great writer man no not by a long chalk Yahoo for this evening is Gary Davis. We've chanced upon the sexy camel of Radio 1 many a time and oft, and although he's still wedged in between Simon Bates and Steve Wright in the early afternoon slot on weekdays at Radio 1, he's clearly the alpha male of Top of the Pops at this time, in a presenting pool which currently consists of John Peel, Mike Smith, Steve Wright, Janice Long... Bruno Brooks, Peter Powell, Dixie Peach, and Pig Wanker General. Still, in 1986. (laughs) 
This is his 36th appearance, but more importantly, he's the first presenter to go solo for the first time in nearly a year. Only the second time that's happened since the beginning of 1983, when Michael Hurl instigated the doubling up rule on presenters. He's also along with Pat Sharp, Tony Blackburn and Kid Jensen, taken the Murdoch shilling by moonlighting on Sky Channel's music programmes. Not only that, but he got his own pop column in the Sunday Mirror last month, alongside Roland Rat's Rat Chat, and has become that rarest of things, a male top-of-the-pops presenter that some people actually seem to want to have sex with. (laughs) Here's the opening salvo from his first ever column in the Sunday Mirror, entitled Me and My Sexy Fans by the Golden Boy of Pop. Here we go, go, go with the Sunday Mirror's great new pop columnist, Radio 1 disc jockey Gary Davis. Six million listeners tune into his daily record show, and today, Gary reveals the sizzling secrets of his sexy fan mail. It's his voice they fall for first, then they want his body. (laughs) Girls send him proposals. Housewives send him sexy proposals. Handsome, dark-haired Gary Davis is the golden boy of the airwaves with a following of female fans who utterly adore him. Gary says, I receive 2,000 letters a week and it would be accurate to say these ladies do not want me for my mind. (laughs) The letters are all very personal. They range from kids who just want to say hello and ask for an autographed picture to housewives who tell me exactly what they want to do to my body. (laughs) Sometimes it's proposals of marriage or the suggestion of a kiss or a cuddle. But some letters are straight out of the pages of pornographic magazines. Gary has been nicknamed Medallion Man because of the jewellery that hangs round his neck. He doesn't exactly have a stable attached to his North London home, but he does have a string of female friends. I find I take a different girl out every night, he says. (laughs) Oh, that's good to know, isn't it? Gary Davis doesn't keep loads of women in a bar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wondered where they were going with that. For Gary... It's the jet-set lifestyle. (laughs) Every so often he goes off to Verbier, Switzerland with his best mate, actor Chris Quintin, Brian Tilsley of Coronation Street. (laughs) He gets the girls who watch Coronation Street and I get the girls who listen to Radio 1 and watch Top of the Pops, he said. Just such a sad, squalid little wrecking crew, that, isn't it, (laughs) Gary (laughs) Davison? Sarah, if you were in a bar somewhere and you got chatted up by <laughs> Gary Davis and Chris Quintin, who who would you back away from the most? Oh. <laughs> it would depend where the, uh, the the exact location of the entrance to the cellar, I think, mm. um, in that bar. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. This is just this is this is pretty sad, isn't it? 
<laughs> There's also a sidebar piece where Gary tells us that he was taken to Amsterdam recently, had a walk through the red light area with his Dutch work colleagues, and all the sex workers jumped out of their windows and ran towards him as they'd seen him on Sky Channel. <laughs> so there we go. Hopefully the windows were open. It's glass flying in all directions. That sounds hugely <laughs> unlikely to me. Terrifying though, wouldn't it? All, all, all these sex workers just jumping out at you going, Ooh, Gary Davis <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> it, oh, he also offers us a chance to meet Fergal Sharky as a competition prize, which is a, you know, a prize that you can win nowadays by standing next to a polluter canal <laughs> and just waiting long enough, I suppose. Oh, bless him. It's it's interesting though that that Gary is is as you said I didn't know that that he's the first to kind of you know helm a TOTP show solo um, mm. in a while. I don't know if it's deliberate or not, mm. but probably not because he is being groomed as the face of Top of the Pops in 1986. Yeah, and kind of dependable mm. in a way, just gets on with it. But he is, um, you know, as I think you mentioned in the past, he's kind of eased into that Kid Jensen role. Yes. Definitely. But, but for me, without remotely the likability, you know, mm. despite him being seen as perhaps Radio One's, you know, hunkiest, dishy dreamboat of a DJ, mm. there's just nothing <laughs> to get your teeth into with Davis for me. He literally is the sloppy bit in the middle of the mm. Radio One schedule. And, and consequently, he can be seen, I think, along with other figures at the time, like Bruno Brooks, Mark Goodyear, Nicky Campbell, Simon Mayo. He's this kind of stopgap transitional figure. Um, yeah. In between Johnny Beerling's accession to Radio 1 and then Beerling's enforced departure with the advent of, you know, Matthew Bannister and that. So he's there, mm. he's needed, in a way, Davis, to usher out the old guard. Yeah. But stylistically, he's kind of indistinguishable from that old guard. He, he's, he's very, very, what's the word? Square, basically, I think is the word mm. I'm looking for. Yeah, watching this episode, I, I concluded that he truly is the Rishi Sunak of Top of the Pops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just this kind of yes. emptily <laughs> earnest... Slick, dead behind the eyes. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to shake that image. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also the eyebrows as well is what made me think of it. I think you called it right, Neil, when you compared Rishi Sunak to Spike Dixon of Heidi High. Well, indeed. <laughs> just, the, the... I, I can't shake that. <laughs> no. But just, just in one of those, um, yeah, quarters it cardies it's it's that's that's davis isn't it and, it, and it's mm. kind of the way he looks in this episode actually yeah and also the thing is with davis you know as a voice i suppose not objectionable i find him more objectionable when i see him mm. because there's a revolting flirty sincerity in his eyes that really turns me off in a big way mm. maybe he can't help it maybe it's just yeah. got eyes like this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he has that constantly like he's sort of yeah he's trying to be a mate but he's also sort of trying to make you fancy him as well um, and neither of them ever really happened for me. He's, he's trying to be your mate, but he's got his eye on your girlfriend. Mm, perhaps so, yeah. He also has that, um, I don't have to try kind of attitude, mm. you know. So why, mm. why try harder? All, all the girls, they love me. So, yeah, you know, yeah. like, why, yeah, yeah. why try harder? We don't know it yet, but he's about to be asked by Wham to compare their final gig at Wembley Stadium in a few months' time. Maybe he should have teamed up with Andrew Ridgeley. <laughs> he's also going to be lined up as the permanent UK presenter of Top of the Pops USA next year. Right. But there's more to him than that, because he is still basking in the satisfaction of being the Mo Molum of pop. <laughs> Article in the Sunday Mirror, February the 2nd. DJ Gary's pop piece. Radio 1 disc jockey Gary Davis has patched up a bitter feud between two pop groups. 
Matt Bianco singer Mark Riley and fine young cannibal star Andy Cox came to blows when a custard pie prank went badly wrong. <laughs> Millions of viewers of Noel Edmonds's Late Late Breakfast show last night saw the fight at an award ceremony in France. But back in London, Gary called both stars to heal the rift. Aww. Yeah, Boutros Boutros Davis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen that clip? No. It was ringing bells now that you've mentioned it, that there wasn't a sort of untrammeled viciousness to it. It was actually a song contest for Maidem, the French music trade show, which Matt Bianco won and Fine right. Young Cannibals didn't. And as some sooty, boldy Frenchie gave Riley the award, Cox put the pie in and Riley responded by trying to kick him in the bollocks. <laughs> and it all ended up with him standing there with bits of foam running down his face and the lady host saying, don't don't bother, these things happen, life is life. <laughs> Fucking hell, man, being in Matt Bianco in the mid-80s was just a procession of televised humiliation, wasn't it? Indeed. But that, that's touching what that lady said, showing, showing the impact of opus there um, mm. in healing wounds. But yeah, yeah. I mean, another thing about Davis, so just to mention it, permatanned, you know, and, and people weren't mm. then, apart from Tony Blackburn, nobody yeah. was then. This is pre-tanning salon, so what's going on there? Yeah. That kind of rubbed me up the wrong way as well. I mean, I'm not as militant on Gary Davis as uh, your two appear to be, but particularly when you compare him to the current talent pool. Mm. To my mind, there's very little here that gets on your tits in the way Way that Travis and Edmund. Oh were. God, yeah. He's like that youth at college who has girls hanging off his arms, and you, you immediately take a dislike to him for that. But then you end up getting to know him, and you discover to your absolute dismay that he's he's all right, actually. Mm, you know. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, if yeah. Simon Bates went off to um, Janice Long and go, "Oh, look at that fucking Gary Davis going around thinking he's something," that would say more about Simon Bates than it ever would about Gary Davis, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. He would be somebody who rubs you the wrong way then you meet him and you're just another sap with hearts in your eyes mm. looking at it <laughs> <laughs> welcome to top of the pops and here to start us off big country and look away thrown towards a neon purple proscenium arch, which looks like a gazebo for a garden party in Tron, as the disembodied voice of Davis gets the party started with Look Away by Big Country. We covered Big Country in Chart Music 60 when they made their first appearance in the Top of the Pop studio to perform their first hit, Fields of Fire, in April of 1983, which helped it get to number 10. Since then, they've peeled off a run of six top 30 hits, peaking in January of 1984 when Wonderland got to number eight and their second LP, Steel Town, entering the album chart at number one in October of that year. However... By January of 1985, after the band had recorded the soundtrack to the Scottish comedy film Restless Natives and contributed to Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid, Stuart Adamson, burned out from four years of relentless touring, writing and recording, demanded a timeout and spent much of the year running his pub in Dunfermline, even though he'd gone on the wagon the year before, while the rest of the band chipped in on Roger Daltrey's solo LP Under the Raging 
Moon and Pete Townsend's White City, a novel, and drummer Mark Brzezicki went on loan to the cult to finish off the Love LP after the sack Nigel Preston, and even appears on the video for She Sells Sanctuary, despite not having played on its recording. By the end of the year, and with Adamson ready to jump back on the treadmill, Mercury, their label, decided it was time that the band were kicked up into the big league, alongside their counterparts U2 and Simple Minds. And to this end, they replaced their regular producer Steve Lillywhite with Robin Miller, who had worked with Sade and Fine Young Cannibals for their next LP although no one really liked the results, and he was replaced by Walter Turbitt, who had worked with The Cars and Malcolm McLaren. This is the lead cut from that album, The Seer, which will be coming out in July, and it's the follow-up to Just a Shadow, which got to number 26 in January of 1985. It entered the charts at number 18 last week and a screening of the video in last week's Breakers section has helped it jump up eight places to number 10. And here they are in the studio in front of the Top of the Pops neon set which was introduced in late 1985 and will loom large over the show until mid-1987. Chaps, before we tuck into Big Country, let's talk about that set because it's a radical departure from the usual top of the pop sets isn't it mm. apart from a few tweaks with the lighting it's an incredibly monolithic structure mm. and it's changed the vibe of top of the pops in my opinion from being a pop show in an obvious tv studio to one in a gig venue yeah i'm guessing that is what it's attempting exactly mm. and and you know we're firmly in that period now another thing with this this set and also it should be mentioned that this new half-hour time slot means that the title sequence it literally lasts about six seconds before you mm. before you're in and then we're in this set which i mean the thing is that attempt to kind of make it like a venue i guess make it like a very bells and whistles venue i should feel a bit more of a sense of identification with the audience mm. whilst the pop stars would provide the alienation the audience might provide a sense of identification mm. but actually with this set it's the audience i feel most distant from because all you see is incessant clapping happiness and shit dancing and shit clothes mm. it's just this neon frightmare really so yeah it's already not looking good in terms of the production values of the show i think yeah i mean it's cut any interaction between presenter kids and act hasn't it yeah yeah so completely. you get no more shots of sulky girls chatting shit to each other while a band attempts to put their new single over mm. no more shots of gormless lads trying to chat up said sulky girls no more kids looking at themselves in the monitor it's essentially a nightclub setting where everybody involved knows their place yeah and a nightclub setting which essentially then engenders a certain response from the audience mm. which is nothing but yeah whooping and frothy happiness these are valid criticisms but for me this is kind of in my brain what top of the pops looks like mm. those little blocks of flashing neon although the set for big country they're, they're obviously like in a corner which is more like a sort of industrial perspex greenhouse <laughs> with like big banks of different coloured bulbs it's like they're in a grow tent <laughs> <laughs> yeah I do think of this as kind of a classic set I know it's very busy and I realise that it kind of changes the relationship between the bands and the viewers and the audience probably for the worse. Mm. But 
I can't help it. I, I just, I don't think you can have too much neon. I just think neon is, is the <laughs> neon. It just means glamorous nighttime stuff for mm. me. Um, no. Did you know, by the way, uh, where most of the world's neon comes from? Go on. Um, it is a gas um, and it's around us all the time. It's what gives that distinctive alluring glow. Um, most of it comes from Ukraine. Oh, really? I mean, it's used, obviously, in lights, but it's used in like the manufacturing of microchips and stuff as well. And um, basically, the Soviets in the uh, during the Cold War were really into the idea of making laser weapons, which mm. you need neon for. So they just amassed huge amounts of it. And then afterwards, there were just loads of neon facilities doing nothing. So they started selling it to the rest of the world. Uh. And it was expensive before, and inevitably it has now gone up by... It says here, 5,000%. Oh, Fucking yeah. hell. Imagine if Top of the Pops was going now, it'd be an absolute crisis. Oh, God, yeah. I was calling the Metro newspaper last week to bring back Top of the Pops, but I think this kiboshes the idea. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. If there's a dry yeah, eye shortage it? as well, yeah, we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. But the problem with this is, is that Top of the Pops have obviously pushed the boat up, but they've inadvertently set up a tableau that's going to suit certain acts down to the ground mm. and be absolutely unsuitable for other artists. I mean, Sunita and Man to Man with Man parish are going to pitch up on top of the pops look at what they're going to be performing in and go oh yeah we could do some fucking business here mm. but others are going to look massively out of place as we shall see later on yeah and would you include big country in that because mm. to me in their performance and this is something that you start detecting from here on in really the top of the pops yes like you say certain bands it absolutely suits them down to the ground certain bands will smirk about being on such a stage mm. and they'll show that in their yes. performance um, and I, I get a bit of that from Big Country um, mm. I think they're sincere enough but just knackered I don't know mm, mm. so Big Country they're forever lumped into the windy Celtic triumvirate mm. of the early 80s with U2 and Simple Minds both of those have absolutely soared into the pop stratosphere. <laughs> but while the former played Wembley and the latter played Philadelphia, Big Country's only appearance on Live Aid was as part of the herd during the rendition of Do They Know It's Christmas at the End, mm. in between Roger Daltrey and Adam Ant. And uh, apparently that's down to Richard Jobson, the former lead singer of the Skids, who heard on the Dunfermline grapevine that Big Country were off the grid, assumed that they'd split up. And that information got passed on to his recently divorced wife, who was doing the PR for phonogram at the time and she passed it on to one of her artists a certain Mr Bob Geldof right so the invite never went out mm -hmm. to Big Country because he thought they'd split up and even 10 months after the event the pop world still divided between Live Aid acts and non-Live Aid acts and Big Country have found themselves in the latter camp yeah which is odd because you know in 84 Stuart Adamson says in an interview there's only four rock bands left in the world us, you two Simple Minds and the Bunny Men, and mm. out of them, it's definitely you two and Simple Minds who are who are ascending at this point. Mm. And Big Country. I mean, look. The, before we go on, I've got to get this out of my system because I'm duty bound because I'm a music journalist. Um, big mm. Country, <laughs> Big Cunty, more like. So I, I just Ooh. had to get that out. <laughs> oh man, that has fully ruined a thing I was going to do. Yeah, I had I'm an sorry. entire bit. Well, I mean, I must admit that the last time <laughs> I did, I think I did Big Country on on CMP with with Pricey, and and, and yes. well, what Pricey was saying, it did kind of open my eyes a bit. Mm. Uh, Early on in Big Country's career, there's no reason I should have sort of snobbily shunted them aside when I do love a lot. I, I mean, I love early 80s Scottish bands, basically. I mean, to me, Scottish bands of the early 80s, Altered Images, Simple Minds, Orange Juice, etc. They're far more important to me and part of my listening than, say, the much more lauded 
Manchester bands of that era. But mm. much as by 1986, I'd started loathing the sound of, of Simple Minds, I'd really started properly hating Big Country as well by 86, I think. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like that just juiceless, big sky, clattery, big room sound um, that mm. rock had at that time. And, and Big Country seemed to, to absolutely enshrine that. Out of those three bands, of course, you two were going to be the winners mm. in terms of that big sound. But this is Big Country's biggest and consequently most ubiquitous hit. Mm. You know how most of the time when you think of a band, there's like a first song that you think of. With Big Country, mm. it's actually that Big Country one. But then it rapidly yeah. transmogrifies yeah, yeah. into this record that if nothing else, I think we can entirely blame for the likes of um, Delamitri and Diesel Part West and fucking bands like that. It's their biggest hit, yeah. but it's just a half-decent chorus in search of a verse that isn't dog shit really and there's all kinds of little horrible details to the sound and a fundamental lumpiness to the groove of this so I, I, I was li- i was watching it just thinking thin lizzie would have done this about a billion times better mm. i mean by the way i was idly jotting whilst watching this and i, I jotted down a quick worst ever scottish band list um Ooh. not including big country number five gun mm. <laughs> um number four run rig number three texas number two mm. wet 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 and number one, um, although this is stretching it a bit in terms of them being Scottish, but fuck it, any excuse. Primal Scream, it's got to be for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I th- I, look, I think my problem with Big Country is the same problem I start having at this time, aged 14, with Simple Minds and, and particularly you 2 actually. I mean, there are aspects of those mm. bands that I like, but by 86... It's not just the sort of increasingly flatulent sound of their records that I don't like, but it's simply the fact that they're so positive and happy. I kind of like Mm. guitar music to not be happy at this point in my life. I like it not to be anthemic, but kind of introspective, and not to be stirring and emotional and positive, but but far more sort of mindless and angry and negative, really. Um, This Mm. kind of period, 86, is part of my start of coming back over to metal a little bit and and stopping laughing at it all, which I had done for previous years because Nawabaham got so preposterous. Mm. And because I've been digging back (laughs) into the 60s, I was looking for rock that was badly produced and murky and kind of properly heavy rather than just all this well-appointed uber-produced guff which uh, is what Mm. Big Country seemed to be doing. For well-produced stuff I wanted it to be pop or hip-hop at that time because those productions were so much more exciting to listen to in this period than the way rock sounded, especially this kind of big rolled up sleeve long coat rock like this it's just so passionate in this kind of fist clenching way it's very um outdoorsy this music um (laughs) yeah it's kind of go outdoors warehouse of rock and and at age 14 (laughs) i already knew that the outdoors particularly the outdoors outside the city you know smelled really so (laughs) <laughs> it, I wasn't going to get fooled by Big Conti. And in terms of this performance, as soon as it started, I was watching it and I thought, Gary Davis is going to say, what a great way to start the show. <laughs> <laughs> and so it proved. <laughs> I mean, it's only been a year and a bit since her last single, but so much has changed in the world of pop that this is very much seen as the comeback record. Mm. So what's changed since the skull of the MXR M129 pitch transposer and the cry of Shah stirred the Celtic heart of a young Simon Price and led him to a car park where Ian Asprey was shagging a groupie up against a coach 
Well, the look has changed, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the most obvious change is that big country have lobbed their flannel shirts onto a bonfire and are now suited up to fuck. Mm. Bad 80s suited up to fuck at that, with the sleeves rolled right up and adorned with globular brooches and bootlace ties. Oh, dear me. Yeah, Stuart Adamson's got on a sort of oversized striped hessian bathrobe. Mm. It's a, a success code, as Simon calls them. <laughs> it is remarkable. It looks like Howard Hughes' dressing gown, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not so much a success coat as a I've just won a Californian Powerball lottery coat. Yeah. You didn't fucking get that from Millets, let me tell you. They all look terrible, I think, apart from Tony Butler on base. Yeah. And his coat fits. Mm. The rest of these bean poles, they, they just look malnourished. They look like Rodney does when Dale gets him a sheepskin that's way too big for him. Yes, <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> I bet they always regret it. That camel coat. Yeah, exactly. Big coat tree, if Big you will. Big coat tree. Big coat down is what we're doing. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, comfort is important to me increasingly mm. in, my, in mm. my dotage, you know. And it's like, God, you're going to be too hot and not in the kind of pleasing sheen of sweat under the makeup kind of way. Just like... <sighs> People just never learn on no, top of the box. No, it's just yeah. big fucking coats all the way. It's awful. And you look at that coat and you just think, well, you can't go out in that coat. You, you certainly wouldn't go into the pub with it. No. You'd be absolutely terrified of people nubbing the fags out on mm. it, accidentally or otherwise. I just realised it's actually the same coat that one of the Corys wears in The Lost Boys when he first goes into the oh. comic shop. And they're like, we're just scope. What are you doing, man? Yeah, we're just scoping your civilian wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> As we're going to see, there's a lot of bad coatiness going on in this episode mm, there is I've got to say like for all the talk of bigness I don't receive this as a big tune right. it's kind mm. of a sketch of something big mm. but it's just it's sort of quite chuggy with quite forgettable vocals and there's like no top line you know there's nothing you can really play on a penny whistle and yeah, it's, it's kind of the same issue that I had with um, Deliverance by The Mission, which was a, an mm. opener of an episode I did a while ago. And it's like, yeah, this is here we come with the big song. And it's like, it's okay, but where, where is it? You know, mm. it just, it's, yeah. it's kind of quite, um, if we're talking about, you know, the outdoors, it's like a sort of cloud of a rock song. Yeah, no, kind absolutely. Of, you know, it, it looks massive, but there's kind of no substance to it, you know. And also in the performance, I mean, maybe this is my, my, my smuggery detector is a bit too sensitive, but I get the sense there's a slight smirk to this appearance. And, and mm. at the time, I remember getting the sense from interviews at the time that Big Country were usually scornful of pop. I mean, Bruce Watson says in an interview this year, you know, I'm not a pop star. I hate that word. I just want to play my guitar. And, mm. and Stuart Adamson, in, a, in the same interview, he, he says it would have been easy for us to come out with the crossing volume two. It would have been a wise career move. And we could have done it in two weeks because nobody can pastiche us as well as we can ourselves. Mm. I don't do things to make career moves for the sake of selling an extra few hundred thousand records. Mm. So they've, they've got that smuggery. But at the same time, this is totally trying to, to be a chart smash. Yeah. And the way they're dressed... It does appear like a decision was made. Yes. You know, the, 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 this is our look now. Someone chomping on cigars, hanging on the table, going, big coats! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but it is only the bass player looks at halfway decent. Mm. He looks okay, actually. His coat kind of suits him, although there's a bit of shawaddy-waddiness to it as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got white shoes on, which is white shoes and white trousers. He's gone mm. double white there, Oof. which is uh, a bold move. Yeah. 
But the other guitarist, I, I forget his name, he looks dreadful. And mm. um, the drummer appears to have a leather coat on. But again, it's that sleeve rolled up thing. <sighs> Why fucking do that? I mean, it's 1986, though. Yeah, I know. That, I it know. was the style at the time. I know, I know. But that's an unrehabilitatable <laughs> look, that. <laughs> As we've learned in previous chart music, Sarah, you're, you're a bit fond of a bit of man wrist, aren't you? <laughs> I am a fan. <laughs> and I'm equal opportunities as well with women, too. It's just, you know, a lot of a good leather jacket. It's acceptable on women, on men, though, Neil. Come on, back me up <laughs> not on big coats though i i would draw the line at the forearm because it, it's it's that dissonance isn't it it's like when you've got a big coat on yeah. but you you want to expose your forearms what's going on there if you've got a big coat on and you're rolling the sleeves up you're obviously fucking sweating cobs <laughs> just take the fucking coat off mate i don't know yeah. I, might, I mean i might try the look i've never done that look <laughs> go on do uh, it do i it. might do it i might try i'm off out tonight to brum um, Free the forearm, man. I will do the forearm, yeah. <laughs> is it both forearms or is it just one? No, that'd look both. strange, wouldn't it? Both, sorry. Yeah. So that's Mason's territory, Neil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you can't You can't just have one. That makes you look like you've just come off a long shift of mm. assisting the country vet. Ah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, up to my elbow. But no, actually, oddly enough, I'm off to a uh, Masonic bash later on this month. Oh, you know. You oh, yeah. You so can't tell to... everyone that. God, they're not going to let you in now. Oh, no, no, don't worry. It's, it's all above board. <laughs> it's all about board. My my friend is uh, the Grand Worshipful Master this year, and um, my <laughs> even closer yes, and my even closer friend is his partner. So she's got to do the ladies' night, and I've got to refer to her as Lady Sarah all night, which I'm looking forward to. But crucially, it's at Warwick Masonic Lodge, and I can't wait to stumble down a corridor and stumble into some arcane ritual that I really shouldn't bear witness to. Um, but I might do the long coat that night. Good lord! Wow. Okay. <laughs> and when it is ladies' night. Neil, don't forget to tell Lady Sarah that everything's going to be all right. <laughs> of course. The, the, the major thing that's pissed me off about Big Country and them being on this episode is obviously preparing for Chart Music Podcast. Yes, I found out that, yeah, he, that they backed Roger Daltrey. Yeah. His 85 solo album, Under a Raging Moon. Yeah. They were watching his back. <laughs> But it made me inevitably have to Google the sleeve, which inevitably made me physically sick. So oh, cheers. go on, go on. Cheers, big cunty. No, I mean, it's just a facial shot of adultery, but that's all I need oh. uh, for that emetic trigger. Not being um, a centaur, though. No, he's not being a centaur. He, he's never going to top that for bad LP <laughs> no, covers, he's not. man. No. Ride a rock horse. <laughs> My final thought on big country is that I always think of them as big country because of the song yes. In a Big Country, yes. which they wrote and could have written to scan however they chose, mm. but they kind of did. I mean, that sort of erroneous emphasis can be really fun and playful, but you've got to do it like deliberately. And this is like a metal guru, but in a bad way. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, in a big country, you sit on sofa, play with Roger <laughs> Daltrey and eat some pasta. This is the single that was going to kick him up into the big league. And yeah, you do get this feeling of, of slight smugness as if they're saying, oh, here we are on top of the pots but get a good eyeful of us while you can because we'll be doing bigger things from here on in yeah. but you could argue that it actually turned out to be the single that killed them because apparently phonogram was so desperate to get them over in america that their new producer walter turbot was caught by guitarist bruce watson lauding the tracks in the studio with his own guitar parts which mm. led to stuart adamson who formed the skids and felt that richard jobson had aced him out and took over believing that it was happening all over again and it, it, everything was coming out of their hands once more. Right. 
Right, but I mean, the trouble is with big country, they have this unerring belief that they're real musicians, and if they were just left to make real music, everything would be all right. But mm. th- what actually emerges from their albums is, fuck me, apart from the singles, Jesus, it's dreary, dreary shit. Really? It really, really is. So they were never, yeah. ever in a million years going to get as big as you 2 and Simple mm. Minds, who were both a bit more playful with pop. I mean, granted, just as big and wide and flatulent, but you never got the feeling that you 2 I don't know, sort of had contempt for... Th- I'm not saying big country contempt for their audience but you two were happy with any audience whereas mm. big country you felt they wanted specific you know proper real music fans to be into them and that's just going to alienate everybody i think they did really try for the yankee dollar if you mm. will in the mm. next album which turned out to be the lowest selling big country album in america so yeah, yeah. they fucked it yeah they fucked it are we counting them as shaking minds at this point then oh yeah yeah that's it <laughs> so the following week look away nudged up two places to number eight its highest position but the follow-up the teacher would only get to number 28 at the end of june and although the seer entered the lp chart at number two they finished 1986 with hold the heart only getting to number 55 in december the first big country single to miss the top 40 since their debut single harvest home in September of 1982. Although they came back in 1988 with King of Emotion getting to number 16 in the singles chart and Peace in Our Time getting to number 9 in the LP chart in August, diminishing returns continued to set in throughout the 90s and they finally split up in 2000. Way to start, big country and look away. So, all on my own in the studio tonight. Well, not exactly in my own. Also in the studio, we have George Michael, we have Aha, and it's immaterial. But first, here's this week's top 40 over this video from Falco and Rock Me Amadeus. Whipped back to Davis, standing in front of the disgusting new Top of the Pops logo, sporting an appallingly oversized light grey jacket, which appears to be made out of an elephant's hide, with the sleeves rolled right up the elbow, over a disgusting blocky multicoloured shirt, and matching grey trousers. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> a big country had their sleeves rolled back as well, but they were playing instruments, Gary. What's your fucking excuse? I mean, the overall effect is Miami Vice YTS lad, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's a medallion man, you know, mm. revealing that chunky Seiko on his wrist. But the shirt's buttoned right up, isn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah. No, I can't be doing with that. I must point out, by the way, the way to do the sleeves pushed up is you push them up. You don't go past the elbow. That's the thing. Mm. Once you go past the elbow, all is lost. And wait a minute, you know, Sarah. Just too I've, many I've got to check this shit because I might be wearing this later. Um, <laughs> is it just a push up? Should I fold? No, no, no. No, just, just, just push up. Got you. Okay. I mean, some garments will not allow this you know but mm. ideally you want it to just under the elbow i don't know i don't know anything about you know more than us yeah. I, I live with a man who has long arms and is usually a tall man with long arms who, who normally 
<laughs> Most jacket sleeves are too short for right. it, so he has to. Oh, what's so yeah. just, you know, like it's just it's it's utility, but it, mm. it, you know, it, he makes it work. Okay, okay. Um, anyway, but yes, don't go over the elbows because then you know you do get the elephant hide effect. So yeah, just just <laughs> shove them up until they come to a natural stop just before the elbow. Okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to be fair with with Gary's fit, there's a pearlescence to his oversized doctor's coat, isn't there? Mm. You know, but I I like it not, <laughs> and that is a blouse. It's definitely a blouse, which is fine. Men can wear blouses in the 80s and indeed any time. But it's sort of purple and peach and orange and it's it's a lot going on. I reckon that's a Casio as well, not a Seiko. Ah, well spotted. (laughs) What a great way to start, says Davis, before informing us he's without a partner tonight. Oh, but not for long, knowing Gary Davis in his stable. (laughs) Right. And then spoilers a sizable chunk of tonight's bill of fear before throwing us into Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. Born in Vienna in 1957, Johann Herzl attended the Vienna Conservatoire, Austria's version of the Kids from Fame, at the age of 16, but could only stick it out for a year and ended up doing national service for a bit. In the late 70s, he gravitated towards the Weimar Republic-like nightlife of Vienna, playing the bass in local band The Hallucination Company, before switching to the art-rock anarcho band Dradi Warble and adopting the stage name John DeFalco, where he wrote and performed the song Gans Vienne, which he would play as a solo interlude at their gigs, which featured the line, All of Vienna is on heroin today. When the manager Marcus Spiegel saw the now-entitled Falco perform the song at an anti-drugs benefit gig in 1980, he signed him up to a solo deal and he put it out as a single in 1981, where it was immediately banned by Austrian radio. But when he put out an English-language version, it got to number 11 in Austria, but failed to chart anywhere else. At the end of that year, he lined up a follow-up single, Helden von Heuter, a tribute to David Bowie's heroes, but his label preferred the B-side, Der Kommissar. And although Falco was convinced that it was too extreme for the pop-crazed Teutons, <laughs> as it was mainly a rap that leaned hard into Super Freak by Rick James, it soared to number one in both Austria and West Germany. And although it did nothing over here, it became a top ten hit across continental Europe and got to number 74 in America. And an English language cover by After the Fire got to number 47 in the UK in April of 1980. An attempt to capitalise on the success of De Commissar failed when his second LP failed to do anything outside the Germanosphere, so in 1985 he linked up with the producers Rob and Ferdy Bolland, the South African Dutch brothers, who had a number one hit in Finland and Norway with their synthy Vietnam War song, You're in the Army Now, in 1981. Yes, that You're in the Army Ooh. Now. Stand up and fight. This is a lead-off cut from his forthcoming LP, Falco Dry, which is due out in October, and has been put out by his new label, A&M. It was inspired by the 1984 film Amadeus, which won eight Oscars only three weeks ago, and the original version has already ripped through Europe last year. 
But when it was remixed for the USA and UK with beefier drums and some bird on vocals, it entered our charts four weeks ago at number 58, then soared 31 places to number 27, then another 17 places to number 10 after he appeared on Top of the Pops. This week, as it begins its third week at number one in America, it's nipped up two places over here to number three. And as he's already been in the top of the pop studio twice, here's our first chance to see the video, sort of. Mm. <laughs> Where do we start, Chavs? Because we, we've got a bit of a problem here, haven't we? What? Uh, fastest loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, because 40 seconds in, yes. this happens. <laughs> Well, we don't really know what he's singing about, so we might as well have a look at this week's Top 40. Down to number 40, it's Culture Club with Move Away. Ah! <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, Top of the Pops? No. Yeah, what it's bad. It's doing? very bad. Very bad. It's so fucking rude. I hate it when they go, hey, that was great when it wasn't, but it's a lot worse when they go, well, who cares? We don't know what you're singing about anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what a senseless diss. Yes. The video gets squeezed into a little box so Gary Davis can shit out the charts from number 40 to number 11. So there's no band picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no respect given to the charts and no chance to enjoy the number three single in the land properly. Yeah. In a world where there's no MTV for most people, no access to cable or satellite for most people, how else are they going to see the fucking video if it's not on top of the box? Yeah, it's really bad. This is so clearly a bad idea. Obviously, it's not Gary Davis's idea, but whoever's idea it was. No. It's, it's the worst idea, I would say, since very early let's do the top ten rundown at the very start of the show mm. thing. I mean, I'd have been only 14, but I would have been sat there just thinking, frankly, this is a shambles. Mm. I mean, it's, it's chaos. Yeah. And it's an absence of sort of thought absence of vision for for the charts it's exactly what you see in the rundown here it's really poorly formatted Mm. every single bit of it the script that davis has to speak it's kind of geeky but imparts no information at all and the one thing that really angered me was this occasional deliberate refusal to name the records they're talking about they just name the artist it's i'm sorry i'm sounding like a spod but it's infuriatingly imprecise yeah i mean the (laughs) assumption obviously is that oh well the kids watching this will know what what the name of the song but i don't not from a distance i'm an old man now this is it and the decision to have davis speak over falco is kind of disastrous both for falco but also for any idea of actually knowing what the hell's going on in the charts yeah and and it's just kind of demonstrative i think of the general lack of care that's going on here Mm. and that rush that we were talking about engendered by the switching time that now set in so let's put three different things on the screen none of which are going to make any sense because they're cancelling each other out i mean even the top of the pops of the 90s have more respect for the charts than this and that was very little Mm. it's like the nine o'clock news running a story about the bombing of Libya and then Sue Lawley saying well oh you know how this is going to turn out so here's some pictures of (laughs) fucking Fergie that I mean what Sarah said is spot on Mm. I would have been really pissed off at that line that Davis says you know about oh well you know we don't know what he's on about yes we fucking do yeah and, and, if I'm a superstar, for fuck's sake. <laughs> but also, like, what's it to you? I mean, because it, it yeah. obviously it's a double dose of disrespect there because it's like, well, you're mm. talking over the, the, you know, an artist's work after the first verse, but also it's like, oh, it's in foreign. Who gives exactly. a shit? Exactly. I would think that was his interjection. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing is that my bloke somehow managed to get into his 40s without ever having experienced Rock Me Amadeus or Falco at all. What? And I know, I know. It's just something that passed him by and he was like, 
what what the fuck is this? I was like, okay, I'm going to stop this here and I'm going to pull up the full thing on YouTube so you don't yeah. have to have your first experience of this tune ruined yeah. by Gary fucking Davis barreling in and going, hey, well, what's over there? Which is, you know, in this mm. kind of attention apocalypse. <laughs> if any video doesn't need reducing to about a third of the screen, it's this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Should we talk about Falco now? Fuck Gary Davis. Let's talk about Falco. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, fucking Falco and fucking Rock Me Amadeus. Yes. What a wonderful thing. And it was so great to see the sheer delight on, on my bloke's face. Like, what could this be? What is this delightful mm. nonsense? Like, it's it, it's bonkers. It's so brilliant mm. and so not like anything else. And I remember this striking me at the time when I was a kid and going, having that same response, really. Like, what? Yes. Even with less context about music you know as i was sort of forming my opinions at the time you know it's really hard to describe it and it's very hard to critique it because it's mm. i think bonkers is the word <laughs> bonkers is the word it's, it's so joyful and it's kind of you don't even think of it or i don't i don't think of it as like oh it's it's a white guy rapping because it's not really it's like anti-flow it's like he's cutting up mm. what he's so it's sort of in deutschlich and yeah, German yeah. kind of consonant clusters and the shape of words in German sort of lends itself more to this kind of non-flow than English. And he's sort mm. of bending the language into different angles as you go, mm. as if that's just a thing that you do, as if like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And this is completely appropriate. Yeah. He's establishing himself for the rest of the world as like the, a son of Vienna, you know, like, oh, you mm. know, like, like Mozart, mm. you know, no big deal. Me and Wolfgang just <laughs> hanging out in history, yeah. you know. Having some nice cakes. <laughs> I'm a cool Austrian guy. And you know who else is a cool Austrian guy? No, 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 no. Mozart, it's cool. I mean, this is not something any of us could attempt at karaoke, let's be fair. No. <laughs> not, and no. I don't think no. anyone can or, or should attempt it, but it's like you need a concrete diaphragm for it. It's like, mm. like you can't, he must have had abs for days like that yeah. for, for three minutes straight oh you could grate cheese on them <laughs> yeah i mean only he could do this mm. it's not coverable you're absolutely right and it obviously it has a great chorus that once you have heard it is just graven into your skull forever mm. it's so simple it's kind of almost insultingly simple and daft and glorious i mean it's yeah. if you could remain kind of stony-faced watching and listening to and experiencing rock me amadeus then you know there's you got you're gonna have to leave my house i'm afraid <laughs> <Yeah>. never come <laughs> back <laughs> I'll come back to that word bonkers, Sarah, because I think you, 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 it's bonkers lyrically. It's, I mean, but every single second of this record is bonkers. Yeah. Like, the sound of it's nuts as well. Mm. And I think we underestimate in this country. You know, Falco is a complete hero in Middle Europe, mm. yeah, in yeah. Austria and Germany. He really is hugely venerated, which is odd because... Ultimately, he was always just chaos, really, yeah. Falco. I mean, as a human being as well, you know, he was... It's funny that he was spotted doing this anti-drugs thing, because that certainly wasn't something that he did. Yeah, while well, doing a drug song. Yeah, yeah. He's a relic of an age, really, in which pop stars could be totally out of control, when yeah. all that post-punk artiness... And be appreciated for it. Indeed. And, and he's coming from that post-punk kind of arty thing, but he hits massive commercial success. So, mm. Rock Me Amadeus is just this weird outlier of a record. Its impact here was definitely because there was that elemental confusion in all of us who first heard it is this got anything to do with the film is this on the soundtrack mm. you know is it part of it yeah it took some time to establish that you know the song wasn't at all in the film although the film's kind of punkification of the of mozart's look does extend here a little bit um i don't think that mattered in the states at all which is where it became majorly big 
to the point mm. where in 86, you know, Falco's considering moving there permanently. But the other yeah. touchstone for this I, 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 that it reminded me of is Adam Ant. And, and not yeah. right. necessarily sonically, but the video has a lot of similarities to Adam Ant videos in just being mm. these big, you know, epic productions that are absolutely dazzling. And it's the first record in my recall, really, in my life to put Germanness, or rather, sorry, Austrianness in our charts since Da Da Da, really. Life is life last year. <laughs> Yeah, there is that, but God, it's in terms of Austrian, it is far yeah. better. Opus last year, Falco, this is it's just a golden age for Erster Rock, isn't it? Mm, indeed. And there's an actual clip on YouTube of Opus and Falco together oh performing this song. <laughs> and it's fucking really good. Oh, Opus wow. are fucking brilliant, man. Oh, wow. I've got to seek that out. It'll be mm. on the TMP video playlist. Video playlist. Yeah, um, brilliant. By the way, you've got to put uh, De Commissar on the, uh, on the playlist. Oh, my God. What a tune. What a fucking tune. And, and you know, doing CMP for this has reminded me of De Commissar, and I just haven't been able to stop playing it. It's so fucking good. Yeah, it's, it's mm. amazing. And uh, this, the same reaction happened. I was like, all right, here, here was his first single over here, and, and Bloke was like beside himself going, how have I never heard this? What? Yeah. I am now the yeah. biggest Falco fan. It's astonishing that wasn't a hit. And hilarious video video with because it's about a couple on the run from the law yeah, with yeah. a giant bag of coke just going up oh whoa, there's a yeah. cop better run away and he's kind of doing that it's a really bad kind of green screen thing with like cop cars mm. and he's just doing that terrible like on the spot running yeah and then occasionally just wiping his nose in a very sort of yeah oh yeah. no i have been mm. very naughty and <laughs> i mean that's the thing <laughs> falco is extremely i will often say that things have gone coke uh, as a you know as, as a negative which it usually is like london having gone coke and a lot mm. of me you know a lot of things having just gone brash and shallow in the worst way but I, falco was very coke in mm. the best way yeah yeah if the commissar came out like today with that video oh you know people would be going fucking nuts about it oh, it looks like a tiktok video doesn't it it does, it does. <laughs> but luckily, Rock Me Amadeus isn't necessarily you know, something I'm playing every week. I'm glad I experience it every time I experience it. I mean, and, and lest we forget, you know, we have to be grateful it exists because if only without Amadeus, there'd be no help me, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> that wouldn't be a life worth living. Can I play no. the piano anymore? <laughs> of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. <laughs> but also, also beyond that, right? Rock Me Amadeus is, is illustrative of something that's going on in the charts throughout mm. 86. Yes, the dinosaurs still walk among us, but there's been a kind of minor extinction event as well. Previous yes. to 86, Radio 1 didn't really have a daytime playlist, and that's why sort of a lot of their DJs could just play any old shite that they fancied. Mm. This daytime playlist sort of gets reintroduced 86, and it's to do with what Radio 1 DJs predict might be a hit. Yeah. So what starts happening with that kind of more organised playlist List based around new songs that could be hits is that in the next few months in 86 we're going to get really big hits from unknown artists fundamentally mm. who make the list so I mean none of them are as remotely as good as Falco but you know It Bites have a hit and Hollywood Beyond mm. have a hit and Owen Paul yeah. and Cutting Crew and Robbie Neville and all these people Ooh, and, and golden all, days well quite but you know there's also conspicuous failures by artists who could previously as counted on radio support you know Howard Jones Nick Kershaw these people yes Ultravox, they all have singles that don't chart and it's quite disruptive mm. to the charts in a sense. The trouble is all these new bands coming through have no big fan base and they usually disappear when the follow-up you know, doesn't make the cut or isn't a hit. Or doesn't get on Wogan. That's it. And the older acts, they got kind of branded as failures and they can't come back. 
I mean, it creates a mm. sort of vacuum in the charts, really, that's going to last the rest of 86. I mean, Jack Your Body is the first number one of 87, and it gets no radio play. And then we have an onslaught of Star Aiken and Walkman after that. But this is this weird yeah. period where, yeah, yeah, the big dinosaurs are about, but they're mainly rock bands. Pop dinosaurs are, are going. Mm. Um, and they're being replaced by old little records like Rock Me, I'm a Deus, yeah. Gate Crash and Charge. The great thing about the video is that he puts Falco over as a right Euro Ponce. And to my <laughs> mind, that's always a good thing. Yeah. Y- yeah Euro yeah, yeah. Ponce has always livened up the charts in the mid 80s, whether you like the song or not. You know, mm. I'm thinking about people like Ryan Paris. But my favourite Euro Ponce of the era has to be Sabrina's keyboard player in a clip <laughs> I found on Spanish television that sadly doesn't seem to be there anymore because he is poncing it up on that keyboard so hard that you actually forget that you're supposed to be looking at Sabrina's breasts. <laughs> but Falco here, he comes off as someone who would drive his Audi right onto the beach at Marbella, take the Union Jack towel that you've hung over the sun lounger at four in the morning, <laughs> rub it against his arse, throw it in the sea and then spend the rest of the day just lying there in some very expensive pants, <laughs> waiting for someone to fetch him a Malibu, looking down his nose at you in your crappy CNA shorts. Mm. Yeah, apparently he did have this extreme self-confidence that uh, yeah. you know that was quite hard to take sometimes mm. yeah. it was very exact about yeah. I always love that when I perceive it I mean yeah of course people like that can be a massive pain in the ass but they can also just get some really great stuff done because it's like mm. no this is mm. how we're doing this mm. which is something backed up by ev- every single interview I've ever read of Falco he's just fucking hilarious it's um, an image <laughs> that Falco's happy to play up in an interview with the NME in a London hotel this month where he flicks his fag ash into a complimentary bowl of dry roasted peanuts <laughs> tell Simon Witter that he's very good mates with Mozart and saw him in the pub three days ago Yeah, yeah. stops yeah. talking every now and then so he can watch his eyebrows go up and down in the mirror <laughs> uh, tells the photographer to take one picture and get out arsehole yes. Um, yes. kicks a light over while the photographer's setting up and then locks himself in the toilet for a bit eventually comes out, hugs everyone in the room and concludes by telling the readership of the NME I fuck everybody. I fuck you all. <laughs> That's what you want yeah. out of your pop stars. You yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. completely. <laughs> that's not just a coke thing i feel like that's you know coke takes the edge off that sort of personality you know mm. but i do think that if there's any reason for us to be here as tragically overdeveloped creatures that we are i mean other to be like kind and all that shit it's mm. to give the fullest and most honest expression to whatever ideas happen to come to you and they might not be whatever the value or worth of the ideas they might be something or nothing but if you have them and you have the wherewithal you should express them with your entire self and blow the bubble mm. as big as you can for the world to see and that's what falco did here with this bizarro little bop about a tragic 18th century musical genius which is why we're talking about it 37 years later and 25 years after he died so you know he Mm. he did he did it right maybe some austrian will do a song about him in a 200 years time who knows maybe so maybe so Mm, hope the video's good (laughs) it'd be holograms by then wouldn't it or or a pill that you take maybe by then holograms will be old hat and people will be kind of doing the thing of going back to more like practical real shit you know but like actual Mm. candy floss for a wig Mm. we need to get over to Europe because I've got a friend who was in Belgium over over Christmas and New Year and apparently after New Year's Eve sort of goes you know after midnight Mm. loads of stations just start playing fucking folk over (laughs) really (laughs) I think it's brilliant (laughs) that'd be a great Great way to see the new year. Yeah. 
<laughs> the following week, Rock Me Amadeus took one more step up the ladder and sat there at number two for two weeks, biding its time before finally assuming its place upon the summit of Poppenberg, where it stood proud for a week before being deposed by... <sighs> The Chicken Song by <laughs> Spitting Image. The follow-up, Vienna Calling, got to number 10, but he never troubled the top 40 again, and he became a German-speaking concern only, eventually dying in a car crash in the Dominican Republic in 1998 at the age of 40. But the song became and remains the first and only German language number one in the UK and the first foreign language single to get there since Je Temme by Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin in 1969. And of course, the song lived on in the musical Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off, starring Troy McClure. Right now, in the top of the Bob Studio at number eight in the charts with Train of Thought, here's Aha! Davis, standing in front of the new Top of the Pops logo, which was introduced a few weeks ago, said something that I can't fucking remember for the life of me, as I was too busy staring at the shitness of the new Top of the Pops logo. (laughs) Why? It's fucking disgusting, isn't it? We've said it before, but fuck me, this is awful. Quite busy. Oh, yeah, somewhat overly busy. I mean, the perfect logo for its time, mm. but perhaps that's why you hate him so much. Al. Yeah, <laughs> it does look like of the top pops. <laughs> of pop, of pop the top. He eventually gets round to introducing Train of Thought by Aha. Formed in Oslo in 1978, Bridgers were a Norwegian rock band formed by the drummer Pal Waktar and the guitarist and vocalist Mags Führer Holman. After recruiting more members and Waktar switching to keyboards, they put out their debut LP, Fackletog, in 1980. And while touring that LP, they played a gig in Asker, where one of the audience, a young lad called Morton Harkett, introduced himself to them afterwards with a view to having a go at singing. After Bridges set to work on their second LP in 1982, Waktar and Führer Holman, who had always written their songs in English, felt the band had gone as far as they could in Norway and pushed for them to relocate to London. But when the rest of the band didn't fancy it, they dissolved on the spot, the LP was unreleased, and the duo spent six months on their own in the UK, to no avail. On their return to Norway, they linked up with Harkett, who by that time was fronting the covers band Soldier Blue, and invited him to start a new band, which got their name when they riffled through Waktar's songbook for a word that was used in both Norway and England. They returned to London in January of 1983 and recorded and shopped round a demo. And by the end of the year, they signed a deal with Warner Brothers, who linked them up with Tony Mansfield, formerly of New Music, and prepared an old Bridges number called the Juicy Fruit Song, which Harkett heard at their gig and liked, and had worked on together in Norway. 
That song, by now renamed Take On Me, was put out as their first single in October of 1984, but only got to number 137 over here, although it got to number three in Norway. However, the parent company in America got a glance of how the band looked and signed them up over there, telling them to get rid of Mansfield, get in Alan Tarne, who wrote and produced We Don't Talk Anymore and co-wrote Wired for Sound for Cliff Richard, and had spent the early 80s writing January, February for Barbara Dixon and co-wrote Orchard Road with The Old Sailor. When it was recorded and put out again in April of 1985, it flopped over here once more, but over in stateside USA, Warner Brothers pushed the boat right out for the band, forking out for a massively expensive video which took four months to make when Morton was displayed in all his pencilly gorgeousness, which was played on MTV and in clubs for a month before it was released in America, where it immediately got into the Billboard 100 and eventually got to number one. Emboldened by said video, it was released for a third time in the UK in September, and by the end of October, it began a three-week stand at number two, held off by The Power of Love by Jennifer Rush. The next single, The Sun Always Shines on TV, went one better, spending two weeks at number one in January of this year. And this, the follow-up, is the third cut from their debut LP, Hunting Iron Low, which entered the album chart at number 24 in November of 85 and immediately slid down, but then rallied in the wake of the success of The Sun Always Shines on TV and spent five weeks at number two in January and February of this year. It entered the chart at number 23 a fortnight ago, and they were immediately invited to cluster under the neon on top of the pops, which helped it soar 14 places to number 9. This week, it's only nipped up one place to number 8, but that's not stopping them from making a return to the studio. Looks like Top of the Pops has given up on that let's repeat old performances bit. Mm. Which is a good thing, I think. Anyway, aha, as they were saying in Norway around about this time, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Hollywood Beyond, Bluey Sum, Wixie out of EastEnders, <laughs> can you hear me, Maggie Thatcher? Your boys took one hell of a beating. <laughs> because at this moment in time, the kings of pop, the Vikings of pop, if you will, they're from Norge, and oh, they're fucking Gorge. <laughs> it's more foreigners, hooray. It's yeah. What Gary probably said is, oh, some more people from somewhere. Yeah, where are the English people in pop? What's going on? Mm. Here's the thing. Why did this not open the show? Mm. Whose idea was it to not have this? Uh, because it, this is not my favourite of Aha's many, many very, very good songs, but it's really not bad. It's propulsive without being too hectic. Mm. I know it's got some sort of compressed panpipes in there, but, you know, we can we can forgive that. Yeah. But it's, you know, this is this is what should have started off the show. I think I have some bad luck, actually. Maybe it's just me. I can't remember the last time that we did an episode and I was like, wow, that actually was a great start to the show. Yeah, yeah. It's usually something that's a bit lacking. Mm. I think, Sarah, if, say, before um, Sun Away Shines on TV got to number one, that would be a definitive show opener. It couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, mm. yeah. Whereas this, yeah, it is propulsive, but it's a little bit more melancholy and a little bit more down, so maybe they shunted it on mm. um, in preference of the big 
blustery nonsense from big country instead. Yeah. It's a commute song, isn't it? Uh, apparently based on the works of existentialist Norwegian writers and Dostoevsky, which is, you know, it's a bit of an advance on lovely girls and nice relationships, which bands of this ilk are supposed to be singing about. Yeah. It, it's essentially cardiac arrest by madness without the horrible ending. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure they've ever fully gotten their due as a really, really good band. They are, aha. Um, who are still, and they're still going out. It's not bad for a heritage act, you know, because mm. Their music is quite sort of grand and sophisticated with sort of oblique English as a second language lyrics. And yeah, this sort of pervasive melancholy. Mm. This is not like a melancholy led tune, but it's definitely in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, it permeates their whole sound like a sort of gentle mist. <laughs> I just have to point something out, by the way, that I didn't spot this. Um, but they've taped over the Yam in Yamaha. Yes. <laughs> Powell's Yamaha keyboard, he, he's blocked out the Yam <laughs> on the side. Well done. So it reads Aha. Yeah. And then he picks it up and wanders over to Morton so they can do a bit of a quo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> which is nice. It looks really heavy as well. I think he regretted it. Yeah, but... it's not a keytar, is <laughs> it? It's not a keytar. Although I should say, in the Moon Bears, I did stick I Only Want to Help You in front of Roland on my yes. keyboard. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic way. Um, well, how do we feel about keytars, by the way? If there was one line about, I'd definitely have a go on it's it. It's so clearly one of those things where someone had the idea mm. and went, well, is there any reason we couldn't do this? Like, well, no, maybe. The trouble is they've become <laughs> hipster um, uh, keytars now. Mm. Whereas there is was, was one photograph for which I excuse the existence of keytars, and that's of James Brown at his worst, looking really groggy, and big and fucked. Um, and he's playing a keytar with a big grin on his face. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, more Euroness. Mm, indeed. And of course, until very recently, the British opinion of Norwegian pop was that it solely existed to provide a string of entertaining null pointers in the Eurovision Song Contest. Mm. But last year, the hardcore rockabilly sound of Bobby Sox took the continent by the throat <laughs> with leather swinger, leather rock and roll. They'll be hosting Eurovision in a couple of weeks time and now a horror have come along hmm. fucking hell everything's coming up norway and the norwayness is important in as i mean i know we shouldn't draw national characteristics like this like but we're going to we're going to well i, <laughs> I mean you do start thinking of wintry kind of melancholy and gloom um, mm. that, that, that is threaded through throughout Aha's work. And I totally agree with Sarah. Aha are majorly underrated. Mm. Their first couple of albums are fantastic records. But they were never comfortable, really, I think, with the roles they were being shoved into. In 86, mm. pop needed, a, in a sense, a new Duran Duran, yes. you know, this new monolith. And I feel Aha was so, uh, sort of somewhat unfairly ushered into that role mm. with Harkett as the new Le Bon, because he was so fucking gorgeous. Yes. And you mentioned them, actually, Al. If you can say this sort of big Big three of pop were on their way out. You know, Joanna failing at this point. Spandau are definitely failing. Mm. And Wham are splitting up. Then Ahara are the kind of only likely contenders yes. to replace all those posters on the wall, you mm. know, and get that screaming hysteria back. And you look at the two other big pop happenings of late 85, 86. Curiosity killed the Cat and Five Star. They're not going to fill that space. No. Uh, but, you know, it's very telling as well that Aha rapidly become not only a watchword for pop, but you start seeing in interviews, you know, proper bands saying, you know, we're not fucking Aha. Yeah. Much as they would have said, you know, we're not fucking Wham or we're not fucking Kajigugu a few years earlier. In other words, we're not successful. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I mean, all of this masks the actual kind of melancholy and gloom of Aha's work. 
work. They start off their career with one of the biggest pop video smashes of the entire 80s. Mm. And then they seem to spend the rest of the 80s kind of retreating from that glare of attention that they get. Yes. You know? I can't say I was actually massively into Waha early on because Take On Me grew old pretty fast for me. Right. But The Sun Always Shines on TV, uh, uh, that turned my head around completely because mm. I thought it was ace. Mm. And then the album also had a couple of corkers on it, non-singles. Yeah. But also this, and that there's this kind of interesting rub in a ha between the obvious total hotness at Morton Harkin. Mm. Well, they're all good-looking the di- lads, aren't they? They are. They're a good-looking bunch of lads, yeah. but... There's this dismalism in the lyrics mm. <laughs> and the music. The music's kind of big, but it's also kind of associates-like. It's kind of Ultravox-like, mm. um, which, which contrasts with the role they're being set up for. Yeah. They were never going to be perhaps as consistently massive as Duran were early on. Mm. Um, but there's some amazing, you know, Hunting High and Low, Crywolf. Things like Train of Thought I actually really like, and I really like Manhattan Skyline as well, um, oh, even God, though they're yeah. never really going to bother the top three. Mm. Duran kind of had this thing not desperation but um, I'd say Duran always managed to add something new every now and then to show that they were sort of vaguely attentive to what was going on and sort of were progressive Aha didn't they were not that kind of band they were, they were much more not traditional. They were almost an indie-minded band who'd become pop stars. Mm. They just seemed massively uncomfortable as well with a vital part of the pop process, at least in the UK, which is being a gobby bitch in the pages <laughs> of Smash Hits, you know, confessing all. They never really did that. I mean, even at this point, they've had a number one hit, you know, and they've got this massively selling album out. You know, what did we really know about Aha that wasn't sort of dragged out of them reluctantly? Mm. In interviews, they're quite serious. They're kind of amused at UK pop daftness, yes. but they're not really participating in it. They're more likely to discuss Kierkegaard than bitch about Pete Murphy yeah. or something. <laughs> so there's that kind of little bit of, of Nordic distance mm. as well. I mean, they're um, all good-looking yeah. lads, but th- then again, Ooh. I've been to Norway, and trust me, you could go anywhere in that country and swing a big fucking long chain about and ensnare at <laughs> three other blokes who are just as good-looking, because right. Norwegians, man, are <laughs> extremely... Extremely dolly-looking race of people. Mm. You know, when I went there, the minute I stepped off the plane, I thought, A, fucking hell, is proper code. B, I've never seen a sky that pale blue before. And C, immediately feeling like fucking Gollum. (laughs) You just looked around and thought, oh, please don't look at me, I'm English. I was there about 23 years ago to give a speech at Bylarm, their music business conference, Mm -hmm. about how the porn business was making loads of money off the internet while the music business was losing it. Mm. And when I got there, I was told that it had been an ongoing local news story expressing outrage that a respected industry event was about to be sullied (laughs) by a smut peddler from London. And I was told, and I never saw this, and I fucking wish I could see this. I was told that there was even an editorial cartoon about it, consisting of someone who was supposed to be me, in a big white fur coat and a gold (laughs) chain, drooling over the fair maidens of Tromso. So you can imagine their disappointment when I fucking turned up, in my suit, looking like a gay football hooligan. (laughs) But oh, yeah, man. you just looked around and went, fucking hell, everyone's attractive. Even the horrible cunts that you see in any pub, mm. they were attractive. I was having a piss, and the bloke next to me said, hey, English, I fuck your bitch. <laughs> and I just stood there, had a bit of a shake, and just thought to myself, well, I haven't got a girlfriend at the minute, mate, but if I did, yeah, she'd definitely think about it, because you're, you're a decent-looking bloke. What's up with you? Go and talk to some women instead of me. 
But anyway, this single. I really like this track. I really do. Yeah. It really works as the second track off the album as well, because it's straight after Take On Me, and it suggests the album's going to be different from that although i should say mm. you know we're saying oh aha majorly underrated there has been something of a resurgence in recent years in terms of like you know serious bands saying that they were massively influential on them so you know yeah. coldplay mm. did an interview where they went on about um aha and keen and it, liam gallagher and adam clayton said in an interview right um from you too he, he he described aha as a rather misunderstood band they were looked upon as a group for teenage girls but in reality they were a very creative band you know as if teenage girls mm. can't be into anything creative i don't want coldplay or keen to be their legacy <laughs> but they're they are majorly underrated actually aha uh-huh. and and, and yeah. I, I like this track i mean it, perhaps it is my brain being racist but um, there's a sort of impossibility of throwing off the dim traces of abba in what they do i i hear a slight similarity mm. to lay all your love on me in the verses in, in the groove of it mm. they were like you say that they're meant to be the next duran but they what was beautiful about them um beyond the cheekbones was that they always seem reluctant with that um, they'd made mm. themselves stars and then they kind of spent the rest of their time retreating away from that spotlight. Yeah. I think that happens with a lot of people. Because yeah. you can't possibly know what it's like until you're there. You know, yeah. It's like anyone else. They wanted to do the thing and they did the thing and then some stuff came with it that they probably had to just endure. Mm. You know? Yeah, I don't want to do this interview on fucking Saturday Superstore. Can't you just draw a cartoon of me <laughs> talking to Mike Reed, please? <laughs> they do resist being anyone's like favourite band just because there's a certain... And again, I don't want to um, draw the kind of broad cultural assumptions either, but people grow up in a culture and they reflect it, you know, and it comes out there's a certain aloofness, you know, there's this great magnetism that you are drawn to. And then there's an aloofness that keeps you from fully, madly loving them. You know, mm. like I, I, I am very, very fond of Aha, and not just because, as previously stated, Morton Harkett is a singularly handsome man. Uh, <laughs> the thing is that with with yeah, they're all good looking, but. It's like he's just preposterously like he just and he he kind of knows it as well. Yeah, and he stayed good looking for ages as well. Like yeah, forever, yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's but that he has this little smirk that is very is a very knowing smirk that he sort of wears all the time. He just has resting smirk face, really. Mm. Um mm. which is great, which is a great thing for a pop star to have where it's just like that confidence that puts you at ease and goes, yes, I'm looking at a pop star now and uh, everything is right with the world. That person should be on that stage, you know. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, um, also, I don't think people are really responsible for um, whoever is influenced by them, you know. It's yeah, like no, that's, no, true, true. that's something true. that happens, you know. But yeah, sometimes you, you do get a bit um, Johnny Marr about it and just go, who said, why do you, you David Cameron, you, you don't like the Smiths. Yeah, I, f- I forbid you, mm. I forbid you to like it. And also they look very 1986, but they don't look like a bunch of cunts, do they? No. No. I mean, this is the era of the ripped jean. Mm. One of the few fashions of the era that have been picked up upon by our worthless and disappointing youth. <laughs> but, um, Morton's look like he's put them through a fucking wood chipper, man. They are <laughs> shredded. I reckon they were expensive as well. Like, I've seen... Mm. There's a video, um, I can't remember which one it is now, but he's wearing those exact same ones with the exact same rips in a video. So they're mm. obviously faves of his. And uh, maybe this was like a challenge within the group, like, see how long you can get away with wearing these jeans before they actually oh, fall no, apart. They, they, They've been pre-ribbed, yeah. Because no. there's no there's no rippage around the crotch. Do people do people do that? that? Do people actually do that? 
I thought that all the ripped jeans were just like it was because they were poor and they had to just wear the same jeans all the time. No, Seriously, no, people did it. People this has blown my mind. <laughs> like people actually, who would do that? Who would wear ri- deliberately ripped jeans? I mean, that's I would send them back. I would say I've I've received these jeans in the post. Well, no, it's it's 1986. There's there's no such thing as receiving jeans in the post. I suppose. Well, I would go. I I I didn't realise until I got them home. These have got tears in them. It was an era of jeans adaptation, wasn't it, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sitting in the bath with them and all that. Yeah. Sorry, I fear that I'm not taken seriously when I say things on this podcast. <laughs> and it's like, do you think I'm some sort of child of, of the forest who has been a foundling who didn't know about ripped jeans? But it is, it's a cla- This is. I think he, he wears this quite a lot because it really suits him. Mm. It is a classic look, isn't it? White shirt, black belt, ripped jeans, black Boots, bracelets, big hair, necklace, cheekbone, sweet Morton <laughs> What's the most ripped jeans you've ever worn? <laughs> you see, I never did. You know, now when you get ripped jeans, it's like there's rips up the thigh bit. Yeah. For me, it was always about the knees, just the, the knees, knees. Yes. Yeah, yeah. to the point where yeah, it was like a Chelsea grin all the way round, and and your knee was sticking out. Yeah. It was always a knee thing, not those upper rips. Which seems to be all the vogue mm. these days. I don't know if they still are, but I got some from a few years ago that are black with like a, a scattering of, of subtle sort of frayed bits on the thighs. Slits. Yeah, just like little, you know. So you can't mm. really see, you, you know. It's it's they're not sort of. But yeah, I've I've seen some that uh, really really push the boundaries mm. of actual garment. I had a mate at university whose jeans were severely fucking ripped to the point where there was more holes than denim. <laughs> But also around the crotch, and he teamed up with boxer shorts <laughs> with a hole in them. So we'd be sitting on the tube, mm. I'd to lean over and go, mate, mm. your fucking bollocks are oh, hanging no, out. That's the Swiss cheese thing, isn't it? It's like when the holes align, mm. then it's all, it's all over. Yeah. Also, sorry, when you rip your jeans, right, you know you've got these like, big strands hanging down. What do you do with them? Mm. Do you clip them or do you just leave just them? Leave them. Yeah, because mine always got too bloody long to the point where right. the threads were sort of dangling down to my fucking shoes. So I was like just look- Roger Daltrey's fringe <laughs> jacket. <laughs> That's it. I could never quite get that look right. Mm. But, but it's a remarkable year for them, really. They have a number one single. They have a ton of hits. Yeah. I mean, they've got, they've got a fair few records getting in the charts this year. It is their, it's their big year, isn't it, for a half? Yes, they've just announced their first tour of the UK at the end of the year, which is immediately sold out. They played two dates at the, um, at the Royal Concert Hall in Nottingham, which was a huge fucking deal. Mm. Morton's also about to become the first teeny lust object to have socks thrown at him at gigs <laughs> instead of knickers. <laughs> Apparently, during a tour of Japan, he was interviewed and said that the downside of being a pop star was that he never had the time to wash his own socks oh. and had to lob them out after wearing them, which resulted in thousands of Japanese fans sending their local label socks, rather in the manner of the ATV studios, being deluged by knitted woolly hats when Benny couldn't find his in an episode of Crossroads. <laughs> As it was Japan, you can imagine there were really nice socks in really mm. ornate packaging. Mm. That's brilliant. I mean, for me, he's mm. like Nick Kershaw, man. If I met him, I would not be able to speak. Because he's just too pretty, isn't he, Morton? He, he still is. I didn't know this. You equate Morton Alkett with Nick Kershaw on that. They similarly would leave me speechless. Right. Meeting them, in a way that sort of more important figures to me musically wouldn't. Right. Because I'd immediately just blush and giggle. And <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I never knew you felt this way about. Oh, Nick massively. Yeah, I would. I would agree. Massively, Matt, and he still looks amazing, Nick Kershaw, as well. Mm. Um, it's just something about him. Yeah, he's he is adorable. Wouldn't it be good, eh, Neil? 
I've got two strong arms. And they absolutely belong on top of the pops. They're, they're, they're so yes. good on this show. Yeah. You know, in contrast to the kind of slightly embarrassing things they're forced to do elsewhere. Um, at the end of this appearance, uh, I think Gary Davis mentions the tour. Yes. Um, that's coming up later. And, you know, when that tour um, actually starts later on in the year, the kind of first TV appearance of Aha in that period is on Blue Peter. Um, Ooh. Yeah. And he's on Blue Peter. That For some reason, you know, it's actually Blue Peter is the show on which the Cry Wolf video makes its debut. Really? And, yeah. And, and, and you've got Janet Ellis there going, and here's Morton just back in the country making friends with Bonnie. And, and there's, oh. you know, Morton being slobbered over by Bonnie and the big Blue Peter Labrador. While Janet asking questions about the tour. And the other presenter, Mark Curry, he tries to give Morton a Blue Peter badge. Right. Um, <laughs> and he says, just in case Crywolf doesn't get to number one, which I'm sure it will, you'll have to share oh. it with the whole band. It's a weird first appearance back, but they're, they're much more comfortable in this milieu on top of the pops. I've been on the piss with Janet Ellis. She's fucking mint. <laughs> About 20 years ago, I was doing an article for the Daily Mirror where I was essentially being Jimmy Savile and getting in touch with people who wrote uh, TV shows like right. Jim Will Fix It or Blue Peter to, to mm-hmm. do things, and they never got a response. So I'd make their dreams come true. And one woman wrote to Blue Peter, never got a response. So me and Janet Ellis went round her house and we made a dog cake. <laughs> It was really good. I was really impressed. And we went to the pub afterwards. And yeah, we had a bit of a session. Janet Ellis, by that time, had developed the filthiest laugh I've ever heard (laughs) on a woman. It was just like, oh, you're fucking mint. (laughs) That was the article where we went around Tony Hart's house as well. So yeah. You went around Tony Hart's house? Glory days. How was he? He was mint. The only thing about him was he didn't have a cravat on. He had his shirt open, but no cravat. So it it was like he was standing there with his bollocks (laughs) out. But a lovely bloke. Yeah. I imagine. So I imagine Janet was, you could tell. With some kids' presenters, you could tell that they're a bit naughty off screen. So the following week, Train of Thought dropped five places to number 13. The follow up, Hunting High and Low, got to number five in June. And they finished off the year with the singles I've Been Losing You and Cry Wolf, getting to number eight and number five for two weeks in October and January of 1987, respectively. And their second LP, Scoundrel Days, got to number two for a fortnight in. In October and they spent the rest of the 80s and early 90s as a regular chart concern until they split up for the first time in 1994 Aha, they're about to start on their first world tour Australia next month Uh, And also, we'll see him here in this country in December. Right now, here's some closer look at the charts. It's the top 40 breakers. And up 13 places to number 27, it's Suzanne Vega and Marlena on the wall. Davis on a stage with an applauding hand in the bottom corner, which is the nearest we've seen of an actual audience member so far, tells us that Aha are off to Australia and we've got to wait six months to see them. He then pivots to the breakers section and first up is Marlena on the Wall by Suzanne Vega. 
Born in Santa Monica in 1959, Suzanne Vega was the daughter of a Swedish-German computer analyst mother and an English dad who divorced soon after she was born. Two years later, after her mum married the Puerto Rican teacher and novelist Eduardo Vega, she was relocated to New York and eventually studied dance at the High School of Performing Arts, the actual kids from fame Mm. school. While studying English Lit at Bernard College in the Aventis, she got properly stuck into the music scene of Greenwich Village, putting herself about at assorted folk venues, and in 1984 she landed a deal with A&M, was linked up with Lenny Kay, the Nuggets compiler and guitarist for Patti Smith, and her debut LP, Suzanne Vega, was put out in May of 1985. It led to rapturous reviews in the American music press and a live review in the New York Times which called her the Joni Mitchell of the 80s. This single from her debut LP was put out over here last year but only got to number 83 in November of 1985. It's the follow-up of sorts to Small Blue Thing which got to number 65 in January. It was re-released last month, entered the charts at number 92, then soared 31 places to number 61, and then took three weeks to nimbly scale the ladder to number 40. This week, it soared another 13 places to number 27, and here she is, on top of the pops for the first time ever, in a minute and a half of video. More non-English people, what's going on? (laughs) Well, here's a turn-up, chaps. Here's a lady singer-songwriter strumming away on an acoustic guitar in 1986. And in 1986, singer-songwriter means hippies and flares and peace, man. Mm. The thing is... What's going on here? I think when you're this good, it doesn't actually matter what else is going on in the culture at the time. Mm. God, I fucking love Suzanne Vega. She's so New York, and she's such Mm. an intelligent and emotionally intelligent and exacting songwriter. And a really beautiful singer. And, I mean, there are songs of hers that I can't think about without welling up, you know. But it, it, it's precisely that it is 86 that, that necessitates this kind of thing. I mean, mm. it, it, you can say, you know, what's a singer-songwriter doing in this period? But that's why, uh, you know, uh, I don't think Suzanne Vega is part of any folk revival, by the by. But, you mm. know, a folk revival is a constant threat in a way. Because it, it, it always <laughs> means the same thing. It always means a retreat into yeah. something small and intimate and personal rather than the big mm. and the universal and the stadium-sized. It's, it's this desire mm. not to be larger than life, but to be as small as life. Mm. And I think that's what Vega is appealing to in a big, big way. So no matter how big and brash the era, there will always be people who come to success precisely because they offer an alternative to that. She was a pretty big deal round about this time, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. I mean, five months from now, I'm going to be at a better college doing a drama and English course. And Suzanne Vega was fucking massive amongst all the women on my course. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was right up there with Sylvia Plath. If Suzanne Vega had done a song called Fuck Off Ted Hughes, <laughs> it would have been a fucking anthem at my college. And if you wanted to be around these girls, and you did, uh, you better be prepared to listen to a shitload of small blue thing and undertow. Well, no, it's just that Vega is one of the first artists that taught me that taste doesn't matter. And I don't mean that in a critical way of Suzanne Vega. What I mean is when I first met mm. my missus, she was a huge Suzanne Vega head. And, mm. you know, 
you, you realise at that point, look, shared taste isn't what compatibility is about. And actually, I got into Suzanne Vega because my wife played her a lot. Mm. And I, I just wanted to pick up on one thing Sarah said about the New Yorkness. I think mm. that's hugely important. Um, yes. There's a real Seinfeld thing to Vega's appeal. You know every single <laughs> character in Friends listened to Suzanne Vega before they actually moved to yeah. New York. Yeah, and she's definitively yeah. a New York artist with all the attendant sort of references that go along with that, you know, coffee shops and diners and restaurants and bohemianism. Mm. But, you know, in interviews, she's a fuck shite sharper than these sort of characterizations, if a way. She was, she was smart enough not to let her fame, and it was big fame, derail her mm. and she's still doing great is, is Suzanne Vega who's buying this in 86 is I'd say it's kind of Janice Long listeners a bit and Andy Kershaw listeners perhaps mm. but those pop listeners ultimately who want a bit more substance I guess not necessarily disgusted mm. with modern pop but they're not fully committed to going entirely underground and, and actually when you dig into the songs on those first couple of albums by Suzanne Vega she's a remarkable songwriter this is one of my favourites of hers because I'm, I'm just that basic but I mean I I know that she thinks of it as like sort of juvenile now, but um, right. she's a songwriter who sort of writes about emotional truth and will draw on her own life experience without necessarily literally translating it into her songs. You know, mm. some of them are like, I mean, Tom's Diner, I think, is really about a moment that, that really happened. But um, this, she said, is more broadly, it's about like coping with loneliness. And she mm. did actually have a poster of Marlena Dietrich, movie goddess, activist and rampant bisexual badass on her wall. Mm. She didn't necessarily have what sounds like a succession of one night stands under it. But it's a pretty good way to illustrate the feeling of being deeply alone in yourself. This kind of line of anonymous dicks, you know, it's mm. like the loneliness <laughs> of the long distance shagger. It's quite a sort of <laughs> studenty song in yeah. a way. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's in, in the best way. I mean, for me, it kind of, it always sounded like she's sort of communing with this poster, which is smirking down at her, possibly mm. for only doing it with boys when there are so many hot girls out there, darling. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, she's drawing strength kind of not from the sex and not from the wall art, but from, you know, the depths of herself. And I think it's mm. about being sort of young and ridiculous and not finding fulfilment in the usual young person shit, but seeing a way ahead beyond that. Because not everybody suits mm. being young either. Like, I definitely didn't make the most of it because I was just like it's like there's a certain awkwardness like this time in my life doesn't fit and I kind of want to get past it you know mm. so like just seeing a way ahead to like maturity and authenticity and a bigness mm. of self that you don't get in a skinny student bed with a mattress like a slice of sun blessed mm. no She's usually appealing to the awkward. <laughs> when she's touring this year, when she plays in Manchester, she, she says to the audience it's really special for her to be in Manchester because it's Morrissey's town. And I, I think yes. there is that appeal. And, and look, there's no point hiding it. I sort of quite fancied Suzanne Vega in 1986. Oh, yeah. The trouble was, what I found when I used to read interviews with Suzanne Vega is that interviewers, especially male interviewers, they did the usual thing of not failing to mention her appearance. You know, they had to do that. Mm. Um, but then they all almost try and draw her into kind of criticising female pop figures. And, 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 and yes. Vega would do that. You know, when, Ve when Vega's asked about Madonna, she's quite critical of Madonna and things like that. Which is pretty ironic because she auditioned for Madonna's part in Desperately Seeking Susan yeah, yeah. the other year. In a way, 
you know, going to the to the Fame School. I mean, not that it was called the Fame School. Mm. It was a very New York thing, and, th- and those things are going to be hugely appealing. Yeah, the New Yorkness is hugely important, and I think you know, the Tom Steiner is the actual. You know, it refers to the exact restaurant that they use in Seinfeld, so that's why I make that connection in my mind. Right. To be fair to Vega, I, I think she was like everyone else is going get, to start getting sort of pigeonholed, start getting put into a certain category. She was always a little bit too smart for that, I think, mm. and that's why she kept her sanity through this huge success because I mean this the album this is from it goes platinum you know it sells a fucking lot of records yeah there's a lot of people in the UK sipping mugs of gold blend wishing <laughs> that they were flicking through the village voice in a brownstone <laughs> him out the Halifax advert showing off his new cash point card mm. he's probably got this on his CD player in his converted warehouse <laughs> when he's got the ladies around yeah but I mean she's great also at stepping into characters and kind of not mm. not making it a, a, a sort of whiny thing in any way she's observant mm. And I think she's just mm. a good writer. Um, she, know, yeah. she knows how to observe. She also knows how to let other people speak in her songs. Uh, yeah. and, and consequently, you know, these things stick around a bit longer than it just being, hey, look, if you don't like what's going on in modern pop, this is different. Um, mm. That It sustains a bit longer than that. It's not just a reaction to what's going on. There's something unique about it in itself. Yeah, it's just, she's mm. just so fucking beguiling. I, go, I can hardly stand it. <laughs> so the video... A&M have dragged her into the 80s by running a bit of synthiness through the song and uh, dropping another regulation 80s big jacket on her because this is the time when all pop stars had to look like a five-year-old who's just broken into the dad's wardrobe. (laughs) The shoulder pads had got out of control at this point. Oh, God, yeah. And that's juxtaposed with her doing as much of a sex as she wants to, which involves wearing a cocktail dress and adjusting her stockings and applying her lip hair. And there's an extra in Bonfire of the Vanity's trying it on with her. She is being very much positioned as the anti-Madonna here, isn't she? Yeah, there is a bit of that. She looks, she looks great. She looks great. The trouble yeah. is with this video, and it's not actually a problem with this video, it's the problem with its context in this episode of Top of the Pops, is I was watching it and I was just thinking, when's Gary Davis going to interrupt? When's Gary Davis going to interrupt? How long oh, is this no. going to last? How long is this going to last? You know? Uh, Never mind that. Here's my shopping list for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that sense of rushness that they've actually got too much to actually fit into half an hour, so it's going to be a bit breakneck. It, yeah, it just mm. makes it not for a relaxing or even exciting experience in a sense because you just think this is going to get spoiled much as a daytime DJ is going to talk over the best bit of a record something's Mm. going to happen here that's going to annoy me but she's put over far better in this video than she would be on that neon step Yeah, yeah I'm not entirely sure that would have worked at all no especially if the lights were in their full pelt kind of swirling around thing yeah and what would the crowd do I mean, well, we don't see him anyway, so who gives a fuck? <laughs> she would definitely have looked out of place and it would have felt uncomfortable, even though she's got that very above it cool that you know can cope with anything yeah and crucially i i don't think vega ever came across really as as perhaps what andy kershaw or somebody might have said about her oh an author i mean you mentioned actually the word sarah authentic there is an authenticity to vega but she's also i'm not saying authentic about her inauthenticity but there's mystery there as well it's it's not just you know here's my here's my soul mm. here's everything uncovered there's something 
playful and poetic mm. about what she does that keeps her interesting i think rather than just being you know here's something i forged in the smithy of my soul it's a bit more thoughtful and playful than that yeah so yeah you know her, her time in the chart was fleeting but you could argue that she kicked the door back open for the likes of tracy chapman and katie lang and tori amos and and all that lot. oh undoubtedly because each one of them will yeah. be compared to her almost immediately yeah i mean it, it's the laziness as well i mean what it's kind of what you said you know she's the 80s Joni Mitchell she's not she's absolutely not really no no, no one can be the, the Joni Mitchell of the 80s was Joni Mitchell well if there was a Joni Mitchell of the 80s it was probably actually Prince but um you know yes this, this is the laziness of uh it's what we were talking about earlier in that you know in in that singles review page lump all the, the female singers together um under that title yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't like that yeah. either. However, I I have to weakly defend it in the sense of like the, the fewer people there are to compare, then the fewer people there are to compare. You mm, know? So yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind mm. of it, it's the sin was committed like earlier before it reaches that that level. But also, it's about stature, yeah. isn't it? It's not necessarily comparing musically, but once you get a bit of perspective on it, and you go, okay, this person is is up there with you know the greats and i think it's very at that point it's fair enough to talk about her in in you know the context of, of Joni mitchell oh and it did the job i mean it mm. got assigned so yeah. yeah yeah so it has its uses mm. so the following week marlena on the wall jumped six places to number 21 its highest position the follow-up, Left of Centre, which was part of the soundtrack of Pretty in Pink and featured Joe Jackson on piano, got to number 32 in July, and she rounded off the year with Gypsy only getting to number 77 in November. She roared back, sort of, in June of 1986 when Luca spent two non-consecutive weeks at number 23 and then spent the rest of the 80s as a bit player in the lower reaches of the top 100. But her biggest hit was DNA's remix of Tom's Diner, her 1987 single, which got to number 58 in July of that year, and it spent three weeks at number two in August of 1990. Held off number one by the more hardcore Turtle Power by Partners in Crime <laughs> and the UK underground banger Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini by Bomb Ballerina. Oh, God. 1990, what were you like? Yeah, she's reminding us all of that. Tom's Diner Day is November the 18th, 1981. That's when... That's when it happened. That's when that that devastating resonant moment that has been immortalised in song actually happened. So it's like it was a good day by Ice yeah. Cube. Someone worked out what day <laughs> that was when the Lakers beat the Supersonics. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it, in so many ways. It's exactly like that. <laughs> good old Suzanne Vega. She had a nice cup of coffee and she didn't have to use her AK. <laughs> <laughs> This is the highest new entry on the chart this week, the anti-drug song, which is called Just Say No, at number 26, the cast of Grange Hill. Mesopotamia in 3400 BC, OP 
Opium began its career as a forage <laughs> medicine for assorted ailments, which caught on throughout Asia and the Far East via imports from its label, the East India Company. In 1898, during a tour of Germany, morphine, the front alkaloid of the group, teamed up with a biopharmaceutical company in Elberfeld to form an offshoot called Heroin. After starting its career as an over-the-counter morphine substitute cough remedy, which became very popular across Germany, heroin <laughs> crossed the Atlantic and started to collaborate with jazz musicians such as Billy Holiday, Ray Charles and Charlie Parker. By the 60s, heroin started to take on rock influencers, working with Eric Clapton, John Lennon, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin before falling out of favour in the mid-70s. In 1977, however, heroin supported Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers on their tour of the UK, (laughs) which introduced it to a string of punk acts and underwent a revival, which was boosted by a deluge of cheap imports from Iran and Afghanistan that flooded the British market. By early 1984, heroin, by now in its imperial phase, had become (laughs) so popular throughout the UK, there had been an estimated increase of addicts numbering 40% year on year, with a Guardian report of the day quoting a government expert who said, LSD was a drug of the 60s. It was supposed to expand the mind to take in new horizons. Heroin is the drug of the 80s. It blocks out the pain and the hopelessness of unemployment and the bleakness of the future. Meanwhile, over in stateside USA, Nancy Reagan, the first lady who was looking for something to do when she wasn't telling a senile knobend of her husband where to go on on what date, according to what her personal astrologer said, and allegedly giving Frank Sinatra a scene to when he was out doing those things, visited a school in Oakland where she was asked by one of the kids about what to do if someone offered them the drugs. Taking her cue from an advertising slogan that was floating around at the time, she just said just say no while she was spearheading the anti-drug message over there throughout 1985 appearing on episodes of different strokes punky brewster and flintstone babies as well as the music video stop the madness which featured new edition latoya jackson david hasselhoff herb alpert arnold schwarzenegger casey Kasem, boogaloo shrimp and stacy keach whose appearance was edited out at the last minute when he was busted for coke the bbc decided <laughs> Decided to pitch in and in July of 1985 broadcast Drug Watch, a two hour, ten minute melange of Crime Watch and That's Life, which combined Nick Ross telling us what drugs were, Esther Ranson having assorted interviews with parents of drug addicts, a panel of politicians and medical experts, and assorted celebrities. In one piece on Drug Watch, documenting how the Americans were dealing with the drug problem over there, they aired a clip of a music video, which was written by Al Gorgone, who played guitar on Leader of the Pack, Brown Eyed Girl, The Sound of Silence, Walk Like a Man and Chapel of Love, and George McMahon, who was working at the time with Denise Williams. The video was being aired non-stop on MTV and was entitled Just Say No. 
As part of the BBC's campaign against drug abuse, they enlisted the services of Grange Hill, which was formed in Northam, North London in 1978, and had immediately got into trouble with the BBC, parents, teachers and politicians for encouraging the youth to die in swimming pool accidents, <laughs> put grasshoppers in Roland Sandwich and say flipping egg, but was <laughs> rightly lapped up by the youth for depicting real kids' issues. (laughs) Consequently, on January the 6th of this year, the nine series of Grain Chill began with Zamo Maguire, played by Lee MacDonald, showing off his new motorbike and attempting to rig the weight of Mr Kennedy's moustache in order to win six quid. Then he went on to sell his bike and started to ponce money off everyone, including Roland Browning, who now worked part-time in an amusement arcade where Zamo had been knocking about with assorted wrong-uns. And on February the 21st, the mystery was resolved when Roland found Zamo on the floor with a bit of foil in his hand, having chased the dragon and receiving a smack on the nose. Just over a fortnight ago, directly after the final episode of the current series of Grange Hill, where Zamo's been busted after being found with a wrap of smack secreted in his pocket calculator, Drugwatch aligned with Newsround and Grange Hill in a triforce of televisual drug prevention in the programme It's Not Just Zamo which culminated with the world premiere of a cover of Just Say No, performed by the cast of the TV show, which was rushed out on BBC Records, with all proceeds going to the Standing Committee of Drug Abuse, otherwise known as SCODA. It came out last week and has immediately launched itself into the chart like a sausage on a fork, becoming this week's highest new entry at number 26. And here is a clip of the video. And oh my God, Pulp Craze Youngsters, I hope you've had a big tea because we've got a long day ahead of us talking about this one. Fucking hell. Indeed. A lot to talk about here. So, heroin. Mm. Don't know what the fuss is all about. I can handle it. <laughs> Just got a touch of the flu today. So, yeah, let's place ourselves back in 1986. I'm 17, mm-hmm. Neil's 12, Sarah's 7 or 8. What did you know about drugs at the time? Well, I mean, like you say, I was young, um, 12 going on 13. I hadn't really come across drugs. I'd had friends who'd done drugs. At that age? Yeah, kind of, I mean, not not sort of serious drugs. And they're not silly drugs like paracetamol and a can of Coke either. Um, you know, glue, butane, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, yeah. But, you know, um, but in contrast to the way I became as an adult, I was kind of cautious about drugs before getting to mm. drugs. Not because, I, I hasten to add, of things like just say no, but because of a cautionary experience that taught me that, you know, if I got out of my face, I'd get caught, just like I did with everything. Right. Because I, I got um, arrested by the British Transport Police. Um, no! Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, uh, How old I was were you? about 13, 14. And, All right. Um, yeah, and, and I, I thought it was a bright idea to drink an entire bottle of gin at Memorial Park in Coventry. Um, right. And uh, then went, for some reason, to the cafe at the station and woke up in a pile of vomit. And oh. um, the British Transport Police, not proper coppers, but British Transport Police, they, they took me upstairs at the station and put me in a cell <gasps> and found me mum. 
And so the sight of that cell door swinging open and my mum stood there silhouetted against the uh, the harsh light of Coventry Station, that kind of stuck with me. And it, oh, <laughs> it got, I mean, she didn't actually bollock me. She, I, I think she realised the shame was enough. But um, mm. yeah, that kind of put me off drugs a little bit. So soap bar and red lab and speed and acid and mushrooms, they really only started becoming part of my life aged about 16. And, and, and at this point, when Just Say No comes out, beyond those few friends who did kind of glue and gas and stuff i wasn't really exposed to drugs but i do actually blame this record and the moral panic at the time and the inevitable way that getting back into 60s music makes you ever so curious about drugs you know hmm, mm. what's this heroin this guy's singing about sounds moorish um i blame all of that for my subsequent drug use right. but this did not help this record because it made straight edgeness so uncool so not loads mm. of drugs knocking about my life at the time but the, I, I blame this record for sending me that way sarah well i mean all the cool kids at my little west yorkshire cfe village school were skagged up to the eyeballs <laughs> at this time we used to call them right bloody pricks but as a compliment one time right they raided the brick house and rustic brass band practice room and found a kilo of primo afghani brown with a street value of two grand stuffed into the euphonium mm. of course we were too young so we just sniffed the prit sticks and dreamed <laughs> all that brasso line about those sarah <laughs> <laughs> well there was that that was like the gateway drug for everyone but um yeah i don't know i was no i was entirely innocent at the time mm. i was like all through school really like i don't remember but i wasn't like one of the cool kids or even one of the uncool cool kids mm. you know like people mm. talk about oh yeah i was an outsider at school yeah so you were cool then actually <laughs> i was neither of these so um i had no idea um i don't remember either i was i'm drawing a complete blank as to what like we got told about it or what we got taught about it we, there must have been something oh god there was just don't remember I, I recall this period being, a, a, you know, there's a growing barrage of propaganda about drugs in this period, mm. of which um, this was the culmination, really, this record. I'm 17 at the time, and I, I've got to admit, I knew and had experienced precisely fuck all. Mm. Like you, mm. Neil, mm. it was all glue round our way. But glue was on its way out by 1986. It's weird, isn't it? Because when, th- when I think about walking around in the early 80s, the sight of glue bags mm. was as common as, as kind of of those gas canisters are now yeah um but yeah you're right it was on its way out when i was 12 i had one sniff of my grandpa's tin of bostic and spent the rest of the night in an absolute state thinking well am i gonna die <laughs> yeah, now yeah <sighs> i'd left comprehensive school in 1984 and the only bit of drug education we ever got was when mr gallagher our science teacher spent an entire lesson telling us what happened to our bodies when we sniffed glue and it was proper shit mm. up and it was fucking brilliant and it's it's one of the two <laughs> lessons that stuck with me throughout all these years so good on you mr gallagher (laughs) but that was it at our school the teachers might as well have said you know don't poke a fucking lion in the face with a stick (laughs) on your way home tonight (laughs) even now in 1986 drugs are seen as something that only poshos and Mm. hippies did who can afford them around our way it was just say what (laughs) (laughs) to say eh I mean, round about this time, the nearest I got to drugs was going to Rock City or the garage and seeing a group of lads in leather jackets who looked like they could be the support Mm. band, uh, passing a needle about at the bar and pretending to inject themselves. (laughs) But looking back now, uh, it's obvious that it was all a cod and they were showing Mm. off because they were injecting it through the sleeves of their leather jackets. (laughs) But it was like, I was proper terrified, just got to the other end of the club. Yeah. They just weren't a thing round my way. I think this was probably... um, 
didn't. I was like too young to watch Grange Hill. Um, but this was probably my first inkling that drugs were even a thing in the world, you know. Mm. And it yeah. was mysterious and not in an alluring way, but in a sort of bemusing way. And I kind yeah. of got the message on some level because it's, mm. you know, as I'm sure we'll get into, it's so incredibly simplistic. I mean, at school, yeah, I do remember a lot of people wanting to take sociology specifically so they could do um, stuff on youth culture mm. because that's where all the drug information was and yeah. you were allowed to get the books that told you about acid and mm-hmm. mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was definitely seen as something that people did in the past. Yeah, yeah, or just that people did elsewhere in gritty cop drugs dramas and stuff like that yes it, it, it was never kind of yeah on the street or in front of you no which makes the moral panic sort of like really quite odd um mm. at this time and counterproductive obviously um, yeah unlike you i did get some sort of drug education at school right we got the propaganda from the government basically <laughs> that the, the before this campaign of drug watch there is that one-off never broadcast minder episode yes um, a little bit of give and take which is filmed and, and it's sent out it's, it's half an hour long and, it, and it's actually the last time cole and waterman play those characters because oh really the, yeah the series had actually ended by that point but they both decided to kind of do this because it's an important message and, and this mm. this little mini episode of minder is filmed and it's uh, sent out to schools by you know norman fowler at the dsl <laughs> and I, I recall it after that's disseminated to schools i seem to recall watching this far more than i than i recall um lenny henry also had a little video that he sent out to school called chasing the bandwagon which i doesn't i don't think i've watched it but a little bit of give and take the minder episode i didn't like minder so i think i turned off around about not turned off but mentally turned off and started Mm. looking out the window about 10 minutes in if it had been gideon (laughs) says no to drugs you you'd be a bit more interesting wouldn't you indeed different kettle of fish or ludwig we've got to start with that episode of drug watch because we've seen it haven't we where, I mm-hmm. mean, fucking. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. drug watch today sounds like Bill Oddie observing some spices having a fight in a shopping <laughs> precinct in Mansfield. But fucking hell, it's a remarkable document of the age, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. I mean, it, it's simultaneously sort of gogglingly odd because of the celebs involved. Oh, yes. But my God, it's deeply bleak as well. It starts with Nick Ross standing next to a groaning table of drugs to show your man what you should be looking for in your pants drawer when you're out. (laughs) You know, including a line of cocaine, which apparently costs £15, uh, next to some red and white striped straws like a dismembered Humphrey. And a (laughs) chunk of ash that you could club an elephant to death with. It's It's a fucking 900 a 99 bar I was just waiting for him to sneeze you know <laughs> and just just fuff it everywhere um, yeah, it, it does look like Sean Ryder's buffet table doesn't it yeah yeah. I love how he, he points out he goes um, this is marijuana the, the leaves it's like mate that is dill you and the BBC have all been had. <laughs> but then we get some fucking horrific interviews with parents who have lost their kids to drugs or mm, are losing mm. their kids to drugs or are working out how to kill them if they ever come back in the house looking for something to nick to get drugs with. I mean, that's the That's Life segment of it. and That's fucking horrible. Oh, God, yeah. When it steps outside of the studio and actually talks to people affected by the issue, fucking hell, it's, it, yeah. This is the era of threads, don't forget. And this yes. is kind of just as depressing. It's that colour palette, isn't it? That sort of yes. dingy, mm. sort of depressing 
look that that these things have and it's just you know and then the sort of weirdly like esther ranson is such a strange presence it's not that she's upbeat but she's got this sort of light twittering voice it's like ah yeah <laughs> it was just really really jingling my nerves yeah what a shame cyril fletcher wasn't there either or, or doc cox <laughs> talking about some jobs were drug dealer I couldn't watch all of it i have to be honest it was oh. so so unhappy it was awful um there was a, a woman who's talking about um her son who died yeah she's in the studio and esther ranson goes and like there's an audience there and there's mm. some guy who wants the mic and and the woman is like well i blame myself for my son's death mm. and esther takes the mic over to some random who goes yeah, I blame you too. Yeah, <laughs> and and no <laughs> one says wasn't it? No one says anything. There's no murmuring. There's no anything. Mm. It's it's so eerie. It's like ambient Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't David Mellor really small? <laughs> you see him on this panel of politicians, and he's fucking tiny. Well, that's probably not his fault, unless you know maybe maybe his mum did loads of drugs, and that was her fault. How did Antonio De Sancho get his fucking Chelsea shirt on? Mm. Would have been a kid's size, I would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, you would want it just over your head if you were being shagged by David Mellor. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, th- look, the thing is, Nick Ross is a deeply antagonising presence, I find. Mm. Um, him lecturing you, you just don't want it. Mm. It's simultaneously designed to do its job of saying the BBC are sort of like anti-drugs. And it mm. keeps on saying as well... Just in case you, you were tr- wondering. <laughs> yeah, we're going to give you the truth. We're going to give you a balanced thing. But it doesn't emerge like that. It, it emerges as being lectured by a load of grown-ups. Yes. And, you know, consequently, it doesn't really work. Mm. The celebs on it, though. Oh, man, yeah, well, me. the end bit is just fucking <laughs> remarkable. I mean, they announce a special guest near the end to sign a war with Just Say No plastered across it. And you think, well, this is obviously going to be Nancy Reagan because mm. right about this mm. time she would have pitched up on fucking Murrumbush Stanziger <laughs> if she could have banged on to him about drugs. But no, it's Lady fucking Die. It is. Yeah. Who, who signs the wall and then says nothing of worth to Esther. But but still, fucking hell. I know, it's a bit of a coup, that. Yeah. Um, and it provides a sort of, a, a kind of counterpoint to who we then see well, yes. around this world. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially a rounding up of the BBC bar, isn't it? It is, basically. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I mean, Diana kind of gets a pass from me forever because of what she did to break down the stigma of AIDS. You know, yes. it is quite surreal to see her just kind of wander onto the set. And say, well, of course, I thought this was a, a, a tremendously important subject, and I just had to come and put my name to it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. She's a fucking angel. Uh, <laughs> well, there is this reverence, isn't there, from everyone? Yes. And she has got star quality in terms of the kind of little hushed reverent silence that happens i understand why she would do it i understand why they'd want to get her you know like it is this whole thing much as it is mm. relevant to to most people i think the you can feel the idea behind it is that they just want to hammer down on this to put the fear of god into the kids before they even start to really think about what drugs even might be at all yeah. mm. Mm. it is quite bbc apocalypse isn't it like <laughs> <laughs> she does draw on the fact that she's a mother and she's worried about her kids taking I mean, drugs yeah we know how they turned out and i don't think drugs was what she needed to worry about yeah (laughs) so yeah but the people like spotting the pic because there's just there's a crowd just milling about and people chatting never ends you have to watch it about five or six times to get everyone after diana has signed the big drug watch wall everyone else just gets a sharpie and uh, adds their signature i've got a list yeah me too (laughs) <laughs> With my chart music head on, the, the first person I spotted, of course, was Simon Bates. Yeah. <laughs> He's accompanied by Noel Edmonds, mm. John Peel, mm. Terry Wogan, Susie Quattro, 
with a proper mum came back from Greenham Common and dad started sleeping in the spare bedroom haircut. <laughs> Des Lynham, Lenny Enre, Sebastian Coe. Yeah. He's so oily. I hate Sebastian yeah. Coe. <laughs> He's an oily man. Yeah, he does look proper captain of the cricket team, David Watts style, doesn't mm. he there? Yeah. Adamant. Yeah, chatting to Christopher Ryan. I, I Mike, the cool person. I'm so confused now. Yeah. But he's there to say, I don't want to say anything negative, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Rolf Harris, oh. who of course does a massive role for Roo. He does hog yeah. quite a large bit of what that a wall, fuck I, Surely a smackaroo would have had more impact. Like a horrifying <laughs> human marsupial hybrid lying in a pool of its own vomit with a needle sticking out of its weird little arm. We also have have Alison Moyer, mm. Mick Tolbert, Colleen Nolan, Sarah Green, Fluella Benjamin out of a dustbin, mm. Wendy Craig, oh, I didn't see yes. Ernie Wise, Barbara Dixon, Sandra Dickinson, Anna Carteret, Joanna Lumley, Pete Townsend, mm. I think Emlyn Hughes. Ooh. Bob Monkhouse, and of course, Jingle Nonce OBE. Yeah. And, and uh, Nigel Havers, did you mention him? No. Oh, he's there. But th- there's also signatures as well from uh, from people who obviously were uh, yeah. passing through the BBC and wanted to, you know, register their uh, displeasure with mm. drugs. Uh, they include Ian Jure, <laughs> Sue Cook, Leslie Crowther, Sting... Paul Weller, Shelley and Mike from Books Fizz, Spike Milligan, <laughs> Barry Cryer, Wendy Richard, Rula Lenska, John Craven, Samantha Fox, and Jonathan King. Mm. <gasps> fucking hell. I imagine if I was at home in a fucking bedsit taking smack. If, if I'd have known that <laughs> Barry Cryer was against it. I mean, God love Barry Cryer, but fucking out yeah it's an odd mix isn't it and it's uh, extremely odd mix <laughs> and the thing is like all of these celebs they're stood around because once they've signed the wall like there's not a lot for them to do there's no refreshments no. like let them at the buffet table that we saw earlier yes i think that's what brought half of them there you know too right are they giving out party bags afterwards <laughs> <laughs> the thing is to be totally fair most of these people and uh, will be on the level and won't have done drugs they'll have done worse things than much worse things but you know but a lot of them won't have done but ian jury eh, you know i know that sex and drugs and rock and roll is not meant to be taken literally yes! but but, yeah. but he liked a spliff, as I understand it. Yeah. He was, you know, he was mm. a he was a pothead. You know, see yeah. my dealer. He's called Simon. Um, yeah, yeah. it's kind of disappointing seeing his name on there. Actually, yeah, yeah. But the thing was, you could you could say, oh well, I'm just talking about heroin here. Yeah, really specifically. Mm. No one's going to say, well, you know, I do heroin. It's fucking me. <laughs> what's what's the problem? It's interesting as well, like that to kind of see the pre ecstasy landscape of of drugs as well, because obviously. This is the ecstasy is on its way over in Mark Armand at this point. So, you know, mm. that's this is going to hit soon. Mm. There was a really good moment, by the way, in that It's Not Just Zamo Newsround special where John Craven, I don't know whether mm. it was scripted or not, 
But um, he adds to all these warnings, you know, that you shouldn't do it and it's dangerous. You don't know what you're getting and all this sort of stuff. Mm. But he flips back into an almost sort of Victorian thing. He goes, it will bring disgrace upon you. (laughs) (laughs) These messages are destined to fail Mm. because no matter how they tart it up and hide it as kind of we're going to take an even-handed look at these things, it is just being hectored by grown-ups. It's all very Catholic, I think. Mm. There's this drilling down to the sense of shame that they feel is what is going to ultimately motivate people. Shame and and terror. Mm. Not even about the criminal aspect, but like the moral notion of like your sinful desires and the pollution of the body. You know, it's like only the corrupt would (laughs) soil their person with these you know, vile substances. It's mm. like, really, there's some really, like, seriously grim shit. Mm. So there we go. There, there's celebrities sorting out the problems of the world once again. But now the big guns have been dragged out. Grange Hill. Chaps, did you partake? I did. I, I loved Grange Hill. Oh, yeah. Early Grange Hill was great. Not because mm. it was sort of what it set out to be and what it got complaints about. I mean, I went to school with people who were banned from watching Grange Hill by their parents. <laughs> Fucking hell. But it really wasn't this gritty portrayal of real school life, but it felt like school. Um, Yes. uh, By which I mean the kind of laughs that you have to grab at school (laughs) to fend off the misery and and Mm. the corridors and the staircases and and the beating zones and everything Mm. else. (laughs) It did capture that kind of on the edge feel of school where you've got these preposterous rules and this mix of teachers, the bastards and the the soft touches in Mm. the... Tucker. <laughs> what a cynic you are, well, Mr. Kulkarna. No, <laughs> Speaking know. as a teacher. But, but, yeah, well. Which one are you? I'm definitely a soft touch man, soft as oh. fuck. But oh. it did capture all of that. In the, in the, in the Tucker Benny Pogo years of seasons one to mm. eight, it, it captured all of that. But of course, by now, um, in 86, a lot of the founding characters are gone. The whole Tucker yeah. doily dynamic has been replaced by the Gonch uh, Danny Kendall dynamic. Mm. And it's got a bit preachy with Zamo yeah. as this central Christ like figure who's <laughs> gone through this kind of druggy redemption. Where we find Grain Jill here, it always freaked me out at this point. It's kind of shedding its past. But Susan Tully still seems to hang around at school. Um, yes. Looking like Robert Smith, you know, running yeah, up against well, Bridget she, she the turned up dressed up like Boy George, didn't she, That's in that right, one yeah. episode? But she she just keeps saying to Bridget the midget, you know, I don't go here now. I can, I can wear what I want. But but, but yeah. fundamentally, the yeah, old... I'm in standards now. Fuck yeah. you. <laughs> but fundamentally, at this point, the old guard have gone, and and mm. my watching of Grain Chill is going to taper off from here on in. Really, yeah, I find that the older you get as you progress through the comprehensive system, the less of a hold Grain Chill has on you because you've you've seen that it's mm. a sham. Yeah, 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 completely. And what we see in series eight and nine which straddle 85 and 86 i mean we've got a new script editor anthony mingella who'd later make the english patient he he brings more comedy in mm. via gonch and hollow and, and another whole set <laughs> of characters who we see here the first real change of the guards since season five and 83 when zamo and faye lucas who takes lead vocal on the track by the way and roland yes. etc were introduced so we mm. do have all these these new characters in grange yeah. at the moment sarah did you partake or were you banned i i dabbled i guess um <laughs> i never really got into it um i suppose i was too young at this time and then i sort of missed it i i would sort of watch it out of one eye occasionally yeah. i didn't 
have the best time at school and so I didn't really want to be reminded of it yeah. when I was not mm. at school I suppose. Yeah, yeah. but it definitely it gives you that atmosphere of like it's a bit <laughs> yeah you know the yeah. lawless zones of the of the stairwells and things yeah. when it first started I was still at junior school and it, it was around about that time where it was like oh you're going to big school soon kids shove your head down the toilet every day and people were making it sound really grim and you look at Grange Hill and go oh actually it's not that bad but when you do get to school, it's like, oh, God, school's shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got swung round by my ponytail once yeah, yeah. by another Oof. girl. And that was, that was, some, I mean, you you wouldn't, if you saw, if you saw that on Grange Hill, you go, nah, <laughs> it can't yeah. be. But yeah, that was, uh, I was, even as I was going round in a circle and passing out, I was, I was impressed. So you've got to be strong. You know? mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Grange Hill for the first kind of few years, it's like um, it's like scum for kids. <laughs> you know, it's all about fear and, and and yeah, which is a big component of school. But yeah, it was slightly yeah, yeah. stressed in those early series. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's it's Phil Redmond, Sir Phil Redmond, if you please, who mm. is you know an important writer who gave us the, obviously the first on-screen pre-Watershed lesbian kiss in Brookside, and also crashed a fucking plane into Emmerdale. <laughs> so like you know that was him Mm. so he definitely had a a yen for disaster in that way it was a bit of an imitation Edmunds because in the Grange Hill annuals he always banged on about his helicopter and it's like, oh, yeah, I have to go, you know, I work in Liverpool, and so when I have to go for film yeah, for Granger, I'll get into my helicopter. My helicopter's brilliant. I mean, obviously, he's just saying, well, you know, loads of lads are reading this. What are they interested in? Oh, yeah, helicopters. I'll talk about that all the time. But, yeah, he used to fucking bang on about his helicopter. All right, mate, we know you've got an helicopter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he's loosening his grip, if you like, on Granger mm. at this point. Yeah. I think his last kind of concrete act here is, is putting Ziggy in this yes. the Scouse character yeah. always seemed like a really unlikely pupil at Grange Hill it prepares us for the moving of the whole fucking school to Liverpool oh god yeah at the end which is mental that's uh, on a par with Bobby in Dallas yeah coming to and realising it was all a dream oh we're actually all in <laughs> Liverpool now are we okay <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, this is a period, it's in transition, loads of new characters. Vince mm. Savage, this kind of gormless troglodyte, um, mm. Robbie Wright, Trevor Cleaver. Mr. Bronson makes his first appearance oh, in this series. God-like Mr. Bronson. Yeah, and you've got new, you've got sort of a new set of girls in Grange Hill, Callie Donington and her mate Ronnie Bertles and Laura Reagan. They're the ones, by the way, who do the don't-listen-to-anyone-else bit in the song. Mm. And Jones, he's kind of got a really big bouffant haircut. Looks and a bit Jones, like a, yes. Yeah, he's undoubtedly a reflection of George Michael, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, oh, he's definitely there as the as the heartthrob of Grange Hill. Yeah, and he delivers, of the, course. The new stew pot. Yeah. <laughs> and he delivers the line, all you've got to do is be yourself oh. um, in, in, in the song. Oh, he's so serious about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about the video then, because it, it starts with Zamo in an extremely old school gym while some youth attempts to sell the drugs to a very young John Alford. So, you know, mm. an intervention's made. And then immediately we whip to the past because we see Tucker Jenkins, the fucking Don of Grange Hill, DJing a youth club disco, which Danny Kendall being dragged to with uh, shots of youths walking up corridors with their arms around each other trying to make it feel like the breakfast club <laughs> and then Faye Lucas who appears to have come as someone's nan in a pink cardigan starts emoting at the mic in a studio with Kendall Imelda Davis who mm. was the gripperette of the current series and of course <laughs> Roland and his helpful nemesis Janet 
Yeah, but the thing is, they're all getting along, right? Yes. Um, and I recall one of the things I immediately didn't like about this video at the time is mm. that all the dynamics of the actual show just kind of yeah. absconded completely in the video. Everyone's yeah. friends and everyone joins in. We're seeing the cast, not the characters. Yeah, I know, but I, I, it's the way that they pick up Danny Kendall on the stairs and he's yeah. just part of the fun. I hated Danny Kendall. Yeah. He was one of the nastiest, most hateful characters. Oh, I thought he was a brilliant character. <laughs> I, it was surprising that it was uh, Zamo who got into smack and not Danny Kendall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But that's partly why this is such a profoundly... I think there are many reasons why this is a profoundly uncomfortable watch. <laughs> but it's partly because even not having the deep knowledge of Grange Hill, it's like, are they in character yeah. or are they out of character? Yeah. It's like this sort of no man's land between the two. Yeah. Mm. And they don't know. I mean, they're actors, you know, they... I think they're kind of going, oh, I'm not really sure what we're supposed to be doing here. And they're doing their best. Mm. Exactly. And because Zamo's like that, you know, he's just gone through this drug ordeal. He's him, still going through it. Yeah, I mean, him warding off this kid at the beginning yeah. and telling him to just say no with real earnestness, the kid kind of looks guilty in a sense. Whereas, you know, any kid having Zamo lecturing them would yeah. just say, fuck off, Zamo, you hypocrite. He does sell it, though, to be fair. Just say no! Yeah. Like, he really gives it. And, and everyone else, that you know, just say no is repeated, I didn't count, but I don't know, 30 times mm. in the following three minutes and no one else looks like they mean it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it does look like... Like it's in a school, right? It's got that typical yeah. Grange Hill staircase. Yeah. Which always reminds me, you know, you know, expulsion legends at school where you'd hear that a kid had been expelled and you didn't know why, and then you found yeah. out there was a kid called Billy Woodhead in my school. I went I remember going to his house once and he had a massive knife collection. It was a bit of a bad one. Um, <laughs> but I remember hearing a legend where because he just suddenly disappeared from school and everyone was wondering where he was and why he got kicked out. And right. it turned out he chucked our headmaster, who was called Taff. He chucked him down the stairs. It was a legend. Oh, wait. And there were stairs very, very much like the ones that we see here. So, yeah, no, but Sarah's completely correct. It doesn't quite know. Yes, it's the cast of Grange Hill. Yes, I know we've been told that. Mm. But it's kind of uncomfortably on the edge. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Danny, Danny Kendall, he would be dealing. He'd be chopping out Roland's first line of coke. Mm. It annoyed me because it kind of perpetuated that school disco fiction that everyone gets along on the last day of school. That's bollocks, isn't it? (laughs) It is bollocks. Mm. Although, the school disco parts of the video are fairly realistic. I mean, I don't Mm. recall the light show at our school disco being quite so spectacular. It was more like my sister's game of disco lights at my school. (laughs) But what happens next? The gym bits. We cut back to the youth club Mm. with Annette Furman, I think. Is it Annette Furman? Because she left Mm. at the end of the last series. I think it is, though. Right. Well, that makes no sense. (laughs) <laughs> and Aunt Jones, who's clearly being pitched as a heartthrob of the programme, he, he, mm. when he sings, all you got to do is be yourself. It's the most self-conscious bit of singing since Morrissey was accidentally booked onto Soul Train. Uh, <laughs> he's just, yeah, the sort of the gently half-closed eyes and the sort of mm. the gentle tipping of the head to and fro. Like he's really, really getting into it and into yeah. the idea. He's lining himself up for that career, isn't he? If I'd have been a few years younger and watching Greg, I would have fucking hated him. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But obviously, being popular with girls. <laughs> it was direct George Michael influence, I think. 
on his mm. entire look and his presence in that show. And then they show us all the fun things that we could be doing instead mm. of taking drugs, including dancing in leotards if you're a girl or gawping at girls dancing in leotards if you're a boy <laughs> or shaking your arse in front of a big mirror or being in a gym. Mm. The musk of the kids from Faye still <laughs> lingers over the music scene in 1986, doesn't it? Mm. I think that's really directly taken from the American version as well. Yeah. Like the the whole kind of aesthetic and the whole like kids from fame, which obviously the American totally. version does better. This is like I mean, they've the, got better the, gyms, aren't there, for a kickoff? Well, yeah, but there's there's like the 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 little you know advert version from the states, and they're all out in the street, like in in fame, and mm. it's a much more diverse. You know, like basically everything about the UK version is sort of it's a really close analog, but about seventy percent whiter. <laughs> I would say. Yes, it's setting up like physical exercise and expression as like the antidote really mm. but that's what you do instead of drugs yeah we know yeah. that you're like you've got an urge to do something why don't you do aerobics in the yeah. disco and there is like a little dance routine within the school disco which like you said is more realistic apart from that because everyone's just like shuffling about yeah mm. in yeah. that way that you do before you understand how to move your limbs at all you know <laughs> the pinnacle of the discomfort of this video i think is is seated within the little hand gesture mm. which would have got you beaten to some sort of jelly if you ever used it yourself to just say no and you can see them well, kind of i'm glad you brought that up sarah because you know up until this morning i would have just sat there and sneered at you more or less and said Why? oh well obviously sarah it's they're doing sign language oh you know oh. because deaf kids need to be warned about drugs as well <laughs> i mean they do this series of hand gestures where they ball their fists up and cross them over really quickly quickly before sweeping the right hand away mm. and f- yeah for nearly 35 years i've assumed that they're doing sign language in order to get the hearing impaired youth up to speed but i checked on the internet to see how accurate it was because mm-hmm. i'm that thorough <laughs> and it's all bollocks it's all <laughs> absolute bollocks. according to the british sign language dictionary Okay, we can all do this at home now. Mm. All right. If you want to say no to a drug dealer but can't be bothered to talk to them, here's how you go about it, mm. right? So just is bringing up the left hand in a pincer movement like you were picking a pear from a tree. Okay. Right? All right. Say is pointing to your chin with your left index finger and then throwing it out mm. to the person you're talking to. And no right. is shaking your head and bringing the flat of your palms out like Tommy Cooper, <laughs> right? So we can safely say that the cast of Grangel are not doing that at all, are they? Oh, man. No, they're that not. That would have been much better. Because I'm extra thorough. I thought, oh, hang on a minute. This is an American song <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're ripping off an American video. So I went over and checked the American Sign Language Dictionary because right. they have a different way of going about with sign language because they're awkward cunts who think the summer (laughs) (laughs) which means that if you're British and deaf and you you bump into a deaf American person you can't talk to each other no that's fucking mental such a silly country (laughs) but anyway so I checked their sign language dictionary and it's even less like what we use (laughs) a Granger are doing Mm -hmm. so that raises the question why why, Why are they doing that? And who told them to do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody's no. devised that. Yeah. The shittest illegal paper, rock, scissors move ever. Somebody is. <laughs> paper, scissors, rock. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, you can see that they're all, like, giggling in this quite yes. endearing way because it was either that or cringe themselves literally inside out. Because they all get it wrong. Some of them do it with the left hand, some of it doing with the right hand. Some of them, you can see them bashing their fists together. <laughs> And laughing about it, 
So, yeah, it's... It's fucking stupid. <laughs> so, if there are any pop crazed youngsters out there who are conversant in sign language, I'm begging you, please look at the video available on the video playlist and tell us what they're actually mm. signing. Mm. If any, because for all I know, someone on the film crew could have got them to sign "Hail Lord Satan" <laughs> or <laughs> is skill" just for the laugh. <laughs> Very strange. Oh my god, that's like four weddings where she learned sign language so she can flirt with the deaf guy. And it's like, would you like to dance? That would be mice. <laughs> it doesn't help that the gym bits. I mean, they happen over perhaps one of the most sort of objectionable eighties sax solos. This side of oh. Kelly Loggins, the Danger Zone. Really, it, it, mm. it's. And I think Sarah's right. Undoubtedly, this is a nod back to kids from Fame a little bit. Yes. But, because it's kids in their pants, pretty much, in a gym, it, it can't help coming across like the opening of that Thermal Cox sex ed video, which I still can't erase from my mind. But I mean, crucially, you know, if you're a young adult who this video is presumably trying to reach, mm. this model of health and efficiency provided by the cast, it, it's vile and unsexy and unexciting and nothing you really want to get involved in. And then, because it's the mid-80s, we get the sole British contribution to the song, some rap some performance by a Mulky Christa and I've said that wrong and I do mm. apologise to him who played Kevin Balan mainly because he's the one black male yeah. in Grange <laughs> he's this season's uh, Benny isn't he yeah. So what was it made you do it? You had no need. First a taste, then a craving, then it turned to greed. <laughs> Calling me your main man, you didn't really understand. After all you did to me, expecting me to shake your hand. No! <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I love how it's that sort of proto-John Barnes flow. You know, catch me yes. if mm. you can, because I'm the heroin man. <laughs> Three lines on my desk. I know we can't go wrong. Get round here for some crack. <laughs> <laughs> that bridge, the don't listen, don't yes. listen. Mm. It, it's been in my head for weeks. <laughs> it, my brain just keeps defaulting to it. I'll be there just trying to, like, you know, make a cup of tea. Don't listen, don't listen. <laughs> it's... You know, it, it, I have to hand it to them. It's not mm. a very good song, but that is a very catchy hook. You're right, Sarah. It is catchy. And yeah, we end back at the youth club with the girls doing some proper kids from faming with a stop motion jump and kick. They missed a trick in this video because what they should have put in to really drive the message home is Mr. Bronson dressed up as a hippie in a fucking Jethro Tull <laughs> t-shirt with a spliff on, giving the peace sign and, and playing a guitar solo through it. Yeah, how- that would how could they have done this better like because it seems neither one thing nor another it's kind of not in universe it's not in the real world either Mm. um like how could they i mean they would have had to either go comedy like go full-on kind of slapstick silliness or go much funny about drugs (laughs) well yeah so they couldn't ever have done that so but this is the thing i feel like this is a compromise born of just the sheer awkwardness of like well how do you fit this into that and how does this go with mm. it? And you just kind of, it seems like it should be logical, but once you start, and I've done so many like little um, kind of copywriting jobs like this where they go, we want this idea in there, but you want it through this prism. And there's, and it's like, ah, uh, no, that isn't. Uh, yeah. And we want it to go viral as well. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, I used to fucking hate that. Oh, yeah, we want to do this thing, but, and we really want it to go viral. Can you make a viral video? And so I'd think, well, yeah, OK, then. Get your managing director to stand outside a school with no trousers or pants on, <laughs> doing Hitler salutes, and then eating his own shit out of a ice cream tub. <laughs> That'll go viral. <laughs> That'll do it. And it won't cost you much either, <laughs> apart from bail. What's really weird as well, you know, when in, in researching this for CMP, mm. I did the thing immediately uh, google the lyrics yes and i couldn't find any i mean I know. the shame is so deep around this record yes. that you know it can't even be rehabilitated in any way it also needs saying that the actual central lyrical conceit here just say no right mm. how rude <laughs> yeah just say no thank you no thank you you know very real. Yeah, and the, and the idea that all you got to do is be yourself. So a 14-year-old whose fucking hormones are going berserk, mm. the last thing they can do is be themselves. Mm. They're turning into this fucking beast with the hair where there wasn't before. Well, I mean, what if being yourself is taking shitloads of drugs? Or, yes. I mean, or conversely, yeah. you know, what if being yourself is living in a tiny shit old town with no friends and nothing to do? You know, it's a weird message, be yourself for kids, because it reminds you as a kid as Sarah yeah. hinted, you know, yourself is precisely sometimes who you don't want to be. Mm. And, and it's this recurrent bloody message that you take drugs to fit in, like everyone's a junkie zombie out there. Yeah, but peer you do, pressure. Well, you do drugs precisely not to fit in, you know, with a true mm. zombification of capitalism or whatever. <laughs> You're thinking about at that time. Mm. And I remember very soon after this, there was one of those Smith and Jones talking heads. And Mel mm. Smith goes, it's a great campaign, you know, it just means that if a copper asks you if you've got any drugs, you just say no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, in this case, just say no. It's no different to Marie Antoinette saying, just eat cake, <laughs> or that mad woman in the cabinet saying, just eat turnips. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it is... I mean, oh God, this is this is all stuff I could rant about all the live long day, drugs or no drugs. But it is going to be more complicated than that. Mm. It's so insultingly reductive to just say no. I mean, yeah, like you said, if it's about peer pressure and the delicate sort of social ecosystem of school, mm. just barking a refusal at someone who might be trying to bring you into their group. Yeah. Through, you know, in the way that friends might do, it's not necessarily like, ha I've got drugs, I'm going to corrupt you with them. You know, it's like, well, mate, yeah, mate maybe we want you to be our mate. It's just we think you're sound. And it's like, no, mm. this is not going to be good for you. <laughs> However bad drugs are for you, that's not good either. No. Oh, God, I'm doing it now. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, also, the weird slippage that you get with this, with the message and the song and the video is like... Yeah, most of the lyrics that you can hear are just really vaguely about, like I said, that kind of social ecosystem of school and about the kind of mm. dynamic between people, I think. Mm. They obviously kind of swerved being really explicit about it. Mm. But you just end up nowhere. And it's like, well, are you talking about being yourself? Which you might not want to be. You might want to go, Jesus Christ. Well, I, A, I don't know what that means. Yeah. B, mm. ah! No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't listen, don't listen to anyone else. All you got to do is be yourself. For all we know, God might have said that to Peter Sutcliffe in that graveyard <laughs> in, in Polish. Yeah. It's that, so that fucking is, vague, isn't it? it that's is. not necessarily a good thing. No. I'm not saying British people shouldn't do American stuff. That is true a lot of the time, though. It is. But, I mean, it, it's still a mawkish pile of shit, this record, <laughs> in its American iteration. Mm. But... 
It would have been a professional sounding mawkish pile of shit, probably yeah, with yeah. a fabulously appointed video. I mean, because it's British and because it's the living version of, you know, the front cover of the Come and Praise Him book, i.e. the Grange Hill cast. <laughs> it's this weird thing of this yeah. rub between this attempted professionalism, but just this endless amateurishness. That mm. as a kid, you would just find, I mean, I guess what you'd say now is totally cringe. And I, I showed this to <laughs> Sophia Ooh. and she literally cringed herself inside out. She couldn't watch it. <laughs> oh. Um, so the cringe factor in this just hasn't gone away and this is why it failed Mm. you did see like the American version didn't you whatever yeah there was a clip of it on drug watch it was much tighter and uh, you know it still had the kind of slightly unpleasant sax not that I'm completely anti-sax but it was you know it's not the best (laughs) it's not the best use of the controversial instrument you practice safe sax don't you Sarah (laughs) absolutely always but yeah it, it was it wasn't funky but it was funkier Mm. There was a, a whiff of funk about it, mm. at least. You know, it's a whiff of the street. Yes. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> there is no whiff of the street here whatsoever. No. It, it is the damp indoor air of a comprehensive school. Obviously, chaps, Lee McDonald, uh, Zamo, is the centrepiece of the entire operation. I mean, Zamo's got another series in him. Uh, the next one focuses on his rehabilitation and mm. his reunion with Jackie Wright. But Lee, the actor, has an eye on the future as a Daily Mirror article at the end of the year spells out. <laughs> Headline, next to him posing with Frank Bruno, Frank and fearless. I'm ready to be a champion, says TV's junkie kid. <laughs> Pocket-sized TV star Zamo is a knockout with Grange Hill fans. And Lee McDonald, who plays the drug-taking six-former in the hit BBC series, is aiming to pull no punches in real life. For 18-year-old Lee is a brilliant amateur boxer with his sights set on a place in the British team for the 1988 Olympics picks in Seoul. Lee has no fears about combining acting and boxing. I'm going to keep boxing until I'm 21. Then, if I'm good enough, I'll turn professional. I love boxing and I love acting and I want to keep both going for as long as possible. That's why I've also applied for a place at drama school. My ambition is to get a part in EastEnders. But Lee still finds time to enjoy himself. I go out with my mates from Grangeville every Friday and Saturday night, says the chirpy cockney. We're all VIP members of the Hippodrome, Stringfellows and the Limelight, so we're there almost every weekend. Oh, oh absolutely no chance of coming across anybody with any drugs in those places, is there? <laughs> I mean, before we go any further, chaps, because we, we've only just scratched the surface of this, we have mm-hmm. to absolve the cast of Grangeville first any yeah, responsibility yeah, yeah. for this shit because you know it's pretty obvious that they weren't allowed to say no when it came to the recording of yeah, this yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean people fucking bought it that's what I can't quite fathom out but if you're a certain age and you hear the cast of Grangell are making a record I guess you're so. gonna buy it aren't you I guess so and you know the BBC are shoving it up at every child's arse on the telly at the moment incessantly yeah <laughs> incessantly mm. perhaps yeah. why it fails but I mean why it fails is because I mean, the whole campaign fails, drug watching, and also mm. the, 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 it's not just Zama and New Special. Yeah, we do need to talk about why it failed. But before that, 
Why are Grain Chill and the government and all the advertising campaigns just focusing on heroin? Because there's other drugs about. I think it's it's possibly something to do with, you know, it being a drug of deprived areas and stuff. Mm. With, because then that's a nice, neat way to kind of put the personal responsibility on you to mm, uh, pull yeah. yourself up by your bootstraps, you know. Because yes. then you don't actually have to do anything like build good houses or anything like that yeah yeah that's really important also i think it's that heroin because we don't we've never had like meth in this country in a big way and heroin was always that i i think it was just like the the ultimate drugs you know it's like the the worst the the boss level of drugs yeah yeah. it's the end of level boss of drugs you know what i mean it's just got that i don't know if where that came from but i think it's just sort of got this mythos around it Mm. I've got to say, I don't know anyone in my entire life who's done heroin. That's been the one drug that everyone's just kept away from. Oh, God. It's not a party drug, is it? No. No, it isn't. <laughs> no. I, I mean, I know a couple of people who have tried it once in mm. order to, because you can actually do that, you know, contrary to a lot no, of... Don't uh, listen to Sarah Pop Crazy. No, she's she's not right. Her. She's completely right. Don't listen. Don't listen to... <laughs> it is, um, as I understand it... Okay, I feel like I should do a caveat, which is that, that you know, we are we are sticking our asses way out of our remit for this... <laughs> this mm. podcast in some ways um and you know none of us are drug or drug policy experts just people who've done <laughs> done some and lived um but well that um, was the problem sarah because the way they were going on about drugs not so much in this video but on the advertising you know the heroin screws you up it's like you take mm, this you yeah. die yeah, eventually yeah 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 you, you will and that was the problem because a few years later you know, my mates and eventually me started doubling. It's like, oh shit, I'm still alive. Uh, they were all talking bollocks. Well, that's absolutely it. Yeah. Yeah, I had a sort of similar similar thing when I was, uh, you know, I mean, later even than you know, slow coach Kolkani, <laughs> who didn't do any drugs until he was sixteen. God, my <laughs> God, that's so lame. But um, yeah, I was you know eighteen or something, and the, yeah. when I was at university, and the whole Leah Betts thing happened, and that was I think I've spoken Ooh. about it before, and those big posters with her, mm. her smiling face and the black the black and the white kind of grainy thing and it's like sorted mm. just one ecstasy tablet took mm. Leah Betts and I had the fear of God put into me about this and then when I actually did it and I, I had two kind of failed attempts because I, I was I wanted to try the thing mm. uh, but I was terrified and that yeah. actually because it is quite sensitive to your moods and I think I probably had bad stuff to start with anyway so I had a pill and then just spent several hours just going I'm going to die I'm going to die I'm going to die and mm. I did not die. And then I didn't die mm. the second time. I didn't have a nice time either. And then the third time I did it, I had an amazing time, which mm. is the whole point. Yeah. And then the next day I wake up and you pat yourself down and go, yeah. I didn't die. Ha! Ah, yeah. It's quite a cliche, really, but you do then start to question what you've been told in mm. the larger yes. sense. Like, yeah. okay, why has there been money spent to terrify yeah. me? And stop me and, and make mm. me think, make me fear that I'm going to die yeah. to stop mm. me from doing this. And obviously it's like that's your personal experience that, that it, it's a hugely complex, um, large thing. But your personal experience is to go, huh, well, wh- what else am yeah. I being lied yeah, yeah. to about? And it's mm. that's where it goes. And so that's why you start to understand it's not just mm. about the drugs. Yeah. It's not just about how much they care about whether you live or die. It's about bigger stuff than that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, up until you have your first drug experience or up until you, have, you experience drugs for yourself, these kind of campaigns, they do work in a sense because they, they put this terror in you. Mm. Yeah. The nature of a moral panic is, uh, as Sarah's hinted, that, that it, it completely ignores, obviously, this entire campaign, the sort of systemic complex reasons why there's a lot of drug use in this country. Mm. It tries to instill this almost Pavlovian response to drugs that like you know you just you see the word heroin and it's terrifying mm. and you know once i ended up i mean look i didn't end up <laughs> in the shooting gallery or anything all i mean is <laughs> once i ended up sat in a room and somebody was doing some heroin yes i thought god that looks really squalid and i didn't mm. want to do it what made you want to do it you had no need <laughs> <laughs> but you know i mean I, it's something i think about a lot because i have to have these conversations in a sense not only with kids that i teach but also my own kids yeah. But crucially, it's a conversation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because no one wants teenage kids to be doing anything adulterated, do you know what I mean? Well, no, no. I mean, look, what Drug Watch is doing, what Just Say You Know is trying to do is, yeah, it's like a Pavlovian dog. It's this, It's like when you go to get hypnotised to stop smoking or something. Mm. They, they just kind of repeat this phrase until it's so in your head. Yeah that that would ward you away. But out of the moral panics of the 80s, I guess that the Americans had satanic panic and we had this. Yes. But both of them just ignore the really complex reasons because that's messy and difficult and, and you know, takes time. Um, mm. They'd rather just kind of, it's almost like this kind of idiot training. Just say no, just say no. Let's just keep saying that until mm. kids yeah. don't do it. Yeah. It's behavioural conditioning is what it is. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And it's perfect in its way in the sense that it's a total abdication of any greater responsibility um and because it puts it completely on the individual to um it's so you know it's so simple just say no and then if you don't do that and you get yourself into some trouble with the law or with your health should have just said no i mean yeah expecting me to shake your hand (laughs) (laughs) just say no it's it's essentially government saying look we're we're getting our asses kicked in the war on drugs and there are things we could do to deal with it like you know legalizing some drugs or making their use as safe as possible and you know taxing the shit out of it to keep the nhs going but we're not going to do that so if you actually take drugs and it all goes wrong it's all your fault mate well yeah i mean it's it's kind of uh, I, I hesitate to draw this parallel with recent events but the same kind of personal responsibility absolutism uh has that has given us some of the highest drug death numbers in europe also gave us some of the highest covid death numbers in the world because yes for me yeah. personally like i've risked my health outside the law for a good time and i've risked my health inside the law for a good time and guess which one had the life-altering consequences Mm. in each case it's like it's all on the individual to do the best risk assessment that they can with really scant information this is the thing as well as the kind of withholding of information which still happens now like there's been some progress on this with with kind of drug testing at festivals and then things like that and i mean the talk to frank website which is kind of better than nothing just about although i'm not sure how how often it's being updated now but um basically mm. you don't have you know we, you were saying earlier about like oh you could you know if you studied this you you were allowed access to the the book with all the stuff in it about drugs it's like well, why is that restricted in the first place? Mm. You know, it's well because just say no. Why would you need any of that when you could just say no? Like, yeah. the thing is, it has yeah. been proven as a policy which came from America and then we adopted it ourselves in, in a kind of vague 
but persistent way. It's been proven not to work. What works mm. is, you know, actual education, actual information, yeah. mm. and talking more about it and in a more nuanced and non-judgmental way. That's what actually works, but that's more expensive. Mm. So it doesn't work, but it works because people want it to, because people believe in it at some really, like, primal level. And so yeah. it's never going to go away, I don't think, because mm. it's too, like I said, it's just too perfect. Well, just just say no, but it doesn't work. But but it has to, but mm. just just yeah. say no. I mean, if I tried saying to it, like my, my daughters, just say no. <laughs> I mean, starters, that's not a conversation, you know, that's, that's just me telling them to do that. Yeah. When you're talking about drugs with kids, you know, you have to realise that drugs are a part of their life, even if they don't take them, mm. because their friends will be taking them. I mean, you know, yeah. kids at secondary school now are doing things at the weekend, right, that their adult parents are doing. And... It's pointless me saying to my daughter, just say no, just don't do anything. I have to say the sensible... I mean, perhaps this isn't the sensible thing. Mm. But what I've said to my daughters is, you know, never pay for anything um, <laughs> apart from weed. And look, just be fucking careful. You cannot destroy that impulse to get out of your head. No. Or, or, to, or, or to get out of your face. You cannot destroy that simply by saying you don't need that in your life. Mm. You know, go to the gym instead. Yes. Um, so it has to be... Uh, it, crucially, it has get, to be Get some proper steroids there, mate. <laughs> well, exactly. Human growth hormone. I mean, it, it is very telling, isn't it, that, that, that the boxing gym and the gym always seems to be the solution. But yeah, I mean, these are... These Instead are... of damaging your brain, damage someone else's. <laughs> <laughs> but crucially, none of this campaign, either in the States or over, over here, is a conversation. It's not a conversation. It's, mm. it's hectoring. Yeah. It's abstinence, isn't it? It's abstinence only, which doesn't work any better for drugs than it does for sex, because no. these are natural urges. No. The terrible thing about Just Say No is that, of course, it's going to work for some people. Yeah. Mm. Some people would have been like me and they would have seen that Leah Betts um, poster and gone, no, no, mm. no, thank you. <laughs> or some some variation on that and just not not tried it ever at all. But, you know, I had the urge and I was not a kid then. I was, no. you know, a young adult. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I was extremely sensible and I was very cautious. And, you know, and it wasn't about peer pressure. It wasn't about any of these other things. It was just like, I want to know. Yeah. And that's something that is really difficult for people and societies to deal with but it is not going away no. and, th and a lot of great things can come out of that indeed i don't want to come on here going yeah drugs because you know i'm not a dickhead like mm. i understand that this is a huge issue and it can really destroy people's lives i mean there are at least three artists in this episode of top of the pops alone whose lives have been blighted mm. by drugs mm. you know <laughs> including zambo who mm. survived but you know um it's scary really to think that this is like this is still really this is nearly 40 years later and we haven't significantly moved on from this no no good god no the message is still the same isn't it the only thing that's moved on is the drugs yeah if grange hill was still going today and they did an anti-drug song the first question would be well okay what drugs should we focus on the crappy ones like the nitrous oxide or crocodile or something like that. We should say, actually, as we're recording at this time, the government has announced that as part of a crackdown on antisocial behaviour, yeah. they're criminalising the possession of mm -hmm. nitrous oxide or laughing gas, mm. um, which was already illegal to uh, manufacture or supply under the Psychoactive Substances Act of 2016, which well, I remember laughing about grimly when it happened. Mm. It's one of those impossible pieces of legislation that doesn't make 
make a lick of sense no, no. because it's like um okay any uh, novel substance that you know because they were trying to deal with legal highs which obviously were a huge problem they had to do something but not this mm. you know because the, you could say scented candles if they make you if they give you a nice sense memory of when you were 12 and you went to the beach like anything that makes you feel a feeling at all no just yeah. say no <laughs> and all political parties have to do that they have to talk tough constantly about this issue mm. um i mean labor last <sighs> week we're talking about oh yeah these poor families who who smell a bit of weed in their back yeah. garden or whatever as if it's the end of the world and and yeah this this talking tough rhetoric it's never going to go mm. you know and this is why every now and then you'll get a politician asked whether they've done weed and those all of them seemingly you know didn't enjoy it yeah or, you know and it's just the ment- the maintenance of that tone constantly means we're not going to go anywhere with this issue no you're not crediting the kids with anything you're not crediting the kids with their own reconnaissance in a sense the only way to really find out about drugs is to yeah to live ultimately to live into your 20s where these things become part of your life Mm. um not part of your life on a daily basis i just mean you get exposed to the realities of drugs rather than this nonsense um that governments have to shoot out Mm. the thing is one of the many many insulting and patronizing ideas that persists is the kind of casual user to addict pipeline which yeah, yeah. it's a different thing. It's that's insulting to both people who struggle with addiction and to casual users because these are yeah, of course one can you know, you, you don't become an addict without first being a casual user, but being a casual user does not necessarily mean that you're going to end up you know, dribbling in an alley behind a bin with a needle in your arm. That's not mm. how it mm. works. I mean, I was going to say, like I said, not being an expert, but I do understand that heroin specifically, it does, it's legendarily addictive and it is very addictive, but it's not like you have one go and you're like, oh, that's that's me, yeah. that's my yeah. life. Mm. It takes you a while to get physically addicted to it. I think if you like it, then you're going to feel addicted to it sooner than your body starts to need it. But mm. there's a reason for that. Drugs are a solution before they are a problem. They're a solution mm. to a larger problem yeah. where people have pain or grief mm. or uh, just they're lost in some way. And that's often why, you know, there will be reasons, there'll be psychological reasons why people... Yeah end up in that you know like i said it's very complicated the psychological and hereditary and social reasons for drug use just they're not a part of any of these campaigns at all no. but going back to the mid 80s i mean about a year after this episode zamo became the absolute byword for a custard gannet yeah. or anyone yeah, yeah, you yeah. knew who did drugs i mean by the end of this year i'd started going to another college and i started to mix with kids from the posh end of town mm. all on the hash and everything and you know my working class background just prevented me from uh, tucking into the drugs because it was just like no th- we don't do this shit mm. they'd be there having a spliff and uh, pass it over to me and i'd immediately say no thanks mate i saw what it did to zamo <laughs> I get high on life. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and round about that time, some of the dancers in my year at college did a show somewhere in town, and they were supported by a nearby comprehensive school who'd done a musical about the drug problem, set in a school where even the dinner ladies were dealing hash on the side. <laughs> and I wish I could remember every second of it, <laughs> but the only thing I can remember is near the middle, 
where um, the female central character just appears under a spotlight and sings a song which sounded not dissimilar to a little piece by Nicole. Mm -hmm. And the opening lines were, I'm so depressed and I don't know why. I'm hooked on drugs and I'm going to die. (laughs) My entire class just sliding off their chairs, pissing themselves laughing. Oh, I wish I could remember more about it. I wish there was someone out there who was in that musical to tell us yeah. all about it. And so I can apologise to them for just laughing so derisively at them. No. By the time I got to university and was living with a load of custard gannets, we did have in the window of our shared house a picture of Zamo which had been ripped out of the Grand Johannium. <laughs> and someone had cut his eyes out and done a bit of a spirograph of them. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. This isn't oh, even no. a song or anything that mm. sort of like took time to pass into joke folklore. No. It, it was a joke as soon as it appeared. The people it was trying to reach just laughed at it. And of course, Top of the Pulse feeling very pleased with itself and lecturing the kids, you know, just a couple <laughs> of years before they play, they call it Acid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a good. He's Ebony's. Yes. I was in an office. I was doing a, a, a like a social copywriting job a few years ago and Radio One was on in the office and everyone there was much younger than me. And Ebony's a good came on and it's like, is this real? Yeah. They couldn't believe it. It's like, what? This was a real record that someone out of the people bought it and it was in the charts and stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah. Was, they were just like, what? <laughs> Why didn't anybody do a fucking crappy rave version of this? <laughs> yeah. I would have sold a fucking shitload. In that period where some yeah, of this yeah. stuff was getting parodied and stuff in rave changes, yeah. yeah, it would have been big. And someone else should have done a cover of the firm's tune, Arthur Daylair. He's all right. <laughs> Opportunity missed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine what's going on in the universe where that happened. Mm. Mm. So the following week, Just Say No soared 21 places to number five, where it stayed for two weeks. It ended up selling a quarter of a million copies in the UK, and the cast were congratulated in the House of Parliament for covering their sorry asses in the fight against drugs, and they appeared outside the Adelphi Theatre in October, forming a big no Good Morning Britain opening credit style. Article in The Guardian, Members of the cast of TV's Grange Hill spell out their view of drugs. No! (laughs) They will be joining show business stars in the Just Say No gala evening at the Adelphi Theatre to raise cash for drug counselling centres. Others who have agreed to appear include Sasha Distel, Wayne Sleep, Alvin Stardust, kids, you must be out of your tiny minds, John Inman, Don McLean and members of the cast of Emmerdale Farm and Coronation Street. Wow. Well, that's going to put some sense into the kids, isn't it? <laughs> Sasha Distel, just say no. The kids from Grange Hill, I think some of them turn up in ferry aid in a couple of Ooh. years. So this isn't the last time, you know? And emboldened by the chart success of Just Say No, Phil Redmond, creator of the show, hustled his cast back into the studio to record Grange Hill, the album. A mixture of medleys and original material. Are you ready for the track list? Oh, yes, please. You know the teacher, open brackets, smash head, close brackets. (laughs) Girls like to do it too. That ain't right. The it turns out to be bullying. Yes! uh, Led by Imelda Davis. (laughs) Phew! (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Do you collect stamps? Yes. <laughs> no. Just say no. <laughs> we also have school love. No supervision at break. <laughs> Biology. This sounds like a fucking Gary Glitter or Jonathan King album, doesn't it? I wonder if School Love is a cover of the Anvil tune. Ooh. School Love, that would be amazing. Ooh. And I now need to hear that, because that's a tune, man. Just say no, of course. Don't stop. A lad's medley, which includes <laughs> My Generation, The Walk of Life, The Wanderer, and Rocking All Over the World. <laughs> Aunt Jones performing I Don't Like Mondays. Oh, what? <laughs> Do they know what that's about? <laughs> then there's a girls' medley, which includes What a Wonderful World, Sweet Nothings, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, and Da Do Ron Ron, and a medley of The Greatest Love of All, and That's What Friends Are For. Wow. I hope Roland and Janet sang them too. Oh, my God. But it, and the single taken from it, You Know the Teacher, Smashhead, <laughs> failed to chart. But later this year, the cast of Granger were whipped over to Washington, D.C. to appear with Nancy Reagan at the White House for a special Just Say No Day, with Zamo sat next to the First Lady and Faye Lucas presenting her with a 12-inch of Just Say No, which, according to Lee MacDonald, she lobbed under the sofa, forgot about at the end and just walked off, <laughs> presumably to have it off with Frank Sinatra again. <laughs> Ten weeks after this episode was broadcast the tabloids announced that heroin was back and collaborating with boy george yeah junkie george has six weeks to live and after falling out of favor and being superseded by ecstasy in the late 80s heroin made a comeback when it teamed up with a sort of grunge and brit pop acts in the early 90s before working with the libertines and is still going today <laughs> and by recording this single the cast of grange hill slapped a target on their back in 1999, John Alford failed to heed Samo's instructions in the gym and was convicted of supplying drugs to the fake Sheikh Mazir Mahmood of the News of the World and jailed for six weeks. Round about the same time, Erkan Mustafa, who played Roland Browning, was caught in another sting by the Sunday Mirror when he offered to get them heroin, cocaine and ecstasy, claimed he was making £900 a night selling drugs in his club and bragged that he he and the cast smuggled drugs into America and he was ripped to the tits in the White House, which he later said was all bollocks and it bit him fiercely in the arse. He also claimed in that Sunday Mirror interview that he went to Top of the Pops off his face to mime the song, which is absolute bollocks because the two appearances of this single were the screening of the video. And in the mid-90s, the journalist Taylor Parks was in the green room of The Word for a Melody Maker article when he chanced upon that week's guests, members of the cast of Grange Hill, running round animatedly, singing <laughs> Just Say Yes. Of 21 places to number 16, it's Michael Jackson's sister. She looks like him, she dances like him. Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? Born in 
Garrett, Indiana in 1966. Janet Jackson was the 10th and youngest spawn of Joe and Catherine Jackson and was three years old when the band her older brothers were in, the Jackson 5, suddenly became massive and the family were relocated to Los Angeles. After being allowed to have a piss about in the Motown studio whenever her brothers were on a break during the early 70s, she caught the bug, abandoned her dreams of being a race jockey and made her debut as a performer with her brother Randy at the MGM Casino in Las Vegas at the age of seven. In 1976, at the age of 10, she was a regular on the Jackson's own TV show on CBS and for a while appeared to be gravitating towards an acting career as she spent the rest of the 70s as a cast member of the sitcoms Good Times, A New Kind of Family and spent three series as Willis's girlfriend in Different Strokes. In 1984, she appeared in the fourth series of Fame as Cleo Hewitt, a new student who has a major crush on Leroy, but she packed it in because she felt that her and the rest of the cast were being treated like shit. By this time, she had already established herself as a recording artist, having signed a deal with A&M and put out her debut LP, Janet Jackson, in 1982 which got to number 62 on the Billboard album chart. But her second LP, Dream Street, which was released in October of 1984, fared worse in the charts, despite having a lead-off single featuring Michael Jackson doing his vocal ticks and the track Two to the Power of Love, being a duet with the child-blood vintner of pop, Cliff Richard. (laughs) That was put out over here, but it only got to number 83 in September of that year. Well dischuffed at the way her recording career was going, she severed all management ties with her family in the wake of the failure of Dream Street and turned to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, two original members of the time, Prince's support band, who had just worked with the SOS band on Just Be Good To Me, but had been sacked from their own band by Prince for being caught up in a blizzard and being unable to make a gig. They said they'd be happy to work with her on the condition that she relocated to Minneapolis to get away from her interfering dad and she knobbed off the acting career. After helping her transition from Michael's nice little sister into an independent artist steeped in the R&B sound of now, the LP, Control, was in the can. But when Jackson's manager swung by Minneapolis to hear it, he told them it was too short and they needed another song. On their way to a restaurant to finish the haggling, Lewis played a tape of demos they were working on for their own LP, and when the third song came on, this one, he was insistent that Janet got to bagsy it. This is the lead-off cut from Control, which had been released in February, and is currently number 26 in the Billboard 200 LP chart. It's a thinly-veiled go at her ex-husband, James DeBarge, where she tells her paramour that he's not stepping up to the mark, and he's going round thinking his summit. It's a follow-up to Dream Street, which failed to chart anywhere, and it entered our chart at number 67 four weeks ago. It took three weeks to get into the top 40, and she was rewarded with a spot on top of the Pops' Breakers section last week. 
This week it soared 21 places to number 16 and here she is in the breakers section again in a video set in a greasy spoon choreographed by a pre-fame Paula Abdul. In the breakers section for two weeks in a row? Mm. What you talking about, Michael Hurl? (laughs) (laughs) Well, 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 well. I mean, look. Before all of us start talking about this record and video, could I just take a moment to add a personal note here? Mm. Um, oh, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, okay, right. Um, everyone be quiet, right? This is a message purely for Janet Jackson, if she's listening. <laughs> I cling on to the idea that Janet's absence, her disappearance from public life for the past decade, odd, is down to her just being able to live all of our dreams, i.e. Mm. fucking around on our phones from the moment we wake up to the moment that we sleep. And, you know, <laughs> I think she might be aware of every time she's mentioned. So, so if you're listening, Janet, I just want to explain something. I, I patiently explain to every partner I've ever had. It's an elemental <laughs> thing you have to accept if you're going to be with me. Um, you don't need a J-O-B, but you do need to know that I am in love with Janet Jackson. I would do anything for Janet Jackson. And if Janet came a calling, I would drop everything, literally everything, my home, my kids, my family, my work to be with her. Right. Even your cat. Yeah, no, sorry, it's Janet. <laughs> I love her so much. Janet, I, I can vouch for Neil, he's lovely. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, now that's out of the way, can we talk about how shit Gary Davis's introduction is to this? Oh. <sighs> you know, he, he just constantly makes reference to Michael. Um, he sings like her, he dances like yes. her, she looks like him. And that's the way Janet Jackson was perceived by a lot of people, just a female Jacko. To the point where there were rumours going about that Janet Jackson actually was Michael mm. Jackson doing a bit of a Camille like Prince right. did. You read that in interviews at the time, you know, she's endlessly asked about her brother and her family, mm. which is precisely the family she's seeking to step away from. Yeah. And it's really annoying. I mean, it's also noticeable, by the way, in, in the contemporary press, how many male journalists, they feel absolutely fine referring to her as chubby yeah. and, and things like this. But, you know, of course, all of this totally ignores how out here as punters in Potland, compared to Michael, Janet's records, Control in particular, sounded modern and thrilling um, Mm. like nothing else. And even though Control wasn't a debut album, it's a record that's so good from the title to the sleeve shot to everything. Yeah. This album, Control, bossed my 86 in a big way. Uh, like nothing else apart from Parade by Prince. Mm. I've been in love with her ever since. Such a ridiculous record, the whole thing. It's so daring and spare and kind of spiky. I came to it after Rhythm Nation. Like I got into her yeah. through Rhythm yeah. Nation and then went back to Control. It's like, when was this recorded? Mm. I was into Michael Jackson at the time as well, but they, they couldn't be more different, really, in most mm. ways. Mm. It's understandable that people would ask her. You know, it's just logical. But also it was extremely tiresome the way that she was um, yeah. spoken about and to at this point but she obviously was so driven and so talented and had such good judgment in who she worked with that mm. you know she she triumphed in the end and triumphed right from here actually i mean like look how yeah. amazing this is you can see that she's still kind of somewhat raw in a lot of ways because she carried on just refining her thing and developing it mm-hmm. but it's just so exciting, you know, especially after the kind of listless whateverness of just say no. Yeah, <laughs> after what we've had so far, this is a much welcome glimpse into the future of what would be known as R and B. Yeah, and and her aligning with the founder members of the time. It's like an arranged marriage between the two dominant households of modern black music, and it's actually come off. Oh yeah, it's an absolute triumph. I mean, it's amazing control because it, it successfully 
repels the objectification of Janet, either as a sexual figure or just a figure of kind of Jackson-related curiosity. Mm. Um, but also, I mean, it's because of the sound and Janet's words, which, yeah. which of course have impact for women, but further, I think they just have impact for anyone being pushed around, basically. Yeah. It's an absolute fucking masterpiece, that album. And this single like for many of us was was my first introduction to mm. it and unlike gary davis none of us who were listening to control were remarking on how like michael jackson exactly at all we were talking about how actually janet seemed better than mj at this time she has been around for a few years now but to little to no attention in the british music press i mean she was first seen over here in 1981 when she was acting as michael jackson's interpreter in an nme interview with danny baker but when her own career started it was given the absolute shortest of shrift but here she is now very much her own woman totally it's a fucking behemoth control because it prophesizes so much in black pop mm. and beyond. Of course, you can hear the sort of birth pangs of New Jack Swing here. You can mm. also hear shades of what would become the sound of rap music here too. I mean, it's no accident that Jam and Lewis, they use the same, I mean, to get geeky, they use the same Ensonic Mirage synthesizer that Public Enemy would use next year on Rebel Without a Pause. And oh, really? It, and this is a time, 86, where when we think about what white imaginings of black music are, they're kind of firmly located decades in the past, this kind of dream of soulful warmth and passion. Yeah. Whereas what black pop itself is actually taking on is this sort of inhuman almost industrial sound with with control in particular and it's becoming self-sufficiently something that can can be created no longer by sort of funk bands with 20 members but by just production duos and singers it's so prophetic of what happens in the 90s and mm. it's so ahead of its time in that regard although of course that idea in itself touches back to donna summer and georgia Maroda. and i think this uh, album is just as pivotal as that moment Control is a real shift in everything. If you can say that Black Pop has three revolutionary changes from 75 onwards, you can say that the first one's I Feel Love, the second one's that first Chic album, and the last one is this. It totally right. sets the tone for the subsequent decade. It's an amazing record. Yeah, yeah, you really want to. It really compels you to listen to it as well because there's so much space in it yeah. and it's so minimal. And yeah, yeah. It just draws you in in that way into the spaces of it. And then that you've got this kind of fantastically itsy bitsy but not sort of leaning too hard onto them she's got quite a soft mm. um sweet voice but she's using it as a little stabbing weapon you mm. know and in the video she's got this kind of baleful stare mm. oh, yes. which, oh and this kind of in the in the lyrics there's this sort of it's very confrontational totally so you mm. get this delicious kind of combination of those elements those yeah. kind of disparate elements um yeah. which just makes you go oh yeah it's so exciting it's great mm. so the video janet's sat in a calf with her mate with paula abdul oh is that paula abdul yeah yeah fuck well she's sat in the calf with paula abdul who provides <laughs> quite possibly the first bit of sass the people of britain have ever encountered <laughs> when she coats down janet's bloke and suffice to say there is a lot of snake necky gesturing what has he done for you lately <laughs> oh the video's fucking ace isn't it like all janet videos no one's talking to any hands just yet but you know that's imminent mm. Mm, mm. i love the set because there's no pretense at realism it's like mm. a stage show sort of musical type set but yes. there's a total realism to the attitude of janet 
and, and that mm. face that Sarah met, you know, oh, that yeah. unbroken, fierce face. She never smiles in this video. No. So when she does smile later in the When I Think of You video, it's a big moment when we see Janet smile later. She does a little smirk in uh, the video for Nasty. She's sat in a car and just does a little... (laughs) (laughs) So close the door if you want me to respond. Smirk. Mm. She just does this little. She sort of rolls her eyes to the side and right. does a tiny smirk, and it's it's because uh, these these gestures are so little. And like I said, you just lean in to to kind of take them in, you know. Mm. And like the little murmurs in this as well. It's it's kind of little tiny, you know, as well as the um, in between sort of way lower in the mix, you know, just, I swear. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this dude. So then we actually see the bloke poncing his way past the window and he absolutely thinks he's summer, doesn't he? He's dressed <laughs> up like the Fonz. This is pre-run DMC sports wearing big trainers, mm. which would have happened in six months' time. But, you know, he's just walking along as if to say, yeah, I am going out with Janet Jackson, actually. <laughs> Aren't I brilliant? And you just know what's going to happen next, because if pop videos have taught us anything, chaps, it's that pop stars, and particularly black American pop stars, they don't just sit down and talk out a relationship dispute. There has to be a lot of dancing and staring at each other, doesn't there? Backed up by their racially diverse mates. (laughs) (laughs) Videos that set up an adversarial situation are always great. I mean, me and Mm. Sarah talked about the Meatloaf and Cher video a while back, and um, I think this is possibly the greatest video like that since that one i think serious by donna allen is the gold standard ah. and yeah. the granddaddy of them all of course is america in the film version of west side story that's the origin point isn't it of all this more people should settle their relationship disputes with a bit of a dance with the mates <laughs> <laughs> and what well, fucking it, dancing yeah oh yes it's almost a disappointment that it seems to work in the end Mm. Yeah, I kind yeah. of want to yeah, go yeah. and they sit down and he buys her a donut and stuff and it's yeah. like oh now it's like the bar is still pretty low here like mm. you know I, I wanted her to just you know stomp out of there and take everyone with her including the chef so he mm. couldn't get anything to eat at the diner <laughs> yeah the chef's a right tramp isn't he he hasn't bothered to tie his ear back and we see him picking the icing off a cake and licking it yeah he's the comic relief yeah played by Larry Hankin who went on to be Mr Heckles in Friends it's a whole little story told mm. in in shoulder movements yeah yes unblinking straightened camera stares yeah, yeah. But it's nice that it works out at the end for now you know mm. you, you can tell he's on his last warning it works out but there's no softening to janet no and that's because of the dance moves yeah of course sort of rigid lines in dance movement had existed before in terms of doing a robot and all of that sort of stuff but nothing is fluid in these dance moves everything's straight lines but but Mm. that rigidity uncovers the funkiness in the arrangement of the song so it's just a perfect combination um between dance moves and and the sound of the music yeah dance moves that have actually been choreographed with a care for the sound of the record Mm. As far as the lyrical sentiment of the song goes, this is not yet the standard female line of domestic argument of the 90s, i.e. no money, no fanny. Janet's (laughs) essentially saying, come on, lad, step up to the mark, or we're going on Jeremy Kyle. Oh, if only Jeremy Kyle had dance routines, he'd be still on today. The Jeremy Kyle dancers. Mm. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Lie detector and co. (laughs) It's more about the the kind of emotional involvement, Mm. isn't it? It's more about Mm. like, are you going to show up in the larger sense in this relationship or not? Mm. Which is a recurrent theme in pop, but it's rarely done with this kind of reasonable aggression. Yeah. Mm. 
And it, it stems from, <laughs> crucially, Jam and Lewis being the first people to actually ask Janet what she wanted to do. Yes. And yeah. what she wanted to sing about and what she mm. wanted to write. So they, they gave her songs and they worked with her on songs that she wanted to do. That had never happened before in her career. Yeah, she wasn't going to be little Janet Jackson. No, no. And consequently, you know, Control is obviously an important title for all kinds of reasons. And I've said that it mm. prophesizes the future. But starts a lineage of black female artists who have just stayed uncompromised, slightly isolated, who live off their hits, mm. and whose sporadicness just amplifies the myth around them. So, I, I, you know, I think yeah. so much comes from this. Like, I mean, TLC and stuff like that, obviously, but Missy, Lauren Hill, Mary J. Blige, Erica Badu, it all kind of starts with mm. control, I think. And she's still only 20 at this point, which is no age at all when you think about it. No. I just can't believe I met her. <gasps> you shook her hand, didn't I you? shook her hand, yeah. Oh. Went to see her in Rotterdam. Oh, my God, what a show. I remember that review of yours. <laughs> Holy shit. Somewhat hysterical, yeah, as great. I recall. Yeah, no, there was a meet and greet afterwards, and I never normally do those things. Not not because I'm above that kind of thing, it's just that they scare me. Mm-hmm. But my God, you don't get many chances to meet Janet Jackson. And it wasn't like, you know, we had a big effusive conversation. I was I was on the conveyor, you know, going past Janet, mm. very small, obviously. And I just uh, sort of leaned over and shook her hand and said, thank you. That was, the show was amazing. And she just said, thank you very much. And that was that. But yeah, this hand um, has touched Janet Jackson's hand. Oh, my God. Ooh, <laughs> how long before you washed it, Neil? <laughs> I didn't go crazy about it, but oh my God, what a moment. It was a levitating moment, that. It was, it was oh. every now and then in this shitty business of writing about pop music, you just have these moments that are just like, fuck me, I can't believe that happened. And that was one of the pinnacles for me. But a year after this episode, when she's in London, she gets the privilege of sitting down with none other than rock expert mm. David Stubbs in an interview for Melody Maker. Oh, Neil, you must have been right jealous of that. <laughs> I mean, Stubbs was my hero at this time anyway, 86, 87. Oh. So, you know, it was a meeting of minds there. But I remember mm. David, unlike virtually everyone else who spoke to Janet in this period, just didn't condescend and, and didn't, you know, do those, uh, didn't ask loads of questions about fucking Michael. Maybe that's because the first words out of her mouth to David were, are you from the sky? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he immediately assumed that she was just yeah, barking yeah. mad or something. But then she said that she meant Sky magazine. <laughs> and then David immediately distinguishes himself by asking her if he could nick a grape off the table, only to be told by her that it was actually an olive. <laughs> I remember that now. Yeah, then he yeah. asks her what she's up to, and uh, she says, oh, I, I've just got myself a pet bear. As you do. What? <laughs> Sadly, or luckily, wasn't sat on her lap at the time, staring at David. And, yeah, she just said that her time bunkered away in Minneapolis mm. was a proper woodshedding period that dragged her right out of the showbiz bubble and helped her to become her own person. And David thought that was nice. Mm. I don't know if he shook her hand. <laughs> I'm sure he did, but, you know, the miraculous thing about Janet, I mean, uh, Sarah mentioned the Rhythm Nation album. The more you listen to that album, it's actually better than Control a little bit. It's an astonishing album, that. But she's yeah. managed to keep her mystique intact, Janet, completely mm. intact in all the years since. Um, you know, wardrobe malfunctions notwithstanding. She's, oh, she's, yes. She's, she's, she's done that. It's great that um, since she has read every mention of her ever, she will now know that you believe her to be the first human who evolved to actually have sex with herself. Yes, I believe I did say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Such a great line. But you know that that's the thing about writing live reviews. If you do them on the night or like in the morning because you're on a weekly deadline or whatever, you can't keep out the the frothy excitement that you're in. It was just astonishing seeing Janet Jackson live. She was amazing and shaking her hand and all of that. I'll never forget that. I'll also never forget that that was the review where I first had a run in with uh, Mark Shetland <laughs> regarding his ideas about, you know, uh, making references. Because because I said in the review, I think I said, uh, yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore because her show was amazing. All sorts of costume changes. And it came out and it said something like, um, and just like Dorothy in the classic film, was it was, we're not in Kansas anymore. <sighs> Fucking with my rhythm, man. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so the following week, what have you done for me lately? Soared another ten places to number six, and a week later got to number three, its highest position. The follow-up, Nasta, got to number 19 for two weeks in June, and she completed her 1986 run of singles with When I Think of You getting to number 10 in September and Control stalling at number 42 in November. She went on to rack up 35 more top 40 singles, including 15 top tenors, and she got one of her nips out of the Super Bowl and made American religious bellends throw a proper mod on, which was skill <laughs> I wonder what event she's saving to get the other one out that's Janet Jackson right now here's my favourite of the new entries this week straight in at 28 making their debut on top of the box tonight we welcome It's Immaterial with Driving Away From Home hey. now just get in Close the door and put your foot down. We don't even get the benefit of seeing Davis back in the studio because there's so much to fit in. So while Janet and her bloke do the dance of reconciliation, he prepares us for what he reckons is the pick of this week's new entries. Driving away from home, Jim's tune by It's Immaterial. Formed in Liverpool in the mid-70s, Albert Dock and the Cod Warriors were an art rock group led by John Campbell, who were the in-house band at Eric's, the spawning ground for Liverpoolian bands of the Aventis, and supported the Sex Pistols there in October of 1976. In April of 1977, they changed their name to Yachts and supported Elvis Costello at Eric's, which led to a one-single deal with Stiff Records. But soon afterwards, Campbell left the band to return to his art school course. However, he soon plunged back into the music scene, and in 1980, he formed It's Immaterial, so-called because they didn't give a toss what the band was called, along with assorted members of Yachts, who were floundering by this time despite supporting The Who on their 1979 tour, and would eventually split up in 1981. A year later, they tacked on Jarvis Whitehead, who Campbell had first met at that Sex Pistols gig, and started picking up John Peel sessions and occasional appearances in the independent charts. But after a while, assorted members started to drift away, including Henry Priestman, who went on to form the Christians, and they were reduced to a two-piece. 
This single, the follow-up to Ed's Funky Diner, which failed to chart, was recorded in Milwaukee under the supervision of Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads, but they didn't like the country and western feel he decided to drape it in, or the rhythm section he'd got in, so they went behind his back and got the engineer to record their own version. However, they did keep in the harmonica bit, which was recorded by a local musician called Jim Lieber, who did regular session work in Nashville, hence the Jim's tune part of the song title. To their astonishment, it entered the charts at number 96 a fortnight ago. To their even greater astonishment, it was picked up on by Daytime Radio 1, who played the shit out of it, which caused it to soar 38 places to number 58. And this week, after an appearance on Wogan, it soared another 30 places to number 28. And here they are, on the top of the pop stage, making their debut performance well what a meteoric rise chaps but oh dear the limitations of top of the pops as new neon set reveals itself in full doesn't it it does because the top of the pop stage is kind of like a stage in a very busy nightclub or venue yes and it really does not work for essentially sort of dismalists Mm. like this band are yeah um there's a real incongruity between their appearance and what they look like and the song that they're singing and the kind of buzzy flounciness of the stage yeah i mean on that stage uh, are a couple of understated post-punk veterans with an old school radio mic and an acoustic guitar and they're backed by a woman on a keyboard and a bloke on a stool with a harmonica underneath a glowing pulsing pyramid looking for all the world as if they've been accidentally booked to play barry noble's astoria on miss wet t-shirt nights or an <laughs> advert for terry's pyramid <laughs> it's a clash isn't it i remember seeing this and I seem to recall on chart music, I talked about Tears for Fears and how disappointed I was with what they look like. Mm. Um, I and how they so- dance, no doubt. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I remember all that radio play, and it did get a lot of radio play. Mm. Catchy chorus, so I kind of liked it. And I, I, I didn't know anything about them or where they were from. And, you know, seeing them actually in the flesh... I just got mm. this crushing sense of disappointment. Either. What you were expecting, Neil? Well, I mean, the record is quite a suggestive record, and I just thought they were Americans or something, or right. at least Americans were involved. I, I don't know. I, I thought they, they'd look cooler than they did. I think I'd seen the video, but what was the video for this? Because I know they, they did one for the Tube, and then there was one later that turned up. The videos mm. are far more sort of collaged indeterminate affair where you can kind of ignore the google maps has had a point too many nature of the lyrics because the (laughs) visuals were kind of cool the sound was kind of american it almost convinced me they were american but here Mm. in the studio in the top of the pop studio you get what it's material actually are you know a few drippy liverpudlians who happen to have stumbled on a great chorus why do you think radio one played this to death I mean, Radio 1 would do that every now and again, but it'd be stuff like the oldest swinger in town or Captain Beaker. <laughs> I mean, to Radio 1, this is a, an absolute novelty, isn't it? I think the novelty aspects are the, the verses. Yeah. Those chatty verses, spoken word kind of about the M62 and, and, and other things, uh, that, that kind of makes it, oh, I know those places, I know those roads. Mm. And then the chorus is undeniably catchy. Mm. It's funny, I've seen some heated arguments about this record among music journos and other nerds. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, there's a big love-hate divide. And I'd completely get it, because I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. I remember it from the time where I remember the chorus. 
because mm, it was yeah. everywhere, I guess I would have just heard it on the radio. Um, I, I don't remember seeing this performance, so I had no notion of what they looked like until now, really. And then I was like, mm. oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that, mm. the, the chorus seems to come out of nowhere, but the verse is definitely of that guy who's a sort of floppy student fop, you know. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, mm. But I winced a little bit because he doesn't really have the driving voice, if you will, for that sort of Sprechgesang mm. talking over music in the verse, but it totally works. I am fully on board with this now, having listened to it and looked at it several times and right. it's so clever and it's so sweet yeah it sounds american mostly where that comes from i think is that bass line yeah. which is a very classic country and western kind of bass mm. ding 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 and ho 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 that's what it reminded me of. Well, it reminded you of what? How? Right. It made me want to make a tank out of a mm-hmm. cotton reel and some matchsticks. Oh, how? How? <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I blanked that out completely. Yeah. Oh, Sarah. Terrifying. It was terrifying. <laughs> Anywho, it's the sound of country and western. Also, it's mm. the sound of going in a car across America, isn't it? Mm. Doesn't that just ping that neuron in your head? It's like, that's. it sounds like a road trip. Mm. There's just something about that that evokes such an experience. Yeah. So, you know, that's obviously not an accident. But then you get the lyrics, which are very kind of self-consciously like, oh, teehee, we're in this funny little country mm. and we're pretending like we're in America yeah. and going on a massive road trip. Oh, it's only 30 miles to Manchester down the O's. And I first winced at that really hard and just went, oh, mm. God. And and I was like, no, no, this is really charming because the way that the chorus then sweeps that away and is so evocative. Mm. And it's really brilliant, I think. There's, um, oh, it's also, it's a lot like, not to suggest that they ripped this off at all, but um, Prefab Sprout had their album Steve McQueen out last year. Right. And um, there's a track on that called Farron Young. Which right, sounds, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is a lot like a lot like this. It's very Stan Ridgeway as well, isn't it? Do you think? Oh yeah, there's a bit of that, mm. and it's it's kind of Chris Isaacish as well. well. The production's lovely. I'd love to know what Simon thinks about this because it it really does lean deep into I lost my bag at Newport Pagnell territory. But you know, <laughs> I remember hearing this as a 17 year old lad who had failed his one and only driving test, mm. and the idea that you could leave your house, get into a car, and go to another city did my head in (laughs) and the idea of having mates who lived in manchester or newcastle or or even glasgow that was a mind blast Mm. you know around about this time i got to know someone who lived in surrey a up paul (laughs) hope you're right doc and you know i crashed around his ass one weekend it was like being abroad like all the chain shops were in different places to each other (laughs) that was insane yeah when cities look different yeah yeah i mean i'm sure we've all had that sense of like claustrophobia that this song evokes of like how small it is here and especially now I think there's this sort of suffocating sense of shrinkage where it's like harder to do anything Mm. here it's harder to even exist at all and it's harder than it's ever been to go and live anywhere else and you that's that's an unpleasant Mm. fucking Mm. feeling and you know that it's been driven by malign forces but it's easy to forget like even before the pandemic like we just went on holidays here because it's like 
Well, there's a place we haven't been. Mm. We haven't been there either. It's lovely. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, you haven't been to this. You know, it's an island. There's loads and loads of places on the coast that you can go to, and they're all so, so different from each other. Yeah. And it's not that small, especially if you don't drive. You know, it's it's, it's not that small. You wouldn't want to fucking drive across it in a day, would you? Well, maybe across it, but not not not, not the whole length of it. And, um, you know, it's from an American perspective. Obviously, mm. they drive five hours to, like, buy a nice coffee mug which is not necessarily good no you you're sort of trying to think uh, is there like a, a bit of smugness in in this because uh, he does he does have a slightly smug sound to his voice but mm. i think it's just it's awkwardness oh, you know God, yeah. and i think there's this lovely combination of things going on in this and it's partly there's a kind of expression of that yearning to be elsewhere just somewhere else mm. you go down the motorway for 30 mm. miles and it's somewhere completely different with different people with different everything yeah and that's such a part of the human experience and specifically the kind of yearning of some of the english for america like that largeness of self and that uninhibitedness that a lot of people i think feel mm. i've definitely felt that in my life and just gone Argh! you know i was gonna go and live there i've got family there and stuff and i never did which is probably for the best but just the sensibility, I think, of just going, mm. I'm frustrated by the constraints of this culture and the smallness of it, and I want to go somewhere else. But if you can't, you make the best of it where you are. And that's all in there. Mm. And it's just the vocal line of the chorus that does this for me. It, it does sound like trundling down a motorway at night in a Ford Fiesta with the heaters on full blast. And <laughs> there's like a comforting little metallic <laughs> rattle, and it can't be identified, but it's not getting any worse. And it's that thing. There's mm. this lovely melancholy to it. And also just a sense of, like, defiantly romanticising where you live. Why not? Do that. Do that. Yes. But the thing is, I, I agree it has this yearning to it. But my relationship with the record has completely changed over the years because, you know, I'm not a passenger anymore. I'm the driver now. I'm dad cabs. I have to drive everywhere. Um, if you're in the back seat... <laughs> oh, here, here we go. Well, no, I'm just, Brace yourself, if Birmingham. You, if you're in the back seat, right, of a car, you, you can entertain these kind of dreams. Um, and that record, this record, um, mm. really did speak to me as, as a frequent passenger, you know, dad the motorway it has got that yearning to it but these chatty verses um with the lead blokes kind of increasingly annoying thoughts about the view out of the window they just annoy me now um as a mm. driver there's a midnight run sense in which if this guy was your kidnap victim you'd, you'd pull over on the hard shoulder straight pass <laughs> and just abandon him there because he just will not shut up with his rambling oh wow a little chef perhaps we could go for breakfast or, or if you'd rather i've made some sandwich would you like cheese? <laughs> I've made them all. Aww. Do you want a United or a club or a trade? Just get out, man, you know? I mean... <laughs> oh, man, he's brought all his stuff from home and he cut the sandwiches, like, <laughs> diagonally instead I know, of crossways. I know. Know. Bless what flavour club? Mm, it's got to be a mint for me. Orange. Uh, yeah, orange. I'm with you, sir. But, um, and look, if you got in a car with this cunt fairly rapidly, you would just be really angry with him. I realise it's a kind of... <laughs> You know, all the world's our oyster, you know, vague song. But I mean, look, if I'm in the driving seat, I want to know where are we going? Mm. You know, Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow. There's no mention of stopping at services either. As a dad no. who likes to plan journeys like this, I, I can <laughs> feel my dadly rage rising at his Kerouac <laughs> style. You know, let's just hit the road and see where it takes us. 
imprecision. That's kind of like in television, you generally don't see anyone go to the loo. Mm, mm, like, mm. because you know that that's going to happen at some point, but you don't need no. to see it. You know, it's like going to the services is a really functional part of traveling that you don't need in your sort of romantic little song about the M60. No, but I mean, for me, going to the services is romantic because my dad, he never stopped at services. Oh. He always just kept going. I mean, unless we needed a wee, that was a different thing. But that would be pulling over mm. the hard shoulder and having a slash in a bush or something. Mm. I mean, I remember these long journeys mainly because whenever we pulled into a petrol station, my, my dad had this weird thing um, of, of writing down the mileage and how much he'd paid for the fuel and right. all of this in a little red book that was in the glove compartment. Oh, like Keith Pratt. I reckon it's a post-OPEC crisis thing. I don't know what it mm. is. But um, yeah, I mean, that was the only break that we had. Canal. But yeah, the annoyance of this song now is probably because I'm a driver and it is not helped by the, the top of the pop stage. Um, no. Which really doesn't do them any favours. Um, I think they would have been much better off, yeah, just playing the video for this. I mean, this is their moment in the sun after years of toil mm. don't seem to be enjoying it do they it's sort of in character mm. kind of it would be weird if they came out smiling they have done a lot of driving away from home of late because in <laughs> tomorrow's liverpool echo john campbell talks about how it feels to have made the big time after so many years of near misses and knockbacks and doesn't sound like he's having a laugh at all quote Ask him if he really wants to be a star and the silence is deafening before he says yes. If there is a reluctance, it is only because he wants it on his terms. Already the pace of having hit the charts with one of the fastest selling singles of the year has taken its toll. Seven television appearances in eight days. No sleep for three nights while they work in the studio on a debut album. Interviews, appearances, more interviews, photo sessions, and so it goes. I'm knackered, he says. It really has gone crazy. The single has come from nowhere and we really didn't expect it to be like this. I can see how some people just get blown away from it all. I never want us to be in the position where our music suffers because of all the razzmatazz. It worries me a bit because at the moment it hasn't really sunk in. You spend all your life wanting to be successful and then when it happens it seems like it's happening to someone else. You watch Top of the Pops and Wogan and suddenly you are on it. I was standing there on Wogan miming along, they won't let you sing live on it, and thinking there's 11 million people watching me standing here miming and my bottle nearly went. It was all so weird. I wanted to get back home for a pint. You don't know what it's going to be like until it happens no. and then you still don't know what it's like mm. because it's this weird machine that is working without you and you're just sort of in it mm. i totally get that this is a foreshadowing of all those other indie-ish bands who suddenly become massively successful isn't it yeah but when does that start happening those indie bands becoming massively successful i would argue that after 86 that doesn't happen for a while and and mm. you know what we're about to see in 87 is Stott Aitken and Walkman coming in. And mm. these kind of one-off little hits that would weirdly get a load of radio play. I mean, like, it's a material, like you said, they've got these long roots back in Liverpool's kind of indie past. Mm. Um, you know, They're the, almost like the last knockings of that Liverpool scene from the yeah, Aventis, very aren't much they? So. I mean, I think the Christians do have hits, don't they? Or a hit, yes. at least. But that kind of thing of a band with a history 
getting a hit like this, that's going to stop for a few years until kind of Manchester and Britpop come along mm. and that starts happening again. So this is a kind of last hurrah for that because, um, you know, in 87, uh, Static and a Waterman are just going to mm. take over. Anything else to say about this? I always hated the name. I think it's a silly, smug name. Mm. It's that very sort of, oh, we're above uh, pop bands with their silly mm. names, you know. And I thought, I bet this is, you know, this is one of those proper one-hit wonders where that's all they had. So I actually listened to the album. It's really good. Right. It's a really gorgeous sound and very interesting songwriting, all restrained just the right amount, because you can tell that they've figured out that they don't want to be, you know, too self-consciously quirky, which is what you get a bit mm. of in this mm. single. There's a mass of ideas, but it's all really thoughtfully arranged. That nothing is too crammed in. So it's mm. really dense, but lots of space. There's a bit of it sounds a bit teardrop explodes, a bit tears for fears, a bit Scott Walker. Right. And um, a bit talk talk. Like um, I read an interview with uh, John Campbell saying that they were the band that they had the most sort of kinship Ooh. with mm. that they were around at the time. It's, you know, and there's almost a bit of crowded house in there, just that sort of softness. Right. Yeah, it's really good. I really recommend it. I'm fully on board with this band now, and I think they didn't get their due at all. No. There's loads of, like, lost bands who you sort of think, you know, well, in another universe, they're as big as, you know, Mm. they're as big as Tears for Fears or whatever. Yeah. But it's like, it's partly there's loads of stuff that went wrong. They just were sort of doomed. Oh, yes. Bands like this I, I have sympathy with because they don't fit in immediately and you're a bit unusual you end up nowhere because labels and publishers don't have the imagination to promote these things on their own terms mm. so that's something that that is never going to change i think yeah sarah b persuades me to listen to it's a material was not something i predicted for 2023 <laughs> <laughs> maybe they should have put them in a vintage car like the mixtures back in the early 70s mm. or got them to dress up as um, paul burnett and dave lee travis doing convoy <laughs> uk <laughs> So the following week, driving away from home, leapt another 10 places to number 18. But a combination of the label not having pressed enough copies of the single, the band burning themselves out from making so many TV appearances, no available promo video to fall back on at the time, apart from one recorded by the Tube, which appeared only once and they weren't going to let out to the BBC, and their label Siren moving on to other bands as they assumed their work was done leading to the single dropping four places the week after and it's slipping down the charts with a rushed out official video doing nothing to turn the tide the follow-up a re-release of ed's funky diner only made it to number 65 in august their debut lp life's hard and then you die got to number 62 in the lp chart in september and this remains their one and only appearance on top of the pops They're still active today, putting out their third LP, House for Sale, in 2020, 27 years after they first started work on it. It's not fair, he's got a bigger microphone than me. It's immaterial. Right now, let's have a look at this week's Top 10. And going up eight places to number ten, Big Country, Look Away. Up six to nine, Simple Minds, All the Things She Said. Aha and Train of Thought, they're at one place to number eight. The Real Thing, You To Me Are Everything, are down one to seven. And down three to six, Sam Cooke with Wonderful World. 
Down one to five, Samantha Fox, Touch Me, I Want Your Body. Up three to four, Queen, Kind of Magic. Falco, Rock Me Amadeus is up two places to number three. And after three weeks at the top, Cliff Richard and the Young Ones are down to number two. Which means Britain has a brand new number one. He's here in the studio, George Michael, at a different corner. displaying severe microphone end there, Davis breaks down the top ten. Oh, two re-releases in the top ten, chaps. You to me are everything by The Real Thing, A Wonderful World by Sam Cooke. Why, it's almost as if the nation is starting to give up on the 80s, <laughs> music-wise at least, anyway. Yeah. A lot of us were. A lot of us were. Before we move on, um, I've got to point out that I am no judge of the female gaze, and I'm speaking as someone who isn't even a child's finger painting, let alone oil <laughs> one. But I must say that I've seen very little in Gary Davis's performance tonight that would make the housewives of Britain cup themselves in a special place. <laughs> Especially when compared to the next act. So, why are these sex workers throwing themselves through glass to get to him? Now, it's in the eyes, man. It's in the eyes. Oh, He's got right. Gary Davis eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but they are. It's got fairly big eyes. They're kind of, uh, mm. yeah, wet with longing. Um, mm. and, and perhaps the hair as well. Yeah, I've got to say he's an extraordinarily good Nick nowadays. Fucking Ooh, hell. Yeah, he, looks he looks better now than he did then. Much like all of us, I think. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finally, Davis introduces the number one single, A Different Corner by George Michael. We've covered George Michael and his debut solo single, Careless Whisper, a couple of times on chart music. And this is the follow-up. He's still a member of Wham, but not for much longer, because seven weeks ago he announced that he was not only splitting with the duo's management company after they were bought out by another company that was 40% owned by a South African investments group that also owns Sun City, but he's splitting the duo up. Even though there's a farewell single, LP and Wembley Stadium gig to come this summer, the solo career has already started. And this single, which was written and recorded from gun to tape in 14 hours, was released three weeks ago. And when Simon Bates played it for the first time on Radio 1, he was so taken by it that he lifted the needle, dropped it at the beginning and played it again because he's Simon Bates and he does what the fuck he likes. (laughs) It smashed into the chart as the highest new entry at number four a fortnight ago, nipped up to number two last week and this week it's pushed the double-decker bus containing Cliff Richard and the young ones off the sub of Mount Pop. And here he is, actually in the studio like he was a real-life human being, doing his stubbly, mullety thing. And it's clear by now, chaps, that George Michael has won the 80s hands down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, practically all his contemporaries from the early 80s have either fallen off or become the things they were railing against when they first started. And it is he, and he alone, that stands at the top of the summit with his future mapped out, seemingly for the rest of the century. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he looks like fucking Lion-O from Thunder. <laughs> he looks great, in a way. Amazing boots, jeans, big hair, fresh stubble. 
He mm. still looks like a pop star, and the audience are looking at him like he is. Yeah. And they're not chucking balloons about. No. Well, they, they just burst on his stubble, weren't they? <laughs> his peers, or, or his new tier of peers, are falling over themselves to shower plays upon the, the man, the musician, and yes, the business model. He's already recorded with Elton John and David Cassidy. Just been announced today that he's going to be working on a single in Los Angeles with Stevie Wonder. Mm. According to John Blake's White Hot Club in the mirror it's a ballad in the same vein as careless whisper but somehow it's more adult it's very electric and possibly the best thing he has ever done well it probably wasn't because nothing ever comes of it but he's very much in demand by the giants of pop i mean elton john himself said along with perhaps blank george michael is the greatest songwriter of his generation who do you think blank is who do we think Elton John thinks blank is? Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We'll come to that later yeah, then, shall yeah. we? I've got to say, this is a fucking weird number one, isn't it? Probably one of the weirdest number ones of the 80s. Yeah, it's so strange to be, to be number one. Yeah. Do you think this would have been number one if anybody else but George Michael had recorded it? No, probably not. That's the thing, isn't it, is that it's George... I mean, it's partly all these people have fallen over themselves to work with him because sometimes talent will out and sometimes you recognise that someone is on track to join the greats, you know. Mm. It's this very sparse, deeply weird, chorusless song and the, the yeah. fact that he, only he could infuse it with this sort of billowing emotion mm. and that's why, that's why it's number one, it's because it's fucking heartbreaking oh, God, and God. it does stuff. I mean, the thing is, I don't experience synesthesia. You know, the thing where, like, colours taste of things and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this song has always done explodey things to my brain. And, like, this song is obviously very bright white, isn't it? Yes. It's white. It's a huge, white, empty song. And mm. it's like, and it tastes of crushed ice. Ooh. There's a clip, a little tiny clip in the middle of the video, which is indeed George sitting around a massive white room. And Mm. that's what it had to be, because that's what this song is, is a huge white room. And Mm. there's this amazing contrast between, like, the deep, familiar, roasty warmth of George Michael's voice and this Mm. kind of ice palace around it. (laughs) You you keep waiting for some strings or something that never arrived, Mm. something, because there's this sort of drone. Mm. You expect some sort of flourish or something to hold on to, and all you get is this kind of... There's a sort of sympathetic Spanish guitar, which I think they could have left out, because it adds a sort of note of comforting sorrow, which is not really what this song is about. It's almost like, yeah, oh, you know, maybe you start looking through Airbnbs in Menorca, maybe (laughs) I can start to heal, go on a nice (laughs) holiday, maybe even have a little holiday Mm. romance. No, no, you have to sit in that corner with your pain as if it will never end that's you know and there's a kind of shattered tremulous piano it sounds like it's playing way down the hall somewhere yes. all you have to cling on to is this kind of light synth bass which is kind of round and friendly bom bom bim mm. um, and it kind of bounces but also establishes this sense of hollowness mm. it's almost like the prisoner ball coming towards you well how bad can it be it's just a big white ball no no <laughs> it's misery forever that's what it is yeah i mean it's almost like the music you hear when channel four had ad breaks with no adverts a few years previous no this is not something you could ever put i'm really glad it's never been licensed to my knowledge mm. like there are so many things mm. where you, you know you, you hear it on an advert and, and you go how has that been allowed is there not some sort of council mm. where i know it doesn't matter 
but it's like sometimes you'll hear like Nina Simone or something and you go how what why is this on a car advert mm. you know fuck fuck the now but and you know, Sarah, <laughs> i was just gonna say oh i wonder what happens when george michael dies what music will they use in the adverts and then i go he's dead mm. he died fucking years <sighs> ago he st- I still yeah. he still doesn't compute that george michael isn't no. on the living side of the world he is one of those it is like an error in reality mm. Indeed. I mean, it was Christmas Day and the news came through. And I got it. This is how I always end up hearing the news of big people dying, is somebody that assumes that I already know, going, oh, isn't it sad about Amy Winehouse, isn't it, at a, at a festival? What, isn't it sad about George Michael? What? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. And I was with, you know, all my favourite people and we were all quite quite merry and stuff. I'm just like, oh. oh. It was heartbreaking. And it was, you know, it was so sad. Well, I, I think um, the, the word Sarah used was sparse and, and that's exactly it. Mm. It, it, it's so weird for me to see this in its original context because I remember when this song came out, I simply did not get it mm. because I was young. And this is an intensely adult song in a lot of ways. Oh, yes. It's got no drums. I mean, I hated all records without <laughs> drums, pretty much. And, and as a young person, uh, it, it just seemed like this got to number one because it was George yeah. Michael. Beca- yeah, because but, he's ooh, a- you only buy that because you fancy him. Yeah. Because he's a big enough star to just generate this instant sort of buy-before-you-try thing. Mm. He has this commercial momentum that can't be stopped. I mean, I still think that, actually. But the older I've got, the more this song gets to me. Mm. And the more this song rises in the George Pantheon, to the point I'd put it only second to, to Fast Love. I think right. it's, it's like his, one of his finest moments. Mm. And it is such a sparse number one. Yeah. Um, barely there at all. You know, just two verses, really. And the first George Michael record, I think, where rather than going somewhere or doing something, he's paralysed in this record. It's all wispy and cloudy because the protagonist of the record, George, Mm. is confused and Mm. despairing and just kind of wandering around his his own paralysis yeah he's not going for anything at the moment is a no and he's he, he, and crucially it's one of his first records to not mimic anything to mm. not sound like club music it, it, it's completely unique on the back of the sleeve to this record it says dedicated to a memory yeah. Yeah. and on the front there's just this black and white shot of a guy with his back to the camera some distance away walking into a park kind of totally alone mm. it looks like the cover to joy division's atmosphere right now Although George was still officially one half of Wham, it's hard not to read this song as a kind of farewell to all that. And it really is a true solo record, you know, entirely composed, sung, played and produced by the same person. And Mm. we won't get that again until sort of White Town. And it's mm. the first one of those since Stevie Wonders I Just Called to Say I Love You. The sound of this record, though, it's more like sort of Eno or ambient music. Yes. And, and I, I kind of wonder a lot about what was influencing George at this time. Yeah. He has recently appeared on a, at this point on a BBC Two Arts documentary where he reviews Mark Johnson's um, An Ideal for Living book about Joy Division. Right. And on yes. that, he speaks really warmly about Joy Division's music. Yes, he does, yeah. yeah, Isn't that the one with Morrissey in it as well? Yeah, I think so, And Tony Blackburn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking hell. (laughs) (laughs) A meeting of minds. Yeah. But, but, I mean, beyond beyond the Farewell to Wham thing, there's also a subtext here that perhaps couldn't be discussed at the time. Um, The song seems to be about a friend he can't bring himself to tell he's in love with. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I would promise you all of my life, but to lose you would cut like a knife so I don't dare. Yeah. Because I've never come close in all of these years. You're the only one to stop my tears. I'm so scared. This paralyzing fear of rejection that mm. prevents him from getting close to his desired other, but also stops him from moving away. It's this torture of a kind of lifelong compromise. And yeah. all of this amazing lyrics is conducted in perhaps the first yeah George Michael it doesn't feel like a pastiche of other music Wham Records picked off genres mm. and whammed them up yes you know whether that's rap or, or 60s Motown or disco this one really doesn't and in a way, weird way, it's almost like it's a very indie song in a way. Mm. It, it's like a homage to Jimmy Webb or Carl Wilson type songwriting, the Beach Boys at their most strung out. Yes. But, I mean, it was startling to hear a song like this from George at this point. Mm. It's about disillusionment and broken hopes. But there's a dissonance in this performance because, yeah, it's a song coming from this small cramped space. But he, yeah, he looks like fucking Lion-O. He still looks like a pop star. <laughs> All the neon's gone, replaced by a burst of white light, presumably in an attempt to ape the video. And a background of huge Perspex test tubes with George in a dark leather jacket with all manner of fringing on it over a white shirt with jeans and brown cowboy boots. It's got to be said, he, he looks fucking awful, man. <laughs> he looks like he's just joined in a cowboy club up the road okay my argument uh, my counter to that al is who gives a shit right well <laughs> it's okay a different- yeah <laughs> and, and and also kind of chuck in it was 1986 in the top of the pops a week before brian ferry pitches up doing his latest single he's got a fucking awful blue jacket on with all the fringing it's like he's wearing every single one of roger daltrey's jackets from the <laughs> early 70s and fucking out, 1986 even made brian ferry look shit i, mean, I think I, I do think brian ferry is slightly overrated as a style icon because he did wear some ludicrous shit in his time but yes it was mm. it was 1986 what yeah but what are you gonna deliberately do? ludicrous mm. in 1986 this is the look he's going for and it's Oh, it's dreadful. <laughs> Video playlist pop craze youngsters. Are we talking about Brian Ferry now? Or can we get back to talking about George Michael? <laughs> Talk about George Michael, Doc. Poor, poor Yog. He deserves better than this. I mean, mm. I just, I think he was, he was a great pop star. And uh, that doesn't mean that he wasn't sometimes slightly, I mean, obviously he was uncomfortable in his own skin mm. because, for obvious reasons. And I think sometimes that went all the way to the clothes. But Sarah, in the video, he looks mint. He's almost white pyjama, isn't he? Yeah, it's the kind of very expensive, like, linen, white flowing kind of garb. That's sort of ascetic, maybe I'll just go and become a monk kind of way. Yes. (laughs) You could, I suppose, imagine George doing a different corner in his video garb. But that wouldn't have been significantly better, I don't think. I mean, Mm. it is weird to see him singing this bright white song of desolation that is literally like being inside a cloud that is Mm. filled with your own tears. But um, I... And so it's weird that he's wearing jeans and a a fringed cowboy jacket and cowboy boots like, Mm. you know, like a normal man who wasn't aching through to his soul. But... (laughs) Mm. he had to wear something, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But also the thing is, I think that, as you mentioned, the audience, you can't even sway. No. All you can do is stand still. And that's because the music is, is evoking this sense of frustrated movement. Yeah. What you experience is total stasis like you and yeah. paralysis. Yeah. And that's 
what the audience do. There's a couple of them that are having a go at swaying, uh. but it doesn't really work. And then there's two of them that I noticed. There's one long shot just over a girl's shoulder, and you just see like her big fluffy hair to the <laughs> left of the screen. And she's completely still as if she's wrapped with attention. And, you know, obviously he's miming. He's not even, you know. Mm. But that's what the record does to you. It freezes you. Yeah, yeah. And there's a boy with bleach blonde hair down on the right. And he's so still. He looks like a mannequin. (laughs) When I spotted him, I was like, oh, man. It's so fucking emotional. But it's like a liminal state in song form. Uh, So putting that, I mean, it's incredible that it's number one. And it's incredible that it's on Top of the Pops. Mm. Top of the Pops can't really contain this song mm, mm. the performance and the song and the reaction to it it reminded me of four years previous on top of the pops ghosts by japan right yeah, yeah. yeah just yeah. this really yeah, yeah, yeah. sparse song that the kids just gawp at it's a fucking weird record this mm. and um, i think definitely the weirdest number one of the 80s if george michael was was more hip in a sense at, at this time this would have been rightly hailed as a, a total masterpiece, mm. like, you know, one of the most important records of the decade. But what stops the record being a hip indie record is the vocal, because at key moments, that choked vocal he's kind of doing becomes a full-on the Michael roar, if you like. Not, not to force the lion over stereotype <laughs> too far, but, but tellingly, in the arrangement, what happens the louder George gets is that he feels further away. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the production yeah. gives the record that kind of fisheye lens feel, and this is George's mm. decision because he, he's done this himself. Yeah, um, you know that fisheye lens feel that at the point he's trying to come across as strong, it's actually the point in which he recedes into his his own bubble of loneliness even more. I mean, of course, none of this would have registered with me at the time at all and at this point in the episode i'd have just thought no drums and walked out Mm. but some things i just think you have to grow into and this is definitely one of them it's become one of my favorite records and it it points towards listen without prejudice massively i think yeah um um, but and what's odd is how it's become an almost forgotten george michael track yes you know because you never hear it on the radio or anything but it's one of his absolute best yeah you can understand really why it doesn't get played and stuff because it's just so affecting you know Mm. i mean like you said that echo of his voice at the end it is like he has left the room Mm. and and Mm. like his soul has left his body and is offering itself to any entity that could promise him a return to being lonely and confused because that is better than this Mm. fuck you know that's not that no i mean it is like this sort of suspended waltz it's kind of hanging there in the air and it's kind of not a pleasant listen in some ways because it's really it's so full of pain and so it aches every line of it just aches and i i remember feeling this at the time it was one of those little inklings that you get as a kid of what adult life is like mm. and i was mm. like woof yeah this doesn't yeah, sound good that. <laughs> like it was just it was there was this great mystery about it that really drew me in and mm. you couldn't help but feel something it was just like i don't know what's going on here but i um i feel it you know mm. um this is the other thing that this made me think of i haven't thought of for ages that um i went to an anthony gormley show about 15 years ago and there was an actual no. artificial cloud that was created by humidifiers in a big glass box mm-hmm. it's called blind Ooh. light and you could go in like a few people like 20 people at a time could go in and it was like a cool when you went in, it's like oh it's cool it's this fine white mist and you could breathe perfectly normally but you couldn't see anything like so you had right. to blunder around with your arms out and suddenly there would be another person like a stranger right there on your face and so there was <laughs> much bumping and giggling but there is no bumping in a different corner and certainly no giggling nor may no. there ever be again 
You're in this room of mist all alone. And if you reach out for the touch of another human being, all you find is a cold wall of glass. <laughs> I mean, he's still a member of Wham, but this is the most un-Wham single ever, isn't it? Very much so. And, and, and a bizarre choice as a single, really. Mm. I mean, they could be sure it would be a hit. It's George. Do you think anyone would be seeing this as a new Wham single? Because after all, it's not like Andrew's contribution to this is any less than it was in Last Christmas or I'm Your Man. He's just not in the video this time. Well, as Wham uh, dissolved and George started his solo career, there was a sort of confusion about, you know, the status of the band. Mm. That's what's odd, really, thinking about this performance. He's made this song, and if you make a song like this, it changes everything in terms of what you realise that you're capable of. And it must have been so odd for George to go from this, you know, back to... Yeah. Singing, wake me up before you go, go. Yeah, he had he had range, you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is a one-off, but like you say, it points towards what he's going to produce in the future. And I think he was very sure of his own ability and his own vision yeah. and what he wanted to do, and so he did it. Mm. But there's a mystery to this record that I think was possibly also mysterious to George himself. You know, sometimes artists, they just make something that I'm not saying is beyond their capabilities. And certainly he, he was responsible for all of this. But there's a magic and a mystery to this that, that goes beyond even his authorship of it. it it's a really <laughs> odd record. Yeah, I'm yeah, so glad we got to cover it because mm, it, it, yeah, it really is remarkable, this one. Yeah. If, you, if you make art at all, sometimes you will have that experience where you go, shit, where did that come from? Mm, and mm. you see why it is that people just go, oh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's God working through me or whatnot. But if you, you know, if you don't believe in that way, there's still something where you go that's beyond me i uh, how yeah, am i capable yeah, yeah. of that because work mm. comes through people and it is of them but it's not necessarily it's it is it's a mysterious process and so yeah of course if if you are in tune with if you're if you're good and you're sort of in tune with your own instrument and you are sincere and you're not trying to make it all about yourself and you want to reach other people and connect somehow with, I mean, God, this is so, th- this, this song is so, so desolate, but it does also reaching, it is reaching for, for contact with someone else. And hey, that could be you because you're listening to it. Mm. And that's why he was one of the greats because he could do that. And yeah, yeah I'm, it, it is transcendent. Do you think there's a comparison to be drawn between George Michael in 1986 and Paul Weller in 1982? You know, because he is splitting his band at their absolute peak. No, I just don't think George Michael needs to disown his past quite as much as Paul Weller does. I'm not saying Paul Weller's disowning the jam, but he's going in a deliberately unrocky direction. Mm. George Michael post Wham, I, f- I think as a songwriter, he's just realising, fuck me, I can actually talk about the reality of my situations and I don't have to play on the, the the perfect smile anymore mm. but he's actually he's gone beyond that in terms of it could have been awful man yeah. <laughs> he could have made deliberately dark music which this isn't it, it it's something else mm. and and he's realizing the variety of stuff that he's capable of i think this is a record beyond all of us but also beyond george a little bit and that's mm. what's so special about it mm. because people tend to forget that one were the only teeny group of their era that also had a sizable chunk of male fans you know, there were loads of lads in my year when I was at secondary school who just went mental with the hairspray and the fake right. tan and the feeler tops. If only to look like something that Girls of the Time fancied. And I can't see them lads being into this preview of softer solo George because it's even more of a departure than Careless Whisper. Yeah, yeah, completely. 
Um, but I mean, uh, you know, it is at number one. Yeah. Someone must have bought it. <laughs> well, yeah, someone's bought I, I think partly, yeah, there is that automatic itch, George, buy it. Yeah. But partly, you know, I mean, imagine hearing this coming out of the radio. There's going to be some people who are grown up enough to accept it and mm. who are just going to be stopped in their tracks by this record. Mm. Well, you won't see this record in the end of year enemy or Melody Maker polls as a great single, but it, it pisses from a great height on virtually every other thing um, that probably was getting lauded this year. But you can't laud it in the inkies because it's George Michael. But like that Anthony Gormley exhibition, Sarah, there are clouds on the horizon. In an interview with the NME a couple of months from now, on the Virgil Wham's last gig, Matt Snow brings up the rumour that the news of the world have a George Michael scandal story that they're not going to run until they feel it's safe to. And he asked George about it and he says... People do keep telling me there's going to be a story, but I can't think what it would be. The news of the world's angle would have to be, if it's big enough that they're sitting on it, some kind of gay story. Either that or a pregnant girl. It's unnerving to think that they're only waiting because they think the public likes me enough at the moment. Hopefully they'll have a long wait, and even then, I'll sue the arse off them laughs i mean we're 12 years away from george finally coming out or at least being frog marched out by the lapd but uh, it's been an open secret in the pop world right from the off hasn't it yeah yeah but i mean it that's so depressing to hear mm. that yeah, yeah. um yeah it's so depressing i mean it's just incredibly tough to be gay and be yourself and be a pop star in the 80s, you can't do it mm. because of these cunts at the News of the World and, and, and the rest of it. Yeah. That's heartbreaking to hear, man. Round about this time, Kelvin McKenzie's got fully on board with the who's gay and who's not, to the point of having a fucking whiteboard in the Sun officers with a list of who they know is gay, who they think is gay, and who they know isn't gay. And he's top of the list, isn't he? There's been uh, rumours going around the club scenes in New York that he's had a dirty weekend with a fashion photographer. But the tabloids held out for a very long time throughout the 80s. And it was only on the last day of 1985 that The Sun came out with a headline, It's a hit, gender bender DJ thumps wham George, about an altercation in a club where a drag DJ played I'm Your Man and sang lyrics about a fake relationship they were having, and George went up and had it out with him, and, and since then, the poor sod's been walking about with a sword of Murdercles hanging over him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was that documentary recently which just uh, recapped the whole fucking gruesome circus around uh, his outage and how he you know it was like a, a truckload of lemons fell on his head and he made the hardest gayest glitteriest lemonade out of it and put out outside <laughs> the most wonderful fuck you there has ever been but yeah it's disgusting and I didn't feel good watching it because it is just people now who, who really haven't done any reflecting you know it's mm. basically mm. blaming him for like well that's what happens when you try to keep a secret and it's a betrayal of your fans and this is kind of horrible punitive thing that they've used to yeah, justify yeah. the monstering that they're doing of another fucking human being mm. and it made me really glad that I never got into news in that way like I, I did a little bit of news and I could not have done it mm. I just couldn't and I understand yes people are just doing their jobs etc but fucking hell yeah but what, what a shit job yeah. what a shit job what what the fuck are you doing? At what point do you realise like you're tearing around, going to Brazil to like doorstop the grieving mother of George's dead boyfriend <sighs> and stuff? You know, just like, what are you doing? 
I never get that, to be honest with you, Sarah, from from fellow journalists who are like, you know, oh, it's work. Mm. You know, he that toucheth pitch shall be defiled. <laughs> Biblical, but you know, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, like, a few hours after he got outed, he went on, you know, he went on CNN and was like, "Yeah, I am not going to apologise for this. Yes, I am gay. Mm. Yeah, of course, I couldn't say anything before because look what's happened yeah. now." And I'm mm. not ashamed. And it was incredible. And he must have, you know, he knew that one day it was going to happen. And all of these fucking vile vultures going, you knew this would happen. You knew this would happen. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did. Mm. And now it's happened. So get over it. You know? Well, that's what's heartbreaking about him not still being here. Yeah. That's what's so horrible about this era. Fuckers like Kelvin McKenzie. It's abuse. And, and they're keeping this kind of info on their files and exerting all the power over this. Mm. And, and it's just grotesque to see. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, this is why it's so heartbreaking that George isn't here now. Mm. I never got to see him live, man. And I would love to fucking watch George Michael sing this precise song. Yeah. Because yeah. I suspect this precise song is something that George could have kept on singing for the rest of his life. Because it speaks of a feeling um, that's just, you know, immense and universal. Even though, it, even though it's so private and so personal, everyone has at some point felt this kind of paralysis of of grief or whatever whatever sadness you're going through and yeah it's just heartbreaking his imagine his voice now Mm. singing this it would have been fucking amazing anything else to say about this no i need to dab at my eyes a little bit yeah (laughs) (laughs) so a different corner would spend three weeks at number one eventually giving way to rock me amadeus it made george michael the first solo artist to score two number ones with his first two releases in the UK, the first person to score a number one in Britain with a single that he wrote, performed and produced, but most importantly, it got to number seven in the Billboard chart, which forced his American label to get the thumbs out their arses and prepare for a massive push when his solo career began in earnest. Two months later, The Edge of Heaven, the last Wham! single, smashed into the chart at number two and then spent two weeks at number one. He then took the rest of the year off singles-wise, roaring back in January of 1987 with his duet with Aretha Franklin, I Knew You Were Waiting For Me, entering the chart at number two and also spending two weeks on the summit of Mount Pop. His first single as a properly solo artist, I Want Your Sex, got to number three in June of that year, and he spent the rest of the 80s, 90s, and aughts as a regular chart presence. But he'd have to wait nearly 10 years for his next fully solo number one, when Jesus to a Child made it for a week in January of 1996. And the other greatest songwriter of his generation, according to Elton John... It's not Morrissey, is it? Nick Kershaw. Michael, a different corner. Watch out for the big Wham! concerts of well coming up this summer. Janice Long, Dixie Peach doing Top of the Box next week. We'll leave you with a chart entry at 33 from Whitney Houston. Good night. Davis, aside the top of the Pops logo of shame, reminds us of the big Wham! concert at Wembley he'll be comparing soon. By the way, Chuck, do you, do you know who the support acts were for Wham! the final? Um, <laughs> no. 
Nick Kershaw? I don't know. Uh-huh. They started by screening the documentary Wham in China, Foreign Skies for the first time, breaking the record for the biggest audience for a film premiere, by the way. And then it was Nick Haywood and Gary Glitter. Oh, my God, <sighs> I know. Why Gary Glitter? That is That's bizarre. He then tells us that Janice Long and Dixie Peach will be in the chair next week and signs off with The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. Born in Newark, New Jersey in 1963, Whitney Houston was the daughter of Sissy Houston, who started the Drinkard Sisters with her sisters in 1938 and was later joined by Sissy's niece, Dionne Warwick. In 1963, when Warwick embarked on a solo career, Whitney's mum formed Sweet Inspirations with Doris Troy and Dion's sister, Dee Dee, who signed to Atlantic Records and spent the rest of the 60s backing practically every Stax artist, as well as Van Morrison on Brown Eyed Girl and the Jimi Hendrix experience on Burning of the Midnight Lamp before backing Elvis when he returned to the stage at Las Vegas. By the age of 11, Whitney was soloing in a local gospel choir, but had also started to dabble with secular music, making her debut appearance at Manhattan Town Hall singing Tomorrow from Anne. By the late 70s, she was dividing her time between backing her mam, who had gone solo, and starting her career as a fashion model, appearing in Cosmo, Glamour, an advert for Canada Dry, and singing an advertising jingle for the restaurant chain Steak and Ale. And while the likes of Michael Zager and Luther Vandross came a-knocking offering record deals, they were politely knocked back by her mam, who wanted her to finish school first. In February of 1983, an A&R from Arista Records saw her singing with her mum in a club in Manhattan and immediately begged his gaffer Clive Davis to sign her up. But there would be two years of woodshedding before she put out her first LP, Whitney Houston, on Valentine's Day of 1985. The first single from the LP, You Give Good Love, only got to number 93 in August of 1985 over here, but the follow-up, Saving All My Love For You, did miles better, getting to number one for two weeks in December of that year, and would have been the Christmas number one, were it not for Comrade Shaker delaying Merry Christmas, everyone, for a year to magnanimously allow Do They Know It's Christmas to have its little moment in 1984. This single, the follow-up to How Will I Know, which got to number five in February, is the seventh and final cut from her debut LP and was originally co-written in 1976 by Michael Massa, who wrote Touch Me in the Morning for Diana Ross, who was approached by Columbia Records to write a theme song for their Muhammad Ali biopic The Greatest and had actually relocated to Jerusalem to write the song because he felt just drawn there all summer. I don't know. <laughs> It was originally recorded by George Benson, got to number 27 over here in October of 1977 and became part of Houston's early 80s repertoire. Although Clive Davis thought it was too syrupy to put on a young new artist's first album, Houston, backed up by Massa, who she'd become mates with, threatened to scream and scream and scream until she was sick because she could if it wasn't put on the album. 
It entered the charts last week at number 46, and this week it's jumped 13 places to number 33. So here's a bit of video filmed at the actual Apollo in Harlem under some credits. And fucking hell, chaps, who would have thought that this song was about Muhammad Ali and we can lump this in with Cassius <laughs> Clay by Dennis Al Capone, Ali Shuffle by Alvin Cash, Rumble in the Jungle by the Fugees, and the Black Superman and in Zaire by Johnny Wakelin. <laughs> fucking hell. Yeah, that's a pub quiz question, isn't it? I mean, you, you just yes. do not expect that at all. And I like the George Benson version. Um, of this yeah oh poor Whitney we're ending on two stars who were no longer with us mm. I mean I prefer the Whitney who, who's allowed to dance yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with somebody and, with anybody you know, uh, <laughs> you know I, I still contend that it's not right it's such a fucking amazing record uh, because of that voice but oh yeah, yeah I think because of the success of this exact record The Greatest Love of All she's gonna be firmly shoved mm. from here on in into this thing of doing ballads which which it's kind of inevitably ends with the, with the Dolly Parton cover yeah And she's encouraged to just let her juggernaut voice do these big schmaltzy numbers. The trouble is, none of her producers or arrangers are smart enough to realise with that kind of voice that Whitney's got, that melismatic, gymnastic voice, it's best to keep the arrangements kind of sparse. Uh, the trouble is mm. with this record is they try and match her and yeah. consequently we keep getting these records where as a listener you feel kind of bullied and frog marched into emotion mm. <laughs> these kind of indistinguishably bombastic backing tracks always with that Nescafe gold blend sax oh yes point. Um, <laughs> it kind of hammers the songs home but it also hammers all possible emotion out of the experience of listening to them really. mm. so this left me a bit cold yeah it's too fucking mm. much isn't it really like I I, I do. I I think this is horrible, and I yeah, yeah. Um, I loved Whitney, and I didn't realise this actually until I was like when George Michael died. There was this pure sorrow that I could have known was coming, and w- with Whitney, I was taken aback actually how upset I was mm. when she died because I wasn't like mm. a, a fan, you know. But some of them just get to you, and uh, for whatever reason, it, it had something to do with how she had this great purity about her in some ways, not to fetishise it as a lot of people mm. did, but this great incredible voice and she just ended up dead in a hotel bath like any number of you know rock and roll assholes Mm. and it's just there's something so grim about it yeah you know it's like we may coat down your favorite pop stars but they're human beings who Mm. hurt you know (laughs) and there's this incredible uh, horrible dissonance between you know the way that she was there to kind of spread joy and bring excitement to the people and then mm. there was this horrible pain behind it which is you know Taylor's oldest time isn't it mm. well I mean the thing you realise now of course is that actually these records like The Greatest Love of All although they're selling themselves on soul on exposing Whitney's inner being and emotions they're, they're sort of actually a front and that they're, they're hiding real torment and despair that she can't bring to the surface whether she won't mm. allow herself or probably more likely she's not allowed to you know, and her mm. journey yeah, to yeah, this yeah. record, Greatest Love of All, I think starts with Saving All My Love For You in 85, and it ends up through one moment in time in 88 with that winter in 92, where she just stays number one for like what feels like 300 weeks. Ever. 
Yeah, I mean, the first female artist to do 10 weeks at number one since Doris Day in the 50s, you know. Right. So um, commercially, you could argue that this is a very, very smart record. But I think for us as listeners, it, it leaves us kind of, yeah, sad and cold, really. Mm. I do have a soft spot for Saving All My Love For You. And um, what was the other one you one said? Moment what, one Moment In Time, which is like this. And it, it's, it's like someone singing it as they're leaping from a tower, just going, <laughs> ah! <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous, but in a, in a good way. Mm. It is interesting and tragic in some ways the way that her career went mm. I think she knew what she wanted to do but yes I'm not sure that she ever really got to do it mm. you can just feel there's kind of a chafing you know because part of it was that I mean she got really slammed for going too white and too commercial and too pop mm-hmm. um, Al Sharpton called her whitey Houston yeah. which is which is just painful this is not something that I'm qualified to speak about but there's oh god I heard that and went Well, I mean, contrast this with Janet. Well, exactly, yes. Mm. There is no way either of them are going to fail, but... Oh, man, who would you sooner listen to a compilation of? Well, yeah. I mean, it's fundamentally the difference between an exertion of control, which is exactly what Janet's doing. Whitney always felt buffeted about by her her paymasters, if you like. Um, mm. I know she fought to get this record on, but this is the thing with Whitney. There's a slight confusion about her motivations for me, and that's why I've never really bonded with her, if you like, as an artist, because mm. there seems to be a really steely commercial sense. But the trouble is, it's not right that record she ends up making really late in her career that really suggested like fuck me you could have been amazing if perhaps Mm, you'd have exerted some of this control back then but Mm. you know i'm I'm not judging whitney on that it's it's a shitty business you know and you've got to get along but oh man it's lots of wasted years of this big big pompous bombastic balladry oh Mm. i mean i've fucking hate this song it's it's like being pinned down by the bad 80s and having it fart on your head for four minutes it's fucking awful it's it's for it's for karaoke cunts and future x-factor contestants who are waiting for simply the best to be made it is so kind of gloopy it is mm. like being in a theater and it's suddenly being flooded with the slime out of ghostbusters 2 <laughs> oh sarah you said ghostbusters 2 which makes me just think of me and sarah's favorite line from that film which i want to apply to this record now Everything you are doing is bad. <laughs> Everything you are doing is bad. I, I want you to know that. <laughs> I mean, it's not right, but it's okay. It's almost like a proto-Destiny's Child mm. track, isn't it? Mm. It's amazing. Everybody loves that. I mean, you know, I'm Your Baby Tonight is a bit slept on, mm. um, which was uh, written by um, L.A. Reid and Babyface to challenge her. Like, they wrote it to be unsingable. And she said, hold my beer right, and nailed right. it inside an hour. Yeah, Because she was brilliant at these big, bellowing runs but also the little precise ones you know and it's horrible when you uh, when you remember that you know she mm. lost it to drugs you know and just had this that was all kind of destroyed yeah um i mean she was you know by the time she died she was getting better again this is what always happens yeah. they get better and then they fucking die in the bath if only she'd watch drug watch <laughs> sorry that's yes fucking hell but i mean there's for me like my favorite like i said i don't I definitely don't hate all of her output. This is like the thing that I, f- I feel like is most closely associated mm. with her until you remember that she did I Want to Dance with Somebody and then you go, oh, yes, fucking yeah. hell. Which is just pure joy, isn't it? Mm. 
you know, you can't resist that, really. I mean, the problem I have with Whitney Houston is that, that to my mind, she was born in the wrong time. Mm. If she'd been about in the 60s, she'd been competing with Auntie Dion for the choicest cuts from the Baccarat David Kitchen. Mm. You know, in the 70s, she would have been working with Gamble and Huff or Rogers and Edwards, but it's the mid-80s, so she gets a few decent peppy tunes, but she also gets a ton of mawkish shit like this. Mm. Yeah, it is mawkish. Oh, yeah, it's exactly. awful. I mean, my favourite performance of hers probably is that, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, she sang the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl yeah. in 1991. Fucking hell. And if you can, there's this horrible kind of military shadow over it, quite literally, there's like a fly past at the end. Mm. If you can separate it from that, which is you know, it's a bit tricky, but it's mind-blowing. And she's so giddy to be so... She just rocks up there in a tracksuit, and she's so giddy to be so in control of her instrument and to get the response in real time mm. to what a staggering force she could just casually unleash upon all the thousands of people there. Mm. You can't deny the power of, you know, a black woman singing the American National Anthem, for one thing, but it's her, and she's having so much fun. Mm. I can't think of a clip that better communicates to we mortals what it's like to be able to really sing mm. like a goddess on a mountaintop and yeah. hear thousands of people respond going ah that's <laughs> the problem though we we know how good she is yeah. and in the end it's just like listening to fucking Eddie Van Halen or someone like that yes mate I know you can play the guitar mm. so why are you fucking over whittling everything yeah that's the thing about that performance though she does not over whittle at all there's yeah. that you know yeah. and it's like and it's in like 4-4 four, four as well it's this weird sort of march mm. arrangement so it's very strange yeah, I mean, the Star Spangled Banner is the parallel bars of singing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 you can you can make it your own, and she really, she really did. Marvin Gaye is mm. a good example. Uh, Cole Lewis is a very bad example. Mm. I think Krusty the Clown did it best, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the, the king was Leslie Nielsen in... Uh, oh, in God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you want a proper compare and contrast, you've got to go to one of the fights between Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis in 1999. They had fucking D'Angelo doing the Star Spangled Banner. We had a Cockney version of Fine Time Fontaine who they dragged out of a pub in my length to our <laughs> shitty dirge. And oh, it was awful, man. He, he, he finished by going, Gold save our queen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, our national anthem is fucking cat shit. Mm. But anyway, the video, fucking hell, I wish I'd have known at the time this video was set in the fucking Apollo because mm-hmm. round about this time I had bought and was absolutely rinsing the original Live at the Apollo by James Brown mm. and would just spend all my time lying on my bed listening to it just imagining how skill it would be to be inside that building Yeah, and here it is correct me if I'm wrong but I think it's, it's Whitney's mum isn't it yes yeah. starring That's in it sissy, helping yeah. a little girl out who's obviously going to turn into Whitney Houston so it, the mm. video's not bad what's weird though of course is that in the top of the pop studio we see the people not doing a lot and then the Mm. video becomes a screen almost that they're all looking up at um Mm. but they're not really and it's it's that same old confusion about the production values that seems to seems to go throughout this episode really Mm. Mm. yeah i had bad feelings watching this video because a couple of years ago i had terrible cramps and i just took as much codeine as i was safely allowed to and for some reason watched both of the whitney documentaries back to back there's like two feature length ones (laughs) oh mate (laughs) it's okay if you've had codeine it really takes the edge off but i mean they're both very good they're extremely grim obviously and one goes further than the other in suggesting how bad her child it was um but and also both contain a wealth of evidence that bobby brown is a thoroughly useless piece of shit who to be charitable about it did not help 
Anyway, she's there's a there's a moment where she takes her daughter Bobby Christina, a tiny like three or four year old Bobby Christina, on stage and kind of prods her to sing, and the kid obviously doesn't want to be there. And it really reminded me of that because Whitney like meets her own younger self on stage, mm. and it's like, oh, Bobby also who died exactly the same way as her a year and a half later, and it's just so. If I could have enjoyed this video at all before i definitely couldn't have done after that <laughs> poor whitney so the following week the greatest love of all so <laughs> 17 places to number 16 that didn't go as well as i thought it might <laughs> and then spent two weeks at number 10 and finally made it to number eight the follow-up the lead-off cut from her second LP, Whitney, I Want to Dance with Somebody, smashed into the chart at number 10 and would spend two weeks at number one as the meat in a nothing's gonna stop us now slash Star trek sandwich. And she'd go on to rack up two more number ones, 10 more top 10 hits and 29 more top 40 entries before she died in 2012 after an accidental drug overdose. It's not just Zamo. <laughs> and that, pop craze youngsters, brings us to the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with more Cockney misery in EastEnders, where Lofter asks Lou Beale for Michelle Fowler's Andy marriage. Then Tomorrow's World looks at all the nuclear waste Britain reprocesses and asks, why do we bother? Charlie Spedding, Michael Robinson, Willie Thorne and Susan Devoy join Bill Beaumont, Emlyn Hughes and David Coleman for a question of sport. Then it's the nine o'clock news. I woke up one morning, the Carla Lane sitcom that everyone's forgotten about. Then it's question time, the documentary series Brazil, Brazil, the weather and they close down at five to midnight. BBC Two is currently halfway through Best of Brass, where Yorkshire and the South Midlands throw down in a semi-final brass clash at the Assembly Rooms Darbear. Then it's a Saturday Review special where Russell Davies interviews the German director Edgar Wright about his 15-hour film Heimat, which is to be broadcast over 11 consecutive nights on BBC Two from Saturday. I fucking loved Heimat. Great show. The documentary series Brass tax wonders if a chemical leak of the type that happened in Bhopal a couple of years ago could happen over here and pinpoints over 200 communities who don't know that they could be at risk and then it's the last in the present series of 40 minutes which follows a knackered old coaster boat captained by Edward Heath's former buckler as it delivers unglamorous cargoes around the North Sea then it's the grand final and last ever episode of Pop Black with Jimmy White beating Kirk Stevens, presented by David Icke. That's followed by Newsnight, The Weather, an open university preview of all the weekend's pulsating programmes, and they finish off with an open university show about St Lucia closing down at 20 past midnight. ITV bangs out a repeat of the A-Team, followed by the sitcom The Brothers McGregor. Then Robert Carradine stars as a cop killer in the reboot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Then TVI looks at the life of Kurt Waldheim, currently running for the presidency of Austria, and asks whether he was a Nazi or not. 
After news at 10 and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of Kojak, followed by a repeat of Six Centuries of Verse, then That's Hollywood, a clip show of theme songs from the likes of Star Wars and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, then it's Night Thoughts and Closed Down at half 12. Channel 4 continues with worldwide reports who have a good tot about acid rain and wonders if a new power station in Ireland is directly responsible for dead trees and river pollution in Wales. Then it's the first in the new series of the music show Club Mix featuring Janet Jackson, Paul Blake and the Fire Posse and Trevor MacDonald. Then it's real kids issues in the drama series What Now? Where some youths in Liverpool have a shit time of it on the dole. Then it's Fellow Travellers, the 1983 film where an Israeli pop singer raises money for a Palestinian university, unaware that his mates are funneling the money towards terrorist groups and Mossad is on his arse. Then it's the discussion programme Voices, which talks about the failures of revolutionary socialism and scientific reason and the modern world's loss of shared values. Then it's more of their lordship's house, and they close down at midnight. There's a fun evening on the fourth <laughs> channel, eh? <laughs> so, me dears, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Probably, I mean, Falco, because he's got to be talked about. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. Uh, the Janet video, how mm. shit the Janet Grange Hill video is. Yeah. And probably at the time, oh, what, was the, what the fuck was that George Michael song all about? Because I just did not understand it. Mm. God, I, there's, there's been so much in this episode, really. Mm. I mean, mm. uh, like mm. some really next level singers like Morton Harkett, Suzanne Vega, George Michael, Whitney Houston. What the fuck? You know, mm. I mean, so maybe if I had my head about me, I'd be talking about what a selection that is. But yeah, I'd probably end up talking about Just Say No at length as yeah, I have yeah, done. Yeah. I don't know, because that's that's the standout for all the wrong reasons, isn't it? Mm. What are we buying on Saturday? Um, George, if I was feeling melancholy. Janet, if I was feeling nasty. <laughs> Bolko Aha, probably Vega as well. Mm. And, um, yeah, not George, because I didn't understand it, but, yeah, Janet was already bagged by then. And what does this episode tell us about April of 1986? It tells us a bit of a lie. It tells Mm. us, uh, you know, things aren't that bad. I know. (laughs) I mean, I think 86 was pretty bad. For me, it was, like, about a couple of albums. It was about Parade and Control. Mm. So... I was listening less, perhaps, because there was so much dross out there. But this had, this is not a bad episode for I 86. Know. Not a bad episode at all. It's almost as if Top of the Pops knew that it was going to be a landlord inspection and they've had a bit of a tidy up. <laughs> yeah, I think it suggests that British eccentricity is always going to endure and evolve kind of beyond Mm. itself and into interesting new shapes but we should still not try to do what americans do unless we really know what we're doing and have a full tank of premium unleaded (laughs) (laughs) and that pop craze youngsters brings us to the end of this episode of chart music all i gotta do now is trot out the usual promotional flange website chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music thank you sarah b thank you god bless you neil kulkane no worries my name's al needham i fuck everybody i fuck <laughs> you all <laughs> <laughs> we
chart music. I get angry just thinking about it, it makes me mad. Little kids doing drugs, it turns my stomach. That stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. It hurts the user. It hurts his family. And it hurts his friends. I just want to shake some sense into you kids that are using drugs and think about using it. So remember, don't or else. Okay? I always feel very sorry for people and in fact from my own personal point of view I take a, a great deal of pleasure in beating people who, who I think are on drugs just because it, it just gives me that you know, added satisfaction well third attempt at 490 and he's clear the master is clear the ultimate advice I could probably give you and that is just say no I can't really imagine any drugs helping a sportsman I think the whole thing is a question of being fit a question of being mentally alert I can't believe there are too many drugs that really help me. Six more, glorious shot. Well, I suppose the simple advice is to say no. I can't really see any point of taking any sort of drug whatsoever. If any kids think that, that drugs are going to help them, A, get a job, B, be much more relaxed in company, uh, they've got another thing coming. If you're with your friends and one of your friends offers you, even though it's going to be hard, just say no, because otherwise you'll be at the end of the queue. Ray, no one ever listens to what you say, but you'll be mugs to take drugs. Drugs just help you fade away. Drugs just hurt you. Friends desert you. The people you love have to watch you pay. Take it your hand and say, drugs can't match imagination. It's the clothes you wear and your hair. It's the things that you say in conversation. It's the things you do. It's up to you. You don't have to wait a minute. It's your life. It's your life. Say drugs aren't in it. Drugs aren't in it. Be all you can be. Choose life, not drugs.